Patricia, my darling Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. Oh, so sad You're to turn that Patricia song down, but you know, we do that when we I've have... lost you, Walden. You're way in the background. Hello, hello. Is that better now? Okay. Yeah, that's much better. <laughs> nothing you like yourself in, didn't you? <laughs> well, no, nothing. Nothing like hitting the equipment. You know, it, it just works. Uh-huh. You know. Anyway, anyway, I, it's so sad to turn Patricia's song down, but we always do that when we have a very special guest. So tonight is Saturday, May fifth, year two thousand eighteen, and here is Patricia. Go ahead, Hello, Patricia. Hello, everybody. We are back. It's Saturday night, and we do indeed have a special guest tonight. We've been telling you about him for a couple of weeks now. We have Ira Matetsky with us. He is, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself, his official title. There is a group called the Wolf Pack for Nero Wolf, so it's spelled W-O-L-F-E, Pack. Ira is the head wolf, <laughs> call it the alpha wolf, but he's going to explain to us what he is, and he's here to talk about Nero Wolf and Rex Stout. Now, these are two things that are very favorite in my mind, so I'm really excited that you're here. Ira, welcome to our show. Glad to be here. Ira, introduce yourself uh, with the name that you gave me that you're going to keep me out of trouble because you're going to say it yourself. Well, as a practical matter, I'm the chairman or the president of the Wolf Pack. That's what we put uh, on forms and things. But the title we use within the group is the Werowance. Uh, the Werowance is a Native American chief uh, of some tribes that were located or are located in uh, the southeast. And in the book Too Many Cooks, which is set in West Virginia, it's what Archie Goodwin calls Mr. Wolf. And so the head of the Wolf Pack is the, the Werowance. That's, that's my mm-hmm. current title. I am delighted to have you with us, Werewolves. This is just so cool. Ira, tell us about um, the Wolf Pack before we get to Rex Stout and Nero Wolf. Could you give us a, a background on that and also let people know that they can be members of this, which I am now? Well, I, well the, the, wolf, the, 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 the Wolf Pack is, if you want to be uh, hoity-toity, a literary appreciation society. If you want to be uh, practical, a fan club, we, we operate at both of those levels. And the books and the, the writer who we uh, show appreciation to is Rex Stout. Rex Stout lived from 1886 to 1975. He was active in a lot of fields, but is uh, best remembered as the author of the Neural Wolf books, uh, 33 novels and 39 or 40 short stories written between the 1930s and the 1970s, uh, featuring his detective Nero Wolf and Wolf's assistant Archie Goodwin. And it is a magical pair. Talk about, if you will, Rex Stout, how he began the Nero Wolf series and the evolution of the series, which probably could take all night, but I really want to hear it. Well, Stout's life as a writer was was interesting. Um, He started writing fiction in the 19-teens. He was in his uh, mid to late 20s and continued till he was in his early 30s. And he wrote fiction for uh, a variety of magazines, mostly pulps like uh, All Story and uh, Young's Magazine, some of the more slick magazines like Smith's and Lippincott's. 
And then in 1917 or so, he just stopped. He decided that uh, he wasn't really writing what he wanted to be writing, and he just stopped. He did something else altogether. He and his brother developed a banking system for school children that uh, made the family some money, and he went off to France for a couple of years. And he came back at the end of the 1920s and wrote a series of very serious novels, uh, three or four very, very serious novels, which are frankly almost forgotten today. And then just as something different, in 1933, 1934, he decided to write a detective story, uh, the first Nero Wolf uh, story. And that's what clicked with the editors. That's what clicked with the readers. And he soon figured out that uh, that's what he should be writing. And uh, he wrote, as I said, you know, more than 40 uh, more of them. Now, one of the things that we touched on the other day is the, um, by the way, Ira and I had an opportunity to talk for about half an hour during the week, and um, he gave me more information than I could have possibly hoped for, and he's going to share it with you as well. But one of the things that we touched on was the expert knowledge that Rex Stout had cultivated in so many different areas to flesh out the detective theme of his books. Can you talk about that for a while? Stout uh, was was very much of a polymath. Going back as a as a, a young person, he uh, was very well read. He didn't have a, an extensive formal education. He went to college, but dropped out after a couple of weeks, deciding that it was too childish for him. Later, he went to law school and dropped out after a couple of weeks, deciding that being a lawyer wasn't for him. And so he was very much self-made as an author and and as a businessman. But uh, he was he was very well read. He was very well rounded. Uh, a lot of the time, he would do research on a particular topic, and then, frankly, sometimes he wouldn't do the research. And he had a technique of uh, writing in a way that sounded very authoritative, even when he was making stuff up. But most of the time, he was he was very well he was very well informed. Uh, and uh, and uh, when uh, he sets uh, he sets one of his uh, uh, detective stories in a particular milieu, he would have uh, he would have either read up on it or uh, more often he had actually spent some some time in that world itself. He wrote about the thing, often, not always. He wrote about things he was familiar with himself. Mm-hmm. And orchids fit right in there. He was the master of orchids, and at least in the literary sense, people who wrote about orchids did not have the depth of of knowledge that he did with his orchids on the third floor. He was he, he gave Mr. Wolf uh, orchids as a hobby. Uh, he had decided that Wolf would be a sedentary stay-at-home detective most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. And so he needed Wolf needed something to fill up his day. And so he spent uh, four hours every day in in the plant rooms on the on the third floor, two hours in the morning, hours in the afternoon, tending to his orchids and nothing but. Uh, orchids. Uh, in, in actuality, Stout did not grow. That was a fabulous gardener. He didn't spend too much time with orchids. He thought they were too fussy and required too much special equipment. His specialty was usually irises uh, and other uh, garden plants, but he was very, very knowledgeable about botany. And in fact, he wrote the foreword to a couple of, uh, a couple of books about orchids uh, for serious orchid growers. My goodness, that I did not know. Boy, you really got me on that one. Archie Goodwin was his right-hand man, and he has struck me as being almost on the equal par with Nero Wolf. that the two of them are, they, they, they function in different ways, but independently and equally critical to the story. 
I, I think that's right. And there were, in fact, there were people, both critics and fans, who said that uh, that although Stout did a very good thing when he created Nero Wolf, narrates the books uh, is uh, is integral and absolutely uh, essential to the way the the books work. Nero Wolf, uh, although he's a fascinating person, uh, is not always a, a sympathetic character. He can be blustery. He can order people around. He's obviously brilliant. But Archie is the person you might want to you know spend time with. The person you might get to know, and he uh, is integral to the to the stories, not only because he narrates them, but because, as I said, Wolf is mostly a sedentary character. Wolf sits in his office. He gathers information by interviewing suspects who can, or witnesses who can be brought to the office. He uh, does the thinking or the, the top-level thinking in the, in the outfit, but he needs Archie to bring people to him and to go out into the field and uh, invest, do the investigating and bring Wolf uh, the information that he uses to that he Wolf uses to solve the case, and we know in one of the books when Wolf uh, leaves New York and goes into hiding uh, for a few months to escape uh, an arch an arch villain who he winds up, winds up defeating, Archie opens a detective uh, agency for himself and does just fine. Archie can do just fine without Wolf. It's doubtful that Wolf could do as well without Archie. So the stories definitely need them both. Occasionally, Archie, well, more than occasionally, Archie would say, I'm leaving, I quit. And it never happens, although he danced on the edge a couple of times. He would leave for a day or, you know, disappear for a while. How did that come about, and how does that enhance the stories? Archie and Wolf are not only, uh, are not only uh, boss and employee or detective and detectives, uh, a, a, junior colleague but they are also Archie Wolf as Archie at the beginning of their relationship move into the house they have uh, unless one of them is 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 away or or doing some work for some reason they share three meals a day Uh, Archie is Wolf's secretary so they spend hours together in the office of course they work very very closely together when there's a case on and Wolf is very very prickly and uh, can be difficult to get along with at times uh, Archie is uh, very much his own person and has his views as to how things should be. And so, of course, sometimes there's going to be friction. Sometimes there's going to be difficulty. And sometimes Archie is going to say, whether he, because he means it at that moment or for effect, that he quits. Sometimes Wolf says, Archie, you're fired, or words to that effect. As you say, it never lasts. But uh, the friction is part of what uh, of what characterizes the relationship. The other thing is that Wolf, although he rarely admits it, uh, Wolf is somewhat lazy. Wolf is not the kind of detective who runs around looking for cases to solve unless he's absolutely in need of a cash infusion. One of Archie's duties is to um, encourage Wolf at times, even nag Wolf, to take on work, to uh, make enough money to uh, run run the brownstone uh, and support uh, Wolf and Archie and their chef, Fritz, and their orchid man, Theodore, and uh, the whole operation of the place. And Wolf's food. And Wolf's food, and Archie's food, and, and all Archie. the orchids. And Archie once, Archie once tells us that it takes $10,000 a month for the operation to get by, and that's in 1948. <laughs> 
We do have a caller. And Jim, you are on with Ira and Patricia. Hello, Ira and Patricia. It's always a pleasure. A couple of things. First of all, there was an excellent biography of Rex Stout written shortly after his death in the late 70s. I, 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 I forgot the, the author's name. Was it John? Maybe you read this book, Rex Stout, a biography? Yeah, the, the book you're thinking of is by, and your, your praise for it is absolutely correct. The book you're thinking of is uh, by a man named John McAleer, who was a professor at Boston College, uh, the, an English professor at, uh, at BC. He had written about Theodore Dreiser and Ralph Waldo Emerson, and uh, for the last part of his career, he focused on, on Rex Stout. He spent uh, several years in correspondence with Stout toward the very end of Stout's life. Uh, and uh, wrote as you, an absolutely comprehensive six or seven hundred page book about Stout, uh, titled uh, "Rex Stout: uh, Majesty's Life," um, and uh, it is a major source of information about Stout. McAleer also edited several issues of a of a Stout newsletter, introduced, wrote introductions to a number of the books. Uh, his papers, uh, along with with uh, with uh, Stout's papers are archived at Boston College and open to, to research. I was looking at them just uh, last week for a project. So, yes, anyone who wants to know about Rex Stout should absolutely read that book. It is it is comprehensive. It is uh, uh, a very, very detailed and, and very, very fine tribute to, to Stout. A couple of other things. Uh, Patricia and I were talking about this on the program last week, and we were trying to figure out Nero, um, Nero Wolf's attitude towards women, I don't know if chauvinist would be the correct word, but for some reason, Nero Wolf never liked or seemed to never like women. I don't know if it was chauvinistic or he felt they were too emotional. What exactly were you able to figure out about Nero Wolf's attitude towards women? It's, it's interesting because Wolf gives slightly different, uh, slightly different explanations for his behavior. Uh, in different books, and most of the time, of course, he gives no explanation. Wolf, uh, Wolf typically does not uh, want the company of women. There are no women in the household. Uh, the chef, Ritz, is a man. The orchid uh, person, Theodore, is, is a man. Archie, of course, is male. Um, he pretends to, to be upset when, as part of investigating a case, he needs to speak to uh, a female suspect or a female witness, afraid to tell become too emotional or start to cry or, or whatever it is. Definitely what you would consider um, by today's standards a, a chauvinistic and frankly unacceptable uh, attitude. Wolf I... says at one point that he's put up this front because he's been burned by women before. Who knows if he's telling the truth or not. Well, I, read, I remember when I read the book or saw the title, Too Many Women, knowing Wolf's attitude, I said, oh boy, he's really going to be involved in this one. <laughs> Right. Although in that particular story, it's Archie more than more than Wolf, who was surrounded by the, the women. Archie takes a uh, a job undercover at a, a at a factory where there are you know two or three hundred uh, female uh, employees. Um, but the the other thing about about Wolf though is that despite his overall um, comments about women, there are times when he interacts with specific women uh, in a perfectly reasonable and respectful way. Think of Mary Ella Timms um, when she comes up with an improvement on the recipe for corned beef hash. Think of Rachel Bruner and the doorbell rang uh, when they take on J. Edgar Hoover together. Uh, and, there are, and there are others. 
the other thing I wanted to mention is I now understand from the biography, and John and Larry Gassman have confirmed this, Rex Stout was not at all happy with any, I gather, of the radio adaptations of, of Nero Wolf. Stout uh, had very little to do, frankly, with the radio adaptations. He uh, authorized them, but uh, he did, it, it, they did not use his, his stories. Uh, they, they used his characters, obviously. They did not use his stories. He didn't read the scripts. He didn't uh, approve the scripts. And he sometimes said, although I find this hard to believe literally, that he didn't want to listen to them. What happened is that in the 1930s, the first Wolf book was written in 34. There were two films uh, based on Nero Wolf, uh, Meet Nero Wolf and, and League of Frightened Men. And frankly, they were good B films if you just considered them in and of themselves. But they were not faithful adaptations of the first two Wolf books. And Stout said no more, and I really don't want any more media uh, media uh, adaptations of, of uh, Wolf. And he, his agent and his publicists and... Uh, you know, kept after him to authorize a couple of radio series, first in the mid-40s and then in 1950, 51. Um, but, uh, and Stout eventually, as I said, authorized them, but wasn't really happy with them, didn't have a lot to do with them. And then he said no more English uh, language adaptations, and there were no more, the, 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 TV, the two TV series that we all know came about after, after Stout had passed away. Uh, he did authorize some European adaptations, thinking, reasoning to himself that if he didn't speak the language, he couldn't be bothered by them. Did you enjoy, uh, well, first of all, I know Patricia has said, I, I gather, you, Patricia, you were not a great fan of Sidney Greenstreet's portrayal of Nero Wolf, as I understand it. That is correct. I was not. And did you feel the same way, sir, about Sidney Greenstreet's portrayal? You know, I don't have a huge problem with Sidney Greenstreet's portrayal. I think the, I think he got the voice reasonably good. He did a reasonably good job on the voice. Um, I, I had more of a problem with the scripts than, than with Greenstreet's portrayal. The biggest problem I had with Greenstreet is that cackle. He has this his voice laughing too much with this sort of annoying cackle, which is a mannerism yeah. of his, which I don't associate with Wolf. But no, I thought yeah. was a fine. I thought Wolf. I thought Greenstreet was a fine Wolf. And although they seemed to have musical Archies, there were four or five different um, different actors who played Archie Goodwin in that series. All of them did a perfectly good uh, a good job. Uh, what I would, what I would have done is is frankly tightened up the writing. And frankly, I don't know whether they asked for, whether they asked for permission to use the actual Wolf books and were told they couldn't or, or didn't ask. But did you enjoy? Uh, but, Francis X. Bushman's performance, the one that survived. Do you enjoy Mr. Bushman's performance? Uh, to the extent, I, I, for the benefit of the listeners, um, the first radio series uh, featuring Nero Wolf was in the mid-1940s, and there again, a couple of different people who played Nero Wolf, as, as uh, John is telling us, uh, uh, Francis Bushman was one. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to judge. Unfortunately, most of those episodes are lost as far as we know. Uh, the one episode that I've heard was was fine, but it's hard to, you know, judge a, you know. And last, based on, on te- and when they tried it on television in the in about 1980 or so, of course later there was the A and E, but NBC had a version 
where William Conrad played Nero Wolf. What did you think of that series? Well, it's, it's, it's the, the, the sad part of the Wolf was originally cast to be an to be played by a by an actor named Peter David. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Thayer, Thayer David. Uh, and they did a pilot. It was uh, the doorbell rang, and they did a pilot. And Thayer David was a phenomenal uh, Nero Wolf. And then, unfortunately, Mr. David passed away. Uh, and uh, and they cast William Conrad in his place. And the the general consensus of the of the fan community among on the on the Conrad series is very negative. I thought it was all right. I don't dislike it as much as many Nero Wolf fans do. But um, but frankly frankly I think uh, there's generally a consensus that by far the best uh, the best adaptations here of the series was the A&E series between 2000 and 2002 with Maury Chaikin and with, uh, and with um, uh, uh, Timothy Hutton. One other, one other footnote, there was an attempt to create a wolf series in the late 1950s. They may or may not have shot a pilot. Some sources say that um, they shot it and then they decided not to go forward the series. Other sources say that if they didn't shoot it at all, um, I'd love to see it if it still exists. I'm frankly drawing a blank on who played Nero Wolf or was supposed to play Nero Wolf, but Archie was cast as William Shatner. That one would have been fun. Well, yeah, we would have, if you had had the chance, unfortunately they're not available now because they were on phonograph records, but the American, when the talking book program for the blind, many of the Nero Wolf books have been reissued, but when they were done on phonograph records in the 60s and 50s, two great radio actors named Carl Weber and Ralph Bell, who were character actors on radio dramas, did excellent Nero Wolf voices, and fortunately they're not in circulation anymore, but they were great Nero Wolf. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much, gentlemen. You bet. Bye-bye. And you'd like Just to give us... Go ahead, Ari. The, the, I, I couldn't quite make out the very tail end of the call, but I do know if he was referring to audio books. Uh, most, if not all, of the audio books are in, I was going to say in print, that's the wrong word. Are, most of the wolf books are available in audio book form, mostly with Michael Pritchard doing the reading. Yeah. And although I'm personally fond of the, of, of the, of the novels, and, uh, on, and, I, and I prefer paper over, over the computer screen myself, but for people who uh, either need to hear them in an audio form for for, for uh, whatever whatever reason, uh, the the uh, Pritchard uh, adaptations are, are excellent. They're complete readings, not abridgments, and uh, and uh, very well done. We are talking with Ira Matetsky, who is president of the Wolf Pack. The Wolf Pack is, of course, referring to Nero Wolf product of Rex Stout, and you can find out more about the Wolf Pack if you go to NeroWolf.com. Now, remember, Wolf is spelled with a E. It's N-E-R-O-W-O-L-F-E.com. And, my gosh, I can who put together that collection up there, Ira? It is incredible. Yeah, the, the website is, uh, is, has been the, is the product of a, about well over 10 years of, of effort at this point. Uh, NeuroWolf.com, or actually, I think technically the homepage is, is NeuroWolf.org because we're a nonprofit, but we were able to get the .com name uh, as well. 
Uh, it's a, a labor of love uh, presided over by a woman named Carol Carol Hennessy, or some of you may know her as Carol Novak. Uh, Carol Hennessy has been our, our webmaster for probably since we first had a website. So, you know what? It may be 20 years now. And there are well over 100 pages uh, that are all linked from the from the homepage. Pages about our events, our annual uh, banquet, and our book discussion groups, and our other events we hold. Pages about the books, pages about Wolf, pages about Archie, pages about Stout and uh, Stout's other writings, pages about Stout's political activism and literary work and uh, his family and the radio shows and the TV shows and the stage adaptations. Um, every every piece of information you might you might possibly possibly want you can find on neurowolf.org and anything that you hypothetically couldn't find on neurowolf.org the wikipedia articles on the on the various wolf stories and wolf books are also typically at a very high standard we have a couple of our members who uh, are active on on wikipedia and uh, have written and, and edited and improved those articles for information uh on the books but neurowolf.org will tell you Anything you want to know about how to get involved in the Wolf Pack, how to join the Wolf Pack, uh, and uh, and I recommend the site very very highly. If you join the Wolf Pack, the other great resource for for Wolfians for for fans of Stout is our magazine, which we call the Gazette after the newspaper in the series. And uh, joining the Wolf Pack will get you thirty five dollars for two years. Will get you four issues of the of the Gazette. I am a Wolfian. And I heard back from Carol confirming my my membership, and I'm just so excited about that. I spend hours, literally hours, at that website, Ira, and I have barely scratched the material that you have up there. I just went from page to page to page to page, and it, it, it's staggering how much information you have collected. And for anyone who is a Wolf fan, it is a gold mine. It will entertain you for probably the rest of your life. It's incredible. Can we talk about um, Nero Wolf's? Oh, by the way, we are live tonight at uh, 714-545-2071, our regular Saturday night call-in line. And you can talk with Ira about Nero Wolf or Rex Stout or both of them. Would you talk about Nero Wolf's propensity for for food, and not propensity for food, but for eating it and for making it perfect. Where did that come from? Well, I think, uh, I think Rex Stout enjoyed, uh, enjoyed a good meal. Uh, Rex Stout did not look like Nero Wolf. He was not stout. Uh, he probably looked more like Archie Goodwin, albeit with the famous beard. Uh, but Stout ate well. Uh, he uh, knew his, his food, and he knew his wines, and he knew his, uh, uh, what he liked. And uh, he was very he was very happy to uh, have the opportunity to to write about uh, about uh, the types of meals that uh, in a perfect world he might have enjoyed, and they can range from from haute cuisine. Fritz Brenner, his chef, typically typically cooked uh, uh, French, but uh, as I sometimes they ate corned beef hash, sometimes they ate. Uh, uh, you know, American American dishes. A lot of the time, they ate, uh, ate uh, continental uh, dishes. The breakfasts were were uh, amazing, and uh, and I think Stout uh, enjoyed enjoyed uh, writing those those scenes. 
Wolf, as I said, uh, is a stay at home. Uh, sometimes he's got a case to work on, but a lot of the time he does not. And uh, one of the things he does is play with his orchids. Another thing he does is really uh, sit and have uh, long, uh, fun, uh, uh, very tasty meals. And great books. He buries himself in books that uh, are, are just remarkable. He even knows what material is in some of these highly specialized books. And I'm just so enamored with Rex Stout's ability to touch on so many subjects. Grammar was one of them also. I learned so much about grammar reading Rex Stout's books. Um, I learned that you do not unquote something, you end quote something, for example. And um, it's just delightful. And yet you tell me that he did not have any great formal education. He did not have great formal education, but he read enormously. He uh, he read uh, uh, constantly. Uh, he hung out in the world of writers. He was president for many years of the Authors Guild, of the Authors League, which are professional associations, then is now for, for authors. He testified six times in, in Congress, mostly on the subject of copyright reform and protecting authors' uh, literary and financial rights. And he read uh, tremendously. Uh, when Nero Wolf is reading a book in one of the books, uh, it's typically a book that uh, Stout admired by a friend of his. And he is uh, simultaneously giving Wolf credit for being literate and well-read and giving his friend's book a plug. In fact, Nero Wolf, being a Montenegrin, having been uh, of uh, origin from, from Montenegro, was apparently suggested by uh, Stout's friend, uh, Louis Adamek, who uh, himself was Slovenian in a different part of what for a while was Yugoslavia. And uh, Adamek told, uh, told Stout about, uh, about different, uh, frankly, stereotypes of the people from the different parts of Yugoslavia. And, uh, Wolf, uh, and Stout decided that Wolf would be from, from Montenegro. And uh, on the subject of grammar, Stout was a stickler for proper what he thought was proper language, proper diction, proper usage. We can quarrel or we can debate whether he was right about individual uh, instances. Most uh, most dictionaries today think that contact would be perfectly well can be a verb. Uh, Stout and, and Wolf uh, disagreed violently, uh, and uh, uh, the whole incident with Webster burning a copy of Webster's Third, which is something that uh, that uh, Stout has Wolf do in uh, the beginning of a novel called Gambit, and which supposedly, according to McAleer, was something that Stout did himself. Uh, he was that unhappy with uh, the uh, descriptivist as opposed to prescriptivist um, uh, ideas behind that particular dictionary. Uh, so, uh, so it's... Uh, but but everything, everything Wolf says about grammar and word usage is something that Rex Stout believed himself. It was clear that that happened, that he was so particular and corrected Archie periodically about his grammar, and they would kind of go toe-to-toe on that as well. It's just such a joy to have characters of this depth in fun books. You don't have to be a literary genius to sit down and really enjoy the substance of these books. What is what strikes you as the best aspects of these books? What makes them so memorable and so strong? They they still live. 
the the answer in my mind, and I don't know if this is really an answer as much as a restatement of the the quality of the writing is is outstanding. These are books that one can read, that one can reread for the dialogue, for the description, for just the wit uh, and the level of literacy behind the writing, the descriptions of the characters, the characters themselves. We feel like we're part of a family. By the time we've read uh, a few of these books, we think we feel like we know Nero Wolf. We know Archie Goodwin. We know the other characters like Fritz or Theodore or the detectives who assist like Saul Panzer and Fred Durkin or Police Inspector Kramer and Sergeant Stebbins and, and the rest of them, uh, Lon Cohen, the newspaper man, and uh, and the and the others, we 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 we're part of a we're part of a group of people who we know, who we for the most part like and enjoy spending time with. Uh, the the quality of the of the dialogue, the the wit, the, the banter between the characters, and uh, and uh, and then in every in every one of them, there is of course a mystery. Uh, the mysteries are fun; we can uh, follow along. Uh, with the, to try and get a sense of uh, you know who committed the crime, uh, the, I'm not going to claim that these are you know classic fair play mysteries. These aren't necessarily mysteries which uh, the reader is going to be able to to solve rationally. Rex Stout was not Agatha Christie. Was not uh, was not John Dixon Carr. Um, you know, play. You know, he's he's perfectly capable of having you know some evidence come in fairly late in the game. And the reader says, "Well, where did we where did we learn that from? Some of some you know some some a lot of the time there are fair clues along the way. Sometimes there aren't. These aren't necessarily uh, the books that uh, we read for strict you know strictly for for the plot. In fact, mm-hmm. we have a bi monthly we have a bi monthly book discussion in which one of the first things we do is we." You know, identify the holes. The the what what could be called the holes of the plot. We get that out of the way. We don't. We're not reading these books because uh, the plotting is flawless. Sometimes it is, but that's not that's not indispensable. But look, if 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 if, if somebody's listening who thinks this might be interesting, but hasn't read a Nero Wolf book or hasn't read one recently, um, I'm not going to be able to convince you. I I don't write or talk like. Rex Stout did. I'm not going to be able to convince you with my words. What I will say, and I think uh, the others on the line will agree with me, is pick one or two up and give them a chance. And I think that if you are uh, the type of person that Rex Stout was writing for, you'll if you read uh, two or three of these books, you'll want to read the other 40. And if you don't, it's it's a free country. You don't have to, but I think you will. <laughs> it's It has a period sense to each Each of the books has a, a period sense to it, that it reflects the timber of the times, and Archie always dresses in a suit, for example. You would not find anybody in the streets of New York City today, except them maybe down on Wall Street. But there's a character that came with books from the 1940s era, and it's, it's Rex Stout captured it, and we keep reading it because we love it. Why do we love it so much when it's not 2018? Well, we read the, the books were written. The first the first book was written in 1933-34, published in 1934. The last book was written and published in 1974. 
published in 75. And the books are set within a few months and the year they're published. Even though Wolf and Archie didn't age, or at least didn't age very much after the first couple of years, the books are set when they were written. Stout uh, was not writing uh, books set in a historical time. He was writing books that were contemporary. But because the books are now written some time ago, each of them is a little slice of the world, and typically Manhattan, all but two or three are set in Manhattan. So if you pick up Fair to Lance, the first book, which is written in 1933-34, you're reading about Manhattan in 1933 or 1934. If you pick up the last book, A Family Affair, which was written in 1974, you're reading about Manhattan in 1974. And so... Uh, you'll you'll get a little slice of what of how people thought then of what the mores were of what uh, of what people thought of who the the ball players were at that point and that, of how the traffic was at that point what people were were eating then how people were were dressing then it is a little you know it is a little slice of life um, and uh, and uh, works of works of detective fiction sometimes. Do that. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle set the Sherlock Holmes stories um, in roughly the time period he was living. So they are Victorian and Edwardian, and uh, and we read them, we love them for the depiction of of that period of time. Uh, there are historical mysteries that have been set much earlier, but what what makes uh, Stout like like Doyle. Uh, especially moving, is that they aren't authors reaching back and trying to create history. They're writing about the times they lived in, which have now become history. Mm -hmm. The stories unfold, I don't want to say in a similar way, but the introduction of characters, um, it comes about with Archie and Nero Wolfe, for example, Archie Goodwin and Nero Wolfe. They appear, of course, at the very beginning, and there's frequently a consternation going on between the two of them over something, and it's typically Archie wants Nero Wolfe to work, and Nero Wolfe is screaming, if it's a woman, hang up. Um, he doesn't want to work unless he absolutely has to, and frequently Archie will trick him into taking a case. Now, that's a really unusual way to break into a mystery. Usually you wind up with a dead body on the floor, and then they start talking about it. But we really get this richness of the characters when Rex Stout opens the, each of the mysteries. As a technique, um, with Archie talking in first person, Nero Wolf barking orders and sitting back and thinking, how, as a technique, how did that measure up to contemporary fiction at the time? I think that uh, it's un it's unusual to see a detective who um, is so open about the fact that he's looking at least some of the time uh, not to be not to be you know fully engaged in the detective business uh, and Stout. But the, the fact is that Stout introduces cases to to Wolf and to Archie in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's the very conventional. A client walks into the office and says, um, there's this murder that the police aren't getting anywhere on that I want you to solve. And Wolf says, okay, either for X dollars I'll do it. Or Wolf says, no, get out. And then Archie, by such reviews, gets him to do it. Both both are found. Sometimes, um, sometimes uh, Wolf um, blunders into a situation. Frankly, statistically, contemporary mystery fans will think of this as the Jessica Fletcher 
uh, syndrome from from murder, the TV series Murder She Wrote. It, mm-hmm. it is statistically unhealthy to be around Nero Wolf and Archie Goodwin because there are stories in which uh, uh, in which uh, their their barber. Uh, gets involved in a murder in which their shoeshine person gets involved in a murder in which uh, in which a wolf allows members of the local garden club to visit the orchids on the third floor and in the process somebody gets killed in which uh, a suspect in a, a case is waiting in wolf's office and drinks poison and, and so you have a lot of cases in which wolf has a murder sort of thrust upon him as part of his ordinary life and finds himself needing to solve it uh, so there's a wide wide variety. Of, of circumstances in which Wolf is brought into the the mysteries, but every one of them is a is a um, is a mystery story, and every one of them ends with Wolf successfully a, a murder mystery story, and Wolf solves all the murders. So how they get to him is is entertaining, but how he solves them and the fun we have along the way is is what we enjoy. Remarkable, just remarkable. Now, he Rex Stout always used the brownstone in New York City as the home base of Nero Wolf. You did some research, or the Wolfpack did some research, about where this brownstone should be, and you've got a story that goes along with that. Yeah, it was actually, this was actually a little bit before my, my becoming involved in the Wolfpack, at least to the level I am now. But uh, in uh, the early 1990s, there was an effort made to, to find Nero Wolf's house. Now, Stout was consistent that the brownstone was on West 35th Street in, in midtown Manhattan. And the reason he picked West 35th Street, by the way, was that Stout was an enormous fan of the, of the Sherlock Holmes novels. And William Gillette's famous play, uh, in which Gillette played Sherlock Holmes, had uh, played for a while um, in a theater on West 35th Street. And so Stout decided that uh, Wolf lived on West 35th Street. But the addresses he provided, he provided a different number, a di- different addresses, 918 West 35th or or 942 West 35th. Um, if you know if you know the the geographical numbering plan for Manhattan, those addresses would put the brownstone in the middle of the Hudson River, and, and that was deliberate. Stout uh, Stout knew that uh, Baker Street in London is a real place, although there's no 221B. A lot of effort was had been made by fans to figure out which was Sherlock Holmes's house, and people would ring the doorbell, and uh, someone would answer, and say, and they would say, "Is Sherlock Holmes here?" And <laughs> Sherlock Holmes wouldn't be there, and it was very inconvenient for the people who were. And so Stout said, "I'm not going to do that anywhere to anyone else." And so we couldn't locate Wolf's actual um, address, but we do know that in spite of his giving the misleading number, uh, there were clues. He, uh, that would mention um, that Archie, you know, drove the car and made a left onto 10th Avenue, or Archie went to the uh, di- local diner. He had a fight with Wolf, and he went out to dinner to the the diner on 9th Avenue. And so they walked up, and a group of Wolfpack members walked up and down 35th Street and found a building that looked like it reasonably could be um, the site where Wolf's brownstone would have been located. And got permission to put up a plaque saying, "Here is where Nero Wolf lived and worked and solved uh, solved crimes for for many years." And that uh, and that plaque is still on a, a building uh, on West 35th Street between, I believe, Ninth and Tenth Avenues. 
Do you get any feedback? Does the group get any feedback from that plaque? Not from the plaque, about the uh, plaque. Um, some. Uh, frankly, frankly, I don't know that there's been. It, it got a lot. It got a lot of press coverage when we put it up, and uh, occasionally we, we we visit to make sure it's still there and to uh, and, and in good and in good condition. But uh, I, I would say not not so much about the plaque, more about uh, more about the, the books and the novels themselves. There was a sequel last year. Uh, Saul Panzer is a, a detective who assists Wolf, and he's a freelance, but he assists Wolf and Archie in a lot of the cases. His uh, his uh, residence was on East 38th Street, um, which happens to be two blocks from my office. So I had the idea last summer of we took a walk up between Lexington and 3rd on 38th Street, and uh, and we found uh, Saul Panzer's uh, apartment. And uh, I don't think we'll be putting up another plaque, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but we will uh, certainly be posting on on the website that we have tracked down. We have tracked down Saul's house, although sadly I don't think he lives there anymore. Good old Saul. He was he's a great character too. Uh, we don't see him, of course, as much as we see Archie and some of the others, Fritz and Theodore, for example. But he always had he always brought a rich aspect to a story when he appeared in a story. It was really a well developed character, but infrequently seen. He, he, he shows up, he shows up a fair amount uh, when when uh, when whenever uh, Wolf needs somebody to to do a piece of detecting, whether it's telling the suspect or or gathering some information, and uh, either Archie is not available because he's doing something else, or frankly because Stout doesn't want the reader to have this piece of information yet, uh, he will send Saul Panzer, and Saul Panzer invariably uh, succeeds at what he's assigned to do. A great, mm-hmm. uh, a great, uh, memorable character. Also, the usually the winner at the weekly poker game that he and Archie and Bob Cohen and Fred are part of. Love it. When we talked the other night, we talked on Wednesday night, you talked about Stout's work during World War II, and you had a story about Alexander Walcott. Well, the funny, the funny thing is that, uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, interests I know of, of, this, of this group is, you know, old-time, old-time media. And so I read up a little bit, we talked a little bit earlier about I think one of your callers uh, took us to a point we would have gotten anyway, which is the the Nero Wolf radio show. But Rex Stout himself, uh, in a completely non-fictional uh, capacity, was was very active on the radio during World War II. Stout was the president of a group of writers and literary people called the Writers War Board, which was a government-led uh, initiative in which uh, writers and other and dramatists and uh, uh, creative people uh, used their talents to uh, encourage America to get fully behind, fully behind the war effort and the aims of the war and, uh, and the things that needed to be done uh, to win the war. And as part of that, there, was a, 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 there were a number of radio shows. Stout appeared... Uh, uh, many weeks on a show called Our Secret Weapon, in which he talked in particular about the, the need to defeat Germany and how we were going to do that. So in 1943, I think it was, Stout and Alexander Wolcott and three or four other people 
were the guests on a radio show in which they were debating, I think the question was called, is Germany incorrigible? And the debate was over exactly how Germany should be treated you know, after the war when it was defeated and when the German people, as opposed to the German government, responsible for the war. And there was a heated debate going on in which Stout and Wolcott were participating. And just to back up for a minute, Alexander Wolcott was a well-known literary person and, frankly, curmudgeon, uh, who was uh, well-known to Stout. They were, they were friends. Wolcott always claimed that he was the inspiration for Nero Wolf. He always claimed that the, that the overweight, uh, curmudgeonly, opinionated, brilliant detective was based on himself, who he said had all of those qualities. Um, and Stout always denied it, and there's no evidence that it's true. But Wilcott was, was very well known uh, to Stout. And they were in the middle of this discussion when Wilcott was stricken with what turned out to be his, his fatal illness. He was overcome with pain. He was having some sort of a, a stroke or an attack. Uh, could not continue participating in the radio broadcast. And he passed uh, Rex Stout a note uh, which said, uh, I can't continue, go on without me, and basically lay down on the floor. And some medical people came and took him away. And every time Stout or one of the other uh, people on the show would come over to minister to Wilcott, he would wave them away and insist, you, got, you, got, you, you guys go on with the episode, and they did as if nothing were wrong. And unfortunately, Wilcott, Wilcott died that night. Um, four years later, uh, Stout wrote a, one of his Nero Wolf books, which was called And Be a Villain, and it is set in the world of, it was 1948, and it was set in the world of 1948 radio, the, the, uh, the, uh, murder takes place, the original murder that brings uh, the group to Nero Wolf was uh, committed uh, in connection with a, a particular fictional but uh, fictional radio show. And in fact, later in the book, uh, another person dies on the air uh, from being poisoned. Wilcott wasn't poisoned, but there's no question in my mind that, uh, that Stout wrote that scene uh, based upon based upon what he had actually seen happen a few years earlier. He was a very strong supporter of the United States against the Nazi movement. Tell me he, about he that. He was. Yes, Stout actually was very, very strongly in favor of the United States. He, he saw he saw the, the, uh, the emergence of the totalitarian government in, in Germany and the the, the racism and anti-Semitism and, uh, and uh, expansionism of Germany uh, well before the United States joined the war as, as a danger, even before, even before I think, Britain joined the war. He was speaking out very, very strongly in favor of, uh, of uh, the United States uh, uh, being in a, mil- a military, uh, pre- prepared to fight the war that he thought was inevitable and supporting the Allies uh, in fighting the war even before we officially got involved, he strongly he strongly was in favor of Congress uh, reauthorizing the, the military draft, which had expired in the 1930s. He, um, 
he uh, lobbied. Uh, he wrote he wrote a couple of uh, a number of nonfiction articles about uh, about how Germany would best be be defeated. And as I say, within days after after Pearl Harbor, when uh, we were at war with Japan, and then a couple of days later we were at war with Germany and Italy, he was uh, he was uh, four square behind uh, getting the Writers' War Board organized, and he largely stopped writing fiction for the duration of the war. Um, he uh, he wrote only a couple, he typically would write at least one, sometimes two, uh, Nero Wolf stories a year throughout his career, but he wrote much less, much less, much less fiction uh, during the war because he was giving his full time and then some uh, to the war effort. And even after the war, uh, he continued uh, in support of, uh, he was in favor of world government or world federalism, and uh, uh, he later became involved with Freedom House, which was a, a, an American-based human rights organization, uh, and uh, very much of a very much of an internationalist, very much in favor of uh, winning World War II and preventing World War III. Remarkable man. Was he able to marshal his contemporaries to support what he saw was the work that had to be done during the war? Uh, yes, he was part of uh, he was part of uh, part of uh, an, a major effort to enlist a number of uh, there were there were hundreds of uh, of writers and authors who, at one level or another, contributed to the war effort through the Writers War Board. Sometimes it was just uh, contributing one one uh, slogan for a piece of advertising. If the person was uh, a writer, or one illustration, or one article, or one story sometimes it was much much more than that but it was a huge a huge effort the only writer who i know of who categorically refused to help was h.l Mencken, uh who uh, wrote who wrote uh stout a very polite uh, polite uh, letter saying i don't really think i'm good at this and then in his handwriting uh in his uh in his um, uh, papers there's a note saying, you know, why does the why is this man continuing to bother me? But Macon was an exception. Virtually all the all the writers and and artists and creative people who the war board reached out to contributed at one level or or another, and yeah. uh, and the government was was appreciative of it. There are there's correspondence between Stout and President Roosevelt and President Roosevelt's assistants. About uh, about the group, which we located when we took a trip to the FDR Library in Hyde Park, New York, uh, it definitely it definitely uh, had some influence. Interesting. You used the word polite next to Mencken's name. Anything that has survived that I have seen from H. L. Mencken is far from polite. Was this was this purely for show, or was that really part of who he was? I see. I suspect it was. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not a Mencken expert, but the letter, the letter had a veneer of politeness. You know, I, I, you know, I know what I know what my talents are, and they don't really lie in the particular direction, um, particular direction you're you're looking you're looking for. And then Mencken's little private handwritten note to himself is not entirely legible. I've gone over it with the librarians who know Mencken's handwriting, but it says something like uh, more nagging from a ninth grader. <laughs> uh, that sounds more like. <laughs> yeah. On the on, on on the other on the other hand, I mean, the frustrating thing is that 
uh, I mean, Stout, both during the war, the war board years and, and afterwards, knew at one level or another many, many of America's famous writers, sometimes, sometimes personally, sometimes through professional work, and sometimes, some, sometimes it's just a coincidence. I was, you know, one of the more frustrating, I, I made an effort to look down, look up references to Stout and all the various archives and manuscript libraries in different parts of the country as I happened to be visiting them. And the New York Public Library holds Jack Kerouac's papers. And if you look at the inventory of Jack Kerouac's papers, uh, it says that there's a, an, autograph, an, auto, an autograph letter signed from Rex Stout to Jack Kerouac dated in 1966 or 67, I think it was. And I'm like, oh, that's got to be fascinating. What do Rex Stout and Jack Kerouac have in common? So I walked over to the library, which is just I'm lucky it's a few blocks from me, and I put in the recreation for the Stout to Kerouac letter, and it turned out to be a form letter saying, Dear Mr. Kerouac, your, your membership in the Authors Guild has expired. Could you please send us $25? <laughs> that, that was one of the... the I, I've learned that if there's one letter from Stout to someone in an archive, it's not worth making the trip. It's usually, but uh, Stout uh, had, correspond, he had correspondence with... Uh, with uh, um, many, many of the of the great uh, of the great writers and great artists of of, of our time, and uh, um, had very much of an understanding of uh, you know all types of literature, all types of art, and fiercely and fiercely argued that uh, that detective fiction and mystery literature was as uh, was as respectable and as important a, a literary form as, as any other. He's got my vote on that. Um, gee, there was something you just said that, that made me want to jump up. Oh, the one to two books a year is a staggering output for a writer, especially one who can contrive such intricacies and pull everything together at the end of the book. Did he have particular well, writing sim- systems or idiosyncrasies that helped him do that? Uh, I think most writers would say that he was idiosyncratic in how he wrote and that um, he wrote very quickly. He, I mean, we have to bear in mind that in the years we're talking about, uh, he was already um, in the second half of his life. When he wrote the first Nero Wolf book, he was already 48 years old. And he continued writing until the year he, he, the, the year he died, at which point he was 80 nine years old. So he was fairly set in his ways. And typically he would sit down uh, at the typewriter. It's a typewriter that the family still owned at, uh, at the house uh, that he uh, built uh, in, uh, in Brewster, New York, on the New York-Connecticut border. And he would sit down and type. He would make out a page or two of notes on the characters' names and the one or two sentence description of each. And he would have the basics of the plot in his mind. And he would sit down and start typing. And he would type six or seven pages a day uh, until he was finished. He didn't do much rewriting. There were a few instances in which the stories were rewritten a little bit because the editors of the magazine insisted. Uh, Later on, he would tell them to go jump in the lake. But earlier in his career, he didn't do that. He did a little bit of rewriting. But... Usually, the first draft was the only draft. He would sit down and type the story, and uh, that would be uh, 
to a first, to at least a first approximation, uh, what would be published? The um, after the war, his the, the routine the routine became more fixed. He would spend five or six weeks writing a Nero Wolf novel, and he would spend a couple of weeks writing a Nero one or two Nero Wolf short stories. The novel would be published in book form. The short stories would be published typically in the American magazine, and then where there were three of them would be collected in a short story collection. Um, and he would spend a total of about 60 days of the year writing Nero Wolf, and he would spend the rest of the year in the back of his mind trying to think of the plot for the next one, but engaged in all his other activities, uh, his world government activities, his Authors League activities, his gardening, his uh, bringing up, a, raising his two wonderful daughters, and uh, uh, supporting the career of his wife, Paula Stout, who was uh, an eminent fashion designer, and uh, living uh, living one of the remarkable lives that we've seen. He packed more into a year than many people pack into a decade. Quite if you remarkable. pick up the Macaulay, oh, if you pick up the if you pick up the Macaulay biography uh, that uh, the gentleman mentioned earlier, and it's a very very densely written book. I don't recommend that people read it by opening to page one and just you know expecting to to read it at a sitting or a few sittings until you wind up at page 700 or whatever it is. But if you pick up the book and just pick a random year and just say, what did, what did Rex Stout do in 1947 or in 1962 and read the, the 20 pages, you'll be exhausted. You're right. Most people, most people, a lot of people wouldn't do in five years what Stout backed into one. I asked you the other day when we spoke about your favorite of the 73 novels and novellas. He, he wrote 73 novels and novellas or 73 novels plus novellas? There were 33, 73, 72 or 73, depending on whether you count one rewritten version or not twice, uh, 72 or 73 uh, total stories. 33 okay. full-length novels and 39 or 40 novellas or short stories. Uh, of the novels... My favorite is the second one. It's called The League of Frightened Men. Uh, and it's one of the, it's the, it's the longest of the novels. It's one of the, the densest. It's one of the, it's got a lot of, it's got some fabulous characters uh, in addition to the regular characters. It's early in the series. So Wolf and Archie are still evolving. You see them as they're being created. It's one of the best mystery plots in and of itself. I said sometimes in later years we don't necessarily read these books strictly for the plotting. Live Frightened Men, in my mind, is one where the plotting does stand up, and it's absolutely my favorite of the novels. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the right place to start reading, but if you're starting from scratch, but definitely my favorite. It's interesting because Jonathan Levine, the gentleman who was my predecessor as the Weirowans of the Wolfpack, says that Live Frightened Men is his least favorite of the novels. Um, and it definitely, it, that, there, there are people who think it's a little bit uh, overpowering, shall we say. But uh, my favorite, uh, another favorite is Too Many Cooks, which is one the, the one that gave us the term Weirowance. That's the one where Wolf and Archie go to a convention of uh, famous chefs at Kanawha Spa, which is a fictional resort in West Virginia, but clearly based on the Greenbrier, which is uh, an actual resort that still exists at White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. And in fact, just uh, three weeks ago, 
the wolf pack took uh, every five years. We take a, a trip down to the Great Briar and we recreate the French dinner and the American dinner, cooked by the or planned by the uh, by the best chefs in the world. And it's it's a wonderful a wonderful book. It has uh, uh, another well crafted mystery plot, memorable characters, um, some very interesting insight by both Wolf and Stout on the state of race relations in America in the 1930s. Uh, definitely, definitely recommended. Uh, and there are quite a number of other of other books I of, of novels I like. On the short story side, my favorite uh, is one called Too Many Detectives. Uh, it's not set in the brownstone. It's actually set in Albany, New York, of all places. But uh, we we meet in addition to Wolf and Archie several other detectives of the of the period. Uh, Theodore Linda Bonner, who is uh, one of Stout's uh, other uh, detective creations, uh, uh, a female detective, which was not that common in the 1930s or the 1950s when too many detectives were set, and some others. So that's my favorite of the of the shorter of the shorter works. Before I ask you where you think people might get the most out of the series by naming a book that they could start with, I want you to tell me a little bit about the League of Frightened Men. That uh, was something that mm-hmm. you, you particularly highlighted. What what is? Give us a little synopsis of that. Yeah, that's the book I mentioned just uh, just a few moments ago, and it's an, an interesting. It's one it, it's one of the books, uh, one of the few books in which Wolf himself um, contrives to get people to hire him. This doesn't happen that often. Typically, as was as was mentioned earlier. Um, it's Archie having to nag or, or either nag or sometimes trick Wolf into taking on a, a murder case. This is an instance in which Wolf gets get, uh, himself figures out how to get a group of people to hire him and be a villain, which I mentioned earlier is, is another one of those. Um, there is a, a group of people uh, who are suspicious of uh, one of their Harvard classmates as having been complicit or instrumental in the death of two of their other classmates. He is a man named Paul Chapin. He is an author. And after um, two of the members of uh, that, their Harvard class have, have died, writes to the, the rest of the class saying, you realize I killed these people, but he does it in verse. Uh, Chapin is an author. In fact, one of his books is, has been, is, is the subject of, a, of an obscenity trial which reflects uh, what was going on in the real world of literature at the time. Uh, and uh, so this group of people uh, hire Wolf to, to solve, or to, to pin, in reality, pin, pin the blame on Chapin, but to solve uh, the deaths of their, of their classmates. And it goes on from there. And I don't want to say too much more because I'll spoil it, but there are, quite, there are more than the usual number of twists and turns uh, which is accommodated by the fact that, as I say, this is the the longest of the of the novels. The other interesting thing is that uh, the, the, this group of Harvard men, that Paul Chapin was was injured uh, for life in a, a hazing accident when he was a Harvard freshman, uh, and his classmates feel uh, feel very guilty about it, and so they put together a, a group to take care of of Chapin. They call it the League of Atonement. But after after um, Chapin is starting to scare them, they jokingly start calling themselves the, the League of 
the white feather, the white feather being a symbol for, for cowardice. And ultimately, the book is published. It was serialized at the Saturday Evening Post under the title The Frightened Men. And then it comes out in book form as The League of Frightened Men in uh, August of 1935. Now, the curious thing is that Sinclair Lewis, the novelist, uh, published It Can't Happen Here in September of 1935. And one of the key characters or group of characters in Lewis's book is called The League of Forgotten Men. So Lewis is writing about the League of Forgotten Men. Stout is publishing a book about the League of Frightened Men. Uh, and as best I can tell, uh, neither of them knew about the other's work at the time. It's just a, an odd coincidence. But uh, as I say, definitely, definitely one of the Wolf books that's uh, that's worth uh, that's yeah. worth uh, locating and enjoying. Very peculiar. You helped me understand the intricacies of people's minds when I asked you the other night. What is your favorite Nero Wolf book? And where do you suggest, this is the part that, that you really gripped me with, where do you suggest people start? Some people said the end, some people said the beginning, and some people said the middle. Explain that. Well, but hopefully hopefully not the end. Not but the end. It's, this, this is a classic, this, this is a debate that we frequently have among among wolf fans because we say, how did you come to the series? And if you were speaking to a newcomer who wanted to get into Nero Wolf and you could add, you know, how would you have them read it? There are people who say that although, you know, many of the characters remain familiar, uh, the characters did evolve over time and the books are set, as I said, in real time. So the logical way to enjoy the series is to begin with the first book and read the first book, which is Fair to Lance, first, and read the second book, which is Frightened Men, second, and and so on, and read through the stories. Uh, and that is certainly one way of doing it. And if I were speaking to a confirmed mystery reader who enjoys watching the evolution of of characters and the evolution of Arthur's styles... That's how one would do it. The problem is that Wolf and Archie, although they were largely formed in the first book, were not entirely formed. They were a little more gruff. Archie in particular had more rough edges. And, and it's been said to me by at least one person recently that if I had read Fairdelance first, I would have thought it was all right. I would have enjoyed it, but I don't know that I necessarily would have gone on to read 40 other books. So maybe it's not the right that was you, and you're that not the only me. one. So, so, um, so maybe it's not the right place to start. Well, do you start with the best book? Well, first of all, nobody agrees on what's the best book. As I say, the book that I think is the best, my predecessor thinks is the worst. So um, do you start with the best book? Do you start with a typical book? Now, for this audience, which has an interest in um, things like... Uh, uh, you know, old time, old time media, old time radio. Maybe you start with and be a villain, which is the which is the story that's set in the context of a a 1948 radio show. Or maybe you start with probably the most famous book, which was called uh, The Doorbell Rang, 1965, in which a woman is convinced that she's being uh, surveilled and harassed by the FBI and hires Nero Wolf to make the FBI leave her alone which this is the FBI of J. Edgar Hoover 
at the height of his uh, popularity and and uh, or at least uh, power in in the mid 1960s and stout uh, stout uh, himself was very courageous in in taking Hoover and the and the FBI and the FBI on um, definitely the most publicized book uh, definitely the book that would drew the most attention in Stout's FBI file which we've seen uh, but uh, but not necessarily typical um, but a lot of people would say start there frankly I started with the, with the book I started sort of randomly with a book that I came across uh, my first Nero Wolf book was a book called The Golden Spiders, uh, which is probably more in the, in the vernacular of the mystery uh, world, more hard-boiled, more action-oriented than than the typical novel. There are some scenes in it that uh, uh, are not typical Stout, are not typical um, uh, Wolf and, and Archie. Uh, but, uh, but I read that book, and it made me want to read uh, as many more as I could find. So, uh, with with just a couple of exceptions, probably you can pick up any book and, and not go wrong. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I agree. You talked a minute ago about an FBI file. Tell me about that. Well, the the FBI um, kept files on a lot of people, and uh, and Rex Stout was was one of them. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of information in the file. Um, a writer named Herbert Mitgang uh, in the, the 1990s submitted uh, freedom of information requests for the files of 40 or 50 uh, prominent uh, prominent uh, people and wrote a book about them called Dangerous Dossiers. Uh, and uh, Rex Stout was one of them. And there's a chapter about Stout's FBI file, which, uh, which was heavily redacted at the time because whenever a living person is mentioned they would black out the person's name so you can't make out everything that's in the file but you could make out quite a lot and it turns out that uh, there are references to stout in the fbi files beginning as early as the 19 late 1930s and early 1940s uh, more in the late 40s and early 50s when stout was uh, becoming was active politically and was correctly identified as left of center, not communist. He was fiercely anti-communist, but left of center, yes. And the FBI got suspicious and started uh, keeping keeping track of him a little bit. Uh, nothing, uh, nothing, uh, he wasn't accused of anything, but he certainly, um, they had, uh, they were, you know, making copies of, you know, any newspaper clippings mentioning him and when he criticized the congressman that wound up in the file and when he joined a group that was accused of being uh, of being uh, left, um, that was that was mentioned. And then hundreds of pages about uh, the publicity associated with with the doorbell rang. Um, people should pick up a copy of uh, the book by by Herbert Mitgang, Dangerous Dossiers. There's about 10 pages on Stout, and there's about 300 pages on the files of uh, of, uh, of many other notable people. Uh, it's uh, it's it's eye-opening. Although these days, although these days, a lot of people won't be surprised uh, when when Stout was working against the FBI in 1965. Clearly, he raised some eyebrows. I keep saying he was a remarkable man, but my gosh, he was a remarkable man. I, I, think, I think I think so. Yeah, I, I, it just each time I read something more about him, 
I sit down and I say, phew, <laughs> I just, phew, I run out of energy just reading what this man was involved in and how, how much he accomplished over his lifetime, including recipes. There's a book of recipes out, Nero Wolf Recipes. There is a Nero Wolf cookbook. There, well, there was a Nero Wolf cookbook, which was published in the early 1970s, uh, which Stout had some input into. I don't think he wrote most of the recipes. The book was edited by a woman named Barbara Byrne at Viking Press, but he certainly inspired and, and led to it. And 30 years earlier, when Too Many, Too Many Cooks came out, there were recipes associated with that book, uh, some from Stout, some from a woman named Sheila Hibben, who the publisher paid to write the recipes. And in fact, mm-hmm. in the first edition of Too Many Cooks, if you pick up the, the current edition, you won't find it. But if you pick up the first edition, you will find in the back 24 pages of the recipes. Oh, my. Uh, which were... Uh, so, yeah, pick up the pick up, pick up the Nero Wolf cookbook if, you, uh, if, you, if you're interested in, in uh, some of the recipes. Now, not everything that Nero Wolf said about food was... Was was practical at one point. Nero Wolf tells uh, tells a woman whose uh, whose hospitality he is uh, he is borrowing that uh, making proper scrambled eggs requires scrambling the eggs for forty minutes. The chef at the Greenbrier was not in agreement with that, but uh, but they're they're but they're 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 fun they're fun recipes, and if you eat regularly from them, you will enjoy a a uh, a series of wonderful meals. If you're not careful, you will I went to Amazon. Excuse me, Walton. Go ahead. I like to mention the phone from Rain. I've been talking to people off air. Uh, if you like to talk, to, uh, just go ahead and call 714 I'll pick up the phone off air and make sure you have your computer turned down and we'll put you on air. So the get phone number again is 714 Okay, thank you, Alden. And we're talking, of course, with Ira Matetsky. I consider you the expert on Nero Wolf and Rex Stout. And if you don't, don't tell me, okay? You are the well, expert. Well, I, I, I'd like to think I'm, I'm one of the experts. I hope there are plenty of other people who are also interested. And uh, I, have a, I have a colleague who I work with on some, some Wolfian projects, uh, Named uh, named Ross Davies. Ross uh, made probably the most uh, important discovery of uh, Stout scholarship in the last 25 or 30 years, certainly since John McAleer died, when he discovered, while in the course, frankly, of looking for something else, uh, a novel that or a novella that Stout wrote in 1916 called The Last Drive. It was published in serial form in, of all places, Golfer's Magazine. And this has been completely lost. And the importance of this 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 novel is that 18 years later, when Stout writes *Fair to Lance*, the murder that's the subject of the book, or the first murder that's the subject of the book, takes place on a golf course. And Stout, knowing that everyone had completely forgotten this article he wrote for *Golfer's Magazine*, <laughs> reused the same murder method in *Fair to Lance* that he had used. And this was not known to anybody. John McAleer, in his otherwise incredibly compendious book that was referenced earlier, um, was not aware of this early story. It hadn't been indexed anywhere. And in fact, in the, in the course of um, 
reading that story, um, we did uh, we did some research, and there is now an enormous effort to index all the fiction that appeared in all the magazines historically of the 19th and 20th centuries. And somebody noticed that there were eight or nine other stories by Stout that had never been collected anywhere. Back in the 70s and 80s, McAleer and his colleagues put out several books of Stout's previously um, unreprinted early pulp fiction, uh, but they had missed this. And so I, I had the privilege of, of editing uh, a book called The Last Drive and Other Stories, which which print, reprints 10 or 11 Stout stories from between 1913 and 1917 that had not been reprinted since they had appeared in the magazines a hundred years earlier. But that's, that is not the starting point for getting into Rex Stout. If you're a new reader, start with Nero Wolfe. Don't start with the yeah. forgotten stories he wrote <laughs> 20 years before he invented Nero Wolfe. But if you think you've read all of Rex Stout and there's no Rex Stout left, then go and hunt that down because you will <laughs> see you will see uh, in a story called In the Last Drive, hints of the detective fiction, very early hints of the detective fiction writer that Stout would become. If you find another book called um, Justice Ends at Home and other stories, in the, book, in the story Justice Ends at Home, from all story from 1915, you'll read about a, a, a murder solved by uh, one man who is very sedentary and sits behind his desk, and his young assistant who runs around and gathers all the clues. I don't mean to overstate the parallel. They're not Wolf and Archie, but they, are they very distant predecessors in Stout's mind of Wolf and Archie? Read it, figure it out for yourself. We have a caller, Celeste. You are on with Ira and Patricia. <laughs> Hello there. Uh, I, I picked up a little bit late. Can you tell me your name? I'm terribly sorry. Do you tell me your name, please? Uh, Ira Metesky. It's what? Ira Metesky. It's uh, All right. Yeah. All right, Mr. Metesky. I've always been very interested in the Algonquin Round Table and things like that and have a lot of books about that. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, did you see the movie by Jane Fonda about that group of people? Um, I think I know the movie that, that you're referring to, but it's been, but it's been quite a... I, I certainly know the Algonquin... Well, I know you know. Oh, yes, um, certainly. I know you yeah, know that. I, I just yeah. wondered if you. Uh, um, that, if, if I saw that movie, it was quite a number of years ago, so it's not really fresh. Yeah. Well, I just wondered, and they, uh, they moved to uh, to uh, Dorothy Parker, and I can't think of her, her the name of her lover, whatever. Anyway, they moved out to the West Coast. And he began to write, and the first thing that he wrote was the Maltese Falcon. And I was wondering if you liked that portrayal of them or whatever. Well, I, I, I can't speak to that particular film's portrayal of the Algonquin, but I, what I, the Algonquin Roundtable, which uh -huh. Stout was distantly associated with. But what I can say is that Stout was an enormous fan of DeShiel Hammett, who I think is the detective story writer you're writing at. He once described he once described the Maltese Falcon as technically the most uh, the the best uh, detective fiction novel ever written. And three times in his life, Stout was asked to list the 
top ten or the ten best um, uh, mystery novels uh, ever. And each time, the Maltese Falcon uh, played very would played very high on the list. So we had a lot of respect for Hammett. He had a lot of respect for for Dorothy Parker's writing as well. Oh yes, it, it, her, her writing's wonderful. Also, uh, I just you know wanted to know if maybe he had had a kind of fascination with Dashiell Hammett because so many people do. Now the other only thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, do do you know the group? Did they move out there all at one time, or just stay in touch, or how'd that go? Well. Let me let me answer your question about the Algonquin, and then I'll return to to Hammett. I, I think the the group of, of people associated with the Algon the Roundtable tried to stay together for a while. Uh, they didn't all move out as a group. Uh, I mean, Robert Benchley passed away after a certain point, uh, and uh, Alexander Wolcott, who had been uh, associated with the group, uh, passed away in the circumstances I talked about earlier. Um, but uh, but but but. Uh, a, a wonderful, a wonderful, fascinating group of people associated with the Algonquin Roundtable, and the Algonquin Round, the Algonquin continued to be associated with uh, with detective fiction for many years. It was the location for a long huh? time of some events uh, associated with the Baker Street Irregulars, the yeah. book of Sherlock Holmes aficionados, of which Stout was a member for for many years and emceed the dinners for a long time. Stout was a great Sherlockian and very much believed it appreciating the history of, of detective fiction and acknowledged that he hadn't come up with the, the form from scratch. Let me tell you a story about Stout and Hammett, uh, though, and this is something I only discovered relatively recently because completely unrelated to my interests in uh, Rex Stout or, or detective fiction, I do some legal history writing. And I came across an opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court um, or a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court from 1951 in a case called United States Against Field. This will sound like a digression, but it's not. U.S. Against Field. And in U.S. Against Field, the court refused to grant bail or release three people who were responsible for a fund that raised bail for people who were accused of, of communist activity uh, in violation of the, the anti-communist laws that were in effect at the time. And right around the same time as this opinion came out, Rex Stout wrote one of his Nero Wolf stories. It was called Home to Roost uh, in book form, but in the magazine form it was called Nero Wolf of the Communist Killer. Oh. And, the, and the, 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 the plot revolved around um, uh, well, one of the key characters in the story, was a gentleman who was the lead fundraiser behind the scenes for a communist bail fund. Exactly the same sort of thing that the field case involved. And then I read the, read the, um, read the uh, field case more closely. There were three defendants who were in jail for funding this communist bail uh, fund. Uh, one was a man named Field, one was a man named Vanderbilt, and the third was DeShiel Hammett. And at the very moment that Stout was writing Nero Wolf and the Communist Killer, um, <laughs> he, he knew perfectly well that his friend and one of the most highly regarded um, uh, mystery writers in America was temporarily uh, in federal custody for, uh, for, uh, 
for his uh, for his politics, basically. And um, Stout uh, till the end of till the end of his life always said that the Maltese Falcon was one of the uh, one of the best written mystery stories in America. But uh, very few people realized that he'd put that Easter egg in one of those stories <laughs> as uh, some sort of allusion to Hammett. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That's good. Well, I'm glad you've enlightened me about that. Now, uh, there was one more quick thing. I don't want to take up the time. There was one other thing. Oh, Dorothy Parker was, who was her um, lover of the, well, at the, at the Algonquin? Which um, one of those men was with Dorothy Parker? I don't I, know. I can't remember. I, I think you probably tapped me out on my Algonquin. <laughs> well, that's all right. I've, I've been tapped out on it for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. I love that uh, ending. Walden and and I have talked about that quite a bit. When the last words are uh, in the Sam Spade movie, the Mar- Marquis Falcon, and at the very end, he says, the detective says to him, "What is this, Sam?" And he says, "The stuff." The stuff that dreams are made of. Yes. That's the line right there. And you hear it over and over in so much of the writing of the late 40s and 50s, you know. Terrific. Thank you, Celeste. I have really enjoyed talking to you. We'll let other people get to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Just for our audience, there's a new book on the Algonquin uh, Hotel. I had the grandson of the of the family that owned the hotel. It's brand new. Also named Michael Colby. And it's the history of the Algonquin Round Table and the hotel. It's put out by Bear Manor Media. So if you're looking for something like like that, I just had the author on a few weeks ago. I've, I've been reading it, They're and all... it's really good. So, yes. The other connection I can think of with the Algonquin Round Table is that Dorothy Parker was one of the early members of a group called the New York State Writers Hall of Fame, which is a, uh, a project of the of the Empire State Center for the Book and the Libraries Association to honor uh, writers who uh, spent a significant part of their of their literary career living or, or working in in New York State. And in in 2014, I was uh, I was uh, privileged to uh, sponsor uh, Rex Stout's. Uh, uh, election to that to that Hall of Fame, so they are part of that uh, that pantheon. So there's another connection there. Super. Walden, am I correct? Uh, Clint P. Adams was also a member of the Algonquin Roundtable. Correct, and I think that's how Dan Goldenpaul, the famous producer of Information Please, I think that's where he basically recruited who he wanted to be on the radio show. And of course, many of us know that Rex Stout uh, occasionally made a guest shot on the show. But I, well, I think Dan Goldenpaul, who his works, his paperwork, are legendary. He's quite a, <laughs> yeah, Martin Graham book on uh, on the radio show Information Please would uh, clear up yeah. some of that. So, but you're right. Yeah. And Rex Stout was indeed yep. a, a guest several times on that. I listened to that show forever. I love it. Ira, I have one more question for you, and let me remind people, you're running out of time to talk with Ira Metetsky, who is the, are you president of the Wolfpack? President, or the technical title, the the title we use within the group is Werewolves, but president works, president works fine. I I joke that they made me, 
I, I joked that they put me in charge because I missed a meeting, but uh, in reality, it's been a great <laughs> honor to be the leader of this group for the past uh, 10 or 11 years. Well, it's our great honor to have you with us. Ira, of course, I, I said the Wolf Pack, meaning Nero Wolf, so W-O-L-F-E-P-A-C-K. And um, you can get to their – I do have another question for you. Don't go away, <laughs> Ira. You can get to their website at NeroWolf.com. Org, you said, is the best one because you're nonprofit. Yes. Nerowolf.org, O-R-G. And um, Ira, the question is about a writer named Robert Goldsboro, who is writing Nero Wolf Mysteries. Tell me your thoughts about that. The uh, the uh, estate of Nero Wolf, uh, wrong, wrong. The estate of Rex Stout uh, did decide that. Uh, they would authorize Mr. Goldsboro to write uh, uh, additional stories in the series. Lots of people have attempted to write additional stories uh, of Nero Wolf uh, informally. Some of them are published in the Gazette. Some are uh, linked on the website. But uh, Mr. Goldsboro was licensed by the estate as the official continuator, if that's a word, of the of the uh, series, and he has published uh, several of them. The way that the way that started is a wonderful story. It speaks very highly of of Barb Goldsboro, who I got to meet when he keynoted at a banquet a couple of years ago. Uh, Mr. Goldsboro's mother was was elderly and was was not feeling well, and was a huge fan of of Nero Wolf. And she said, "I wish I had another Nero Wolf novel to read." And Bob said, "I'm sorry, Mom. There aren't any." more Nero Wolf novels. You've read them all. And she said, I wish I had another Nero Wolf novel to read. So he sat down and wrote one for her. <laughs> and then he approached, and then he approached, uh, and then he approached uh, members of the Stout family and said, would it be all right if I published this and maybe some more in book form? And they read it and they, and they said yes. And so he published several novels uh, in the 1990s, uh, took some time off, but has published a few more uh, in the past couple of years. In addition, there's a gentleman named Marvin Kay, a longtime uh, Wolfpack member, uh, who is writing some some short uh, stories in uh, featuring Wolf and, and Archie for Sherlock Holmes Mystery Magazine. Uh, so those are uh, authorized attempts to continue the the uh, the, the series. Uh, frankly, our members are. Hey, are uh, somewhat divided about uh, uh, them. I think they're uh, worthy of attention. Uh, they're not Rex Stout, but I don't think that Bob or, or, or Marvin would claim to be Rex Stout. They are you know, paying tribute to the wonderfulness of the, the uh, eternal nature of, uh, of Wolf and Archie and their world by uh, choosing to, take this, to uh, devote their creative efforts or a portion of their creative efforts to... Uh, to uh, giving us more of Nero Wolf and Archie Goodwin. I will take that. When I get finished with the series, I am guilty of not having finished the Nero Wolf series. However, that makes me believe that I've got something to look forward to every day. I have one more thing, uh, and it's Amazon.com. First of all, the recipe book is up on Amazon. Would you tell me the title of that again, please? The Nero Wolf Cookbook. 
the Nero Wolf Cookbook. Well, that's about as simple as you could get. How did I forget that one? So the Nero Wolf Cookbook is up on Amazon.com. I brought it up, and it has Look Inside, one of the samples, and they gave quite a few pages with several recipes. And it is just downright fun because each recipe is introduced by a, a passage from one of the books the recipe, is, it refers to a recipe that was that Fritz or Archie sometimes even took, <laughs> tried to put his hand at cooking, but it has to do with a particular Nero Wolf book, every recipe. So it's got an introductory paragraph that was lifted from each book, and it looks like great fun. Uh, the second part of the Amazon.com is that if you are ordering anything from Amazon.com, and you go there through an Amazon.com link at the Nero Wolf page, NeroWolf.org. The Wolf Pack gets, um, I, I don't know what to call it, a gratuity of some type. You get some consideration, some financial consideration for purchases that are made through that particular link. So if you're doing anything with Amazon and you want to do something really great for Nero Wolf and Rex Stout and the Wolf Pack, go to that site. The link is, I guess it's on, is it on your homepage? It should be on the, the very bottom of the homepage at neurowolf.org. Okay, okay. Excellent. Yeah. Go ahead. And I and I, I do appreciate your mentioning it because the uh, the little uh, commission that, uh, that Amazon is kind enough to give us um, and it's a program where a lot of a lot of different nonprofit groups have, have signed up for. But uh, you know, we appreciate when people you know link through us. We do get a, a small a small payment, but it mounts up over time, and it's helped us. Uh, it's one of the ways that we've managed to keep our dues at the same low rate of thirty five dollars for two years, which is four issues of the Gazette. I don't think we've raised dues in at least uh, fifteen or maybe twenty years. So. Uh, so we hope people will think of us when they're buying through Amazon. Of course, support your local independent bookseller if you can. But if you are ordering through Amazon, uh, do us a little good while you're there. It doesn't increase your cost. And better still, join us at the Wolfpack. Uh, sign up for membership. Read our Gazette. Surf the website. Join our Facebook group, uh, the Wolfpack on Facebook, uh, which is a daily uh, discussion. Uh, pretty much. Uh, come to our events. If you're in the New York area, come to our Black Orchid weekend in December. Come to our book discussion. If you're in another part of the United States, check out the website. See whether there's a book discussion group in your area. We have a group near Boston, one in Maryland, one in upstate New York, one in Connecticut. Uh, some more information. Uh, our central uh, our, our central location is typically New York City. Events all over the country. Uh, read up. Great, great. And I want to emphasize that you do not have to buy books in order for the Wolfpack to benefit from that link leading directly to Amazon. You can buy a pair of boots and it will make a difference simply because you use that link instead of going to Amazon.com directly. And I love it. Ira, I cannot thank you enough for spending so much time with us. We really overshot the runway here, and you were so gracious by telling me you did not have a time limit, and I took great advantage of it, and I appreciate that. I hope you will agree to come back and talk with us again, and especially because you are a Sherlock Holmes person, a Sherlockian. Would you be yes, able I to come back and talk with us about Sherlock Holmes? I would be happy to talk uh, about Sherlock Holmes. I would be happy to talk about uh, 
was uh, together with Nero Wolf, Rex Stoughton, one of the leading members of the, the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the leading Sherlock Holmes appreciation group. Uh, so I would be happy to join you about either topic uh, anytime. And indeed, your, your uh, bigger challenge may be to get me to stop talking. <laughs> I don't think so. You have been absolutely wonderful, and I thank you so much for everything you shared, Ira. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Have a good night. Good night, Ira. Good night. Good night. Oh, good night. Okay. Well, hope you enjoyed that. that was I did. Fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> and Ira's going to join oh. us at the Spurvac convention in November. He's making a special trip to be on our panel. We're going to have Dashiell Hammett granddaughter with us and Ira to talk about Dashiell Hammett, Rex Stout, and uh, Rebecca Stout, uh, Bradbury, Rex's daughter, who I've had the honor to have lunch a, a few times over. going to make the trip up from San Diego to be in the audience. So those of you who love Rex Stout, Dashiell Hammett, and you're in the West Coast, uh, and we'll be broadcasting that live. So uh, that will be part of a Spurvac convention. That's it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> All right, my dear, you about ready to, to get ready for tomorrow? Should I just turn you loose? I, yeah, what's tomorrow? Well, Sunday. Oh, just in general. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always get scared when you say something like that. What am I supposed to have done? <laughs> oh, you're so funny. But next, next, oh, okay. sa- next Saturday night, Bubble's supposed to make her appearance. She's supposed to have a poem ready. For Mother's Day, so Bubbles, hope you're working on that poem, that free verse or whatever I, there is. She told, yeah, she told us that it's an essay. I think I ought to put the thumbscrews on her and <laughs> tell her it has to be a poem. What do you think? <laughs> well, considering you are the keeper of the flame, all things, <laughs> all things literary, I think it's your discretion, my dear. It's <laughs> my responsibility. Oh, well. Well, that is the end of our show, everybody. Thank you for being with us, and thank you for calling in, Jim and Celeste. I loved it. And we will be back next Saturday. Hooray. Good night, everybody. Good, Good night, night, Patricia. Walden. All right. And there we go, Patricia. We're going to continue. We've been looking at Victory Europe. We started on last weekend, picked it up on Friday, April 27, 1945, where the Americans and Russians met, shook hands, and they started to rope in the Nazi party. So we're looking at shows and things of that time span from April 27 up to May 8th of 1945. And now we have finally gotten to Monday, May, 20, May 7th, 1945, the day before VE Day. So... We're thinking the, the closest in to things is about ready to done. So that's what we're going to be picking up is Monday, May 7, 1945. We'll start with WOR out in New York. So with that, with Sarah Perdue-Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being here. Brought this wonderful country we live in. Brought the uh, opportunities we have as American citizens. Look after the needy, the poor, and the hungry. We act in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, everybody. Stand by.
Jaws Professional, 31-32. News for May 7, enter. WOR, New York. 10 a.m. B-U-L-O-V-A, Bulova Watch Time. Bulova, gift of a lifetime. Good morning. It's 10 o'clock, V-E Day, Monday, May 7th. This is Henry Gladstone reporting from the WOR Newsroom, speaking for the Hudson Pulp and Paper Corporation, makers of Hudson Paper Towels, Hudson Paper Napkins, and Hudson Tissue. Always remember, Hudson Paper products are whiter, crisper, stronger, more pure and wholesome. And now the news. Here is the great news for which the world has been waiting for almost six long years. The Allies have announced that the Germans have surrendered unconditionally. The war in Europe is over. The enemy surrendered unconditionally to the Americans, British and Russians at 2.41 a.m. this morning, French time, or 8.41 last night, Eastern War time. The capitulation took place at a little red schoolhouse in Reims, France, used as a headquarters by General Eisenhower. Thus it is that 11 months to the day after the invasion of Normandy, since the invasion was the 7th of June, European time, the Allies have utterly smashed the German enemy that came close to enslaving the world. The papers were signed for the Allied Supreme Command by Lieutenant General Walter Bedell Smith, General Eisenhower's Chief of Staff. The new Chief of Staff of the German Army, Colonel General Walter Jodl, signed for Germany to end the greatest war in history. For Russia, General Ivan Sislaparov signed as the representative of Marshal Stalin. General Francois Sevray signed for France. The surrender brought the war in Europe to a formal end after five years, eight months, and six days of terrific battle. The formal announcement from Eisenhower came after German broadcasts had told the German people that Grand Admiral Karl Dönitz had ordered the capitulation of all fighting forces. The German admiral, who stepped into Hitler's shoes for the last act of the world drama, also called off any possibility that U-boats might try to continue a guerrilla war at sea, as had been feared. Dönitz ordered Nazi U-boat crews to cease fighting. Earlier yesterday, he had ordered German naval and merchant ship crews not to scuttle or damage their vessels. The actual formal announcement of VE Day is still to come. Here's a bulletin that has just been handed to me from Reims, France. General Eisenhower was not present at the signing of Germany's unconditional surrender. However, immediately after German generals Jodl and Friedborg had signed the surrender, they were received by General Eisenhower. The Germans were asked sternly if they understood the surrender terms imposed on Germany and if they would be carried out by Germany. The German generals answered yes. The final German capitulation of the Germans ends more than a week of negotiations. The first Nazi offer was made through neutral Sweden on April 26th by Heinrich Himmler, chief of the Gestapo. And here is a special report by Jack Thompson, mutual correspondent with the First Army in Europe. Go ahead, Jack Thompson. This is John Thompson with Hodges' First U.S. Army in Germany. The area is early. Just a few minutes ago, we heard from the German radio that Grand Admiral Donitz had ordered all German soldiers to cease fighting. That means both against the Americans, British, and French, as well as the Russians. It's the kind of news we've all been waiting for, but it leaves everyone seriously tough. By here, I mean the headquarters of the 1st U.S. Army. The soldiers out on the line, or what's left of the front, down in the 3rd Army sector probably don't know the news yet. Nor do we know here whether the Allied governments have officially proclaimed VE Day. But it really doesn't matter whether the proclamation is issued or not. The war is over when the Germans stop fighting. 
The actual news hasn't had a chance to circulate around even the headquarters very much. Soldiers are busy with the manifold administrative details of the headquarters, which go on even when it has ceased to be operational. The German civilians of this town, too, have not heard it yet, as far as I could judge by a hasty check outside on the street. They are hurrying along with their shopping baskets. The girls occasionally turn to look at the soldiers, and the soldiers, as they always do, stare at the girls if they're pretty. It is somewhat flat to the men over here, for they've been waiting for VE Day for so long. And in the last month, it has been apparent that the war would end at any moment. The different armies and army groups of the Germans started surrendering, and as the days passed and more prisoners came in, the feeling of anti-climax grew and grew. Take PFC Donald Meyer of Reading, Ohio. He is a member of the headquarters security guard, and his post is outside the question where we have our secret warm Meyer heard it only a few minutes after I did, and he said, It sure is good news, but it won't do me much, Ted. I'm tired of study for the CBI. I'm not old enough to get out of the Army. Lieutenant Robert Kahn of Seattle, Washington, who was acting as the first time his public relations officer, smiled broadly when the word came in. His reaction was also on the sober side. Said Lieutenant Kahn, that's very good, but there's a lot more to be done on the other side. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Redding of Chicago, press officer for the 12th Army Group, heard the news as he walked into the press room. Jack's reaction was a laugh, because the German radio had announced the cessation of hostilities before the official news came from the Allies. The jury's even scooped us on the last story, laughed the colonel. As for me, I was walking in the press room door, carrying a case of cognac and getting ready for the party the press is giving General Courtney H. Hodges and his first family staff. Even that good news was not enough to make my arms relax their control of the press's box. A strange way to hear the news that this war we've been covering for so long is over. Actually, there still may be some fighting here and there. The Wehrmacht, in a few places, has been reported fighting SS troops. And it may not be possible for Admiral Donut's surrender order to reach all of his soldiers simultaneously, particularly on the Russian front. But these will be small, sporadic actions, and I doubt if they will involve any Allied soldiers. So to all intents and purposes, the long, long European war has finally ended with a crushing victory for the Western Allies in Russia, a victory won in the West largely by American troops and materiel. They will be celebrating tonight. The soldiers will be having a few drinks if they can liberate some cognac. And the displaced persons, the ex-German slaves, will be whooping it up. But foremost in the minds of the Americans here, they will be constantly the sobering reminder that the war against the Japanese still goes on. Victory in Europe is here. The war is over. But some of these troops will be readied for shipment to the Pacific Theater. This is John Thompson now returning you to neutral in the United States. Radio Flensburg, a German station, quoted the German Foreign Minister von Krosig as announcing that the German High Command accepts unconditional surrender. The Federal Communications Commission, which recorded the broadcast, quotes von Krosig as saying this, German men and women, the High Command of the Armed Forces has today, at the order of Grand Admiral Dönitz, declared unconditional surrender of all fighting German troops. As leading minister of the Reich government, which the Admiral of the fleet has appointed for dealing with war tasks, I turn at this tragic moment of our history to the German nation. After a heroic fight of almost six years of incomparable hardness, Germany has succumbed to the overwhelming power of her enemies. The German foreign minister went on to continue the war would only mean senseless bloodshed and futile disintegration. The government, which has a feeling of responsibility for the future of its nation, was compelled to act on the collapse of all physical and material forces and to demand of the enemy the cessation of hostilities. Those are the words of the German foreign minister, Count Schwerin von Krosig, to the German people, telling them that the war is all over in Europe. 
An official proclamation is expected to be issued at 12 o'clock noon, Eastern War Time. Prime Minister Churchill held a full meeting of the British Cabinet at 10 Downing Street this morning. King George VI, who will make a broadcast on the night of VE Day, has returned to Buckingham Palace in London from Windsor Castle, accompanied by Queen Elizabeth, and is standing by awaiting developments. The trend of events pointing toward a VAE Day announcement today started earlier this morning with a German report that all troops in Norway had surrendered. And here's an item that has just come in. London went wild at the news. Crowds jammed Piccadilly Circus. Smiling throngs poured out of subways and lined the streets. Cheers went up in New York, too, and papers showered down from skyscrapers. And here's an ironic note. Germany, which began the war with a ruthless attack upon Poland, followed by successive aggressions and brutality in internment camps, surrendered with an appeal to the victors for mercy toward the German people and armed forces. More news in just a moment. Ladies, you always want your table linens to be starched, crisp, pure white. And today, when you're using paper napkins to save time, work, laundry bills, don't think they can't be crisp, fresh, starch-looking, too. They can if you discover the whiter, crisper, fresher paper napkins, H-U-D-S-O-N, Hudson. Hudson paper napkins are gleaming white, pure white, like fine linens. And they're crisp, starch-looking. You'll be proud to use them with your finest silver and tableware. And they're stronger, too. 64% stronger by actual laboratory tests. Hence, they won't tear easily, but will last through the entire meal. And they're pure, wholesome, sanitary. Safe to use with foods, for they're made of clean, fresh wood pulp and processed by Hudson from tree to package. So get Hudson paper napkins in the pink and blue package. Use them at regular meals when you entertain. 80 Hudson paper napkins cost only a few pennies. And now, back to the news. In the Pacific, Australian and Dutch troops are pushing toward the oil fields on Tarakan Island in the Dutch East Indies. They've already seized a dominating hill in the center of Tarakan town, although the town itself is not in allied hands. The oil fields are just to the east of the city, and they're burning furiously from Japanese demolitions and bombardments from allied destroyers offshore. Two other Australian columns have captured the Tarakan airfield, and Australian engineers are repairing it for quick use by our planes. Meanwhile, General MacArthur has added another 11,000 dead Japs to the list of enemy casualties in the Philippines campaign. Most of this new bag of enemy dead was scored on Luzon Island, where American troops have been pushing beyond captured Baguio toward the northern Cagayan Plain. That's where most of the remaining Japs on Luzon are concentrated. There's no late news of the ground fighting in Okinawa since front dispatches reported the repulse of a furious Japanese counterattack north of Naha. This was the first large-scale Jap action since the Americans landed on Okinawa. About 3,000 of them stormed out of hidden caves and pillboxes, backed by a really heavy artillery bombardment. The Jap guns must have poured about 16,000 shells into our lines. However, the Jap effort was turned back by an even heavier load of firepower from our forces. About 50 American superfortresses made another attack today on those Jap suicide plane takeoff fields on Kyushu, following up a powerful sweep by lighter planes over Japan's inner sea lanes. Land-based Navy planes, possibly taking off from Okinawa, turned 20 Jap merchant ships into a mass of wreckage in the straits between Kyushu and Korea and in the Yellow Sea off western Korea. These are the sea lanes which connect Japan with her continental possessions. They're also the ones which support Japan's huge armies holding a grip on so much of China. Incidentally, that grip, though still powerful, has been loosened another notch. Chinese forces in western Hunan province have shattered the left wing of a Japanese offensive aimed at the American air base city of Chi Kiang. 
The Chinese mounted their counterattack with four separate columns against the enemy's left wing. The entire Japanese 217th Regiment and 34th Division are reported to have been wiped out. From Calcutta comes a report on the British liberation of about 1,000 Allied prisoners at captured Rangoon, Burma, and some details on the harsh treatment many of them received. About 400 of the prisoners were Americans, most of them members of the Air Force, and they reveal how the Japs beat and starved them every time B-29 superfortresses raided Japan. Some of the Americans have arrived in Calcutta and are under treatment in a hospital. I'll be back in just a moment with a brief summary of the news. But first, all you mothers with young children, please listen. When your youngsters spill milk on the table or on themselves, you want a paper napkin that's extra absorbent so you can clean it up easily and quickly. And that's why I urge you to switch to Hudson paper napkins. They're heavier, 64% stronger by actual laboratory tests. Thus, they absorb far more moisture. They're ultra soft, too, and pure gleaming white. What's more, they're wholesome, sanitary, safe to use even on babies' delicate skin. And here's why. Hudson paper napkins are made of only the finest, pure, fresh wood pulp from the far-off woods of Maine. And they're processed by Hudson from tree to package. So always insist upon this top-quality brand in the attractive pink and blue package. Today at your grocer's, get H-U-D-S-O-N, Hudson paper napkins. Hudson paper napkins cost only a few pennies. And now, a brief summary of the news. This is VE Day. Germany has surrendered unconditionally. In the Pacific, our troops are gaining on Luzon, and the Australians are going on Tarakan. Here at home, crowds are celebrating VE Day. Here is an item just come in. German-controlled Prague Radio broadcast a statement this afternoon that the German commander in Czechoslovakia has not recognized Admiral Dönitz's surrender. And that's the news to this moment. Here is an important announcement for telephone subscribers. Please do not use the phones for unnecessary calls as central switchboards are tied up and important calls are not going through. Therefore, please do not use the phones. This program was brought to you by the Hudson Pulp and Paper Corporation, makers of fine paper products for the home. Hudson paper napkins, towels, and Hudson tissue. And now until 12.30 this afternoon, this is Henry Gladstone wishing you all a very pleasant morning. Our next complete news broadcast will be at 11 o'clock with Prescott Robinson. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. It's love on a two-day pass. When the shy G.I. with the gleam in his eye... Meets the lovely miss with the heart-stopping kiss. In MGM's The Clock. Starring Judy Garland. And the lad you loved is Private Hargrove, Robert Walker. See The Clock, plus a great in-person show featuring Jane Froman, Willie Howard, and George Paxton and his orchestra. World premiere now at the Capitol Theater. W.O.R. New York. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? We are speaking to you now from the floor of the New York Curb Exchange, 86 Trinity Place in downtown Manhattan, where the news of VE Day has just been received a short while ago. This news was announced by General Eisenhower, but not confirmed by either of the three major powers. However, it seems fairly official right now that VE Day is with us. In this mammoth hall, where our mutual microphones are set up, Traders are going about their business as usual, but as I look around at the different faces, I can see various expressions of emotion. Some are overjoyed, others just devoutly thankful that the war is over in Europe, but all seem to realize that there is still a big job ahead of us before final victory is achieved. At this present moment, a prayer is being read from the stage of the New York Curb Exchange by Dr. Frederick S. Fleming, rector of Trinity Church, after which... 
a few words will be heard from Mr. Edward Doyle, Director of Publicity, and Mr. Edmund Ponsner, President of the New York Curb Exchange. At this present moment, everything is quiet here. A few moments ago, everything was all hustle and bustle at the New York Curb Exchange. Traders were running around like mad. The various lights on the call boards were flashing on and on, and there was seen to be a great deal of elation. People are going about their business, as I say, as usual, and going ahead, realizing that there's still an awful lot to be done. I think in the background, you can hear Dr. Fleming's prayer read. I'm pausing for just a moment so that you can hear the prayer itself. I'm afraid it isn't quite loud enough for you to hear, so I'll just keep on describing this scene. As I look about this mammoth hall, out the windows, I can see paper fluttering down the canyons of Broadway. Everybody is looking out of the window, and everybody seems to be waving and cheering. However, we can't hear it in here because, as I say, the windows are closed here, and business is going on as usual. The prayer is still going on, and in a few moments, I'm going to try and get Mr. Edward Doyle up to our microphone here. Mr. Doyle, do you mind saying a few words to our mutual listeners here, sir, about this uh, great day, VE Day, which seems to be with us right now? Uh, thank you, Bob. Uh, it's a great day for us all, and we should all thank God and pray that we'll soon be over in the Pacific and have our boys back home again. Well, that's a very fine sentiment, sir. I certainly thank you for coming up to our microphone. By the way, how do you think that uh, VE Day will affect uh, transactions down here on the New York Curb Exchange. Do you think that business will go on as usual today, or do you think that uh, there will be a holiday or people will get off and sort of celebrate a little bit? Or do, they, do you think that they will realize that uh, the best thing to do is just to stick to the job? What do you think, sir? I believe we uh, will carry on business the same as usual today. I see. This prayer, sir, is being read, I understand, by Dr. Fleming of Trinity Church. Is that right? Uh, Dr. Frederick Fleming uh, of Trinity Church was kind enough to come over this morning and lead us in prayer. I see. It's a gesture, I think, uh, it's, I... Uh, especially... Uh, especially appropriate right now, yes, sir. Time, yes. yes, sir. And uh, just before we came on the air, ladies and gentlemen, the mammoth brass bell rang, summoning people to the uh, curb exchange and telling them that uh, the curb exchange was in session at that time and also calling them to this moment of devotion which is being read now by Dr. Fleming. As I say, there is not very much activity at this present moment, but I think in just a moment, as soon as this prayer is over, we'll be able to give you some of the atmosphere of the New York curb exchange. As I walk along here, I'm passing through the various trading posts and walking over to the main trading post here, right in the center. I'm just about in the center of the New York Curve Exchange at this moment. Here is a gentleman here. I want to ask him a few questions. What is your name, please, sir? Charles Leishner. Mr. Leishner, and uh, what firm are you connected with, sir? Ernst & Company. Ernst & Company. Mm -hmm. How does this uh, news of VE Day hit you, sir? I don't know. I can't talk. <laughs> you can't talk. What are your emotions, sir? Uh, just choked up, sort of. Just choked up, sort of. Yeah. I think that's the... Uh, sentiments of most of the people here. They so. feel very happy about uh, VE Day being here, but they also realize that, well, the sacrifices that our boys have made on some of them who will never come back. That's right. 
Thank you very much, sir. And uh, may I speak to this gentleman here, sir? <laughs> well, come on up and say a few words. Yeah. Uh, what is your name, please, sir? Jack Feinstein. Jack Feinstein. Mm. And you're connected with uh, Gilligan Will & Company, is that right, sir? That's right. And uh, when did you hear the news of VE Day? As I came in, about 20 minutes of 10. 20 minutes of 10? Mm. And how did you feel when you heard it? Well, just the lightness. That I was too speechless for words. I see. It stunned me. Well, that's a very uh, yeah. natural all reaction. Choked, I don't know what to say. I see. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, sir. And now I want to see if I can speak to somebody else over here. Here's a gentleman over here. May I have a few words from you, sir? What is your name, please? My name is Irving Reiner. Mr. Reiner, are you uh, a regular member down here on the yes, New York Curve? Yes, I am. Yes. How do you feel about the great news of VE Day? Well, I feel very, very happy, and I hope it'll bring peace forever after. That's all I can say. Well, thank you very much, sir. One minute. One minute. And, oh, yes, we have Mr. Edwin Posner, president of the New York Curb Exchange. And, Mr. Posner, I want to have your reactions to VE Day. Well, I think that we uh, have received it with a feeling of suppressed excitement, exaltation, and humility, and uh, with a realization that only half our job is done. I see. Well, thank you very much, sir. And now, I see that our time is just about up here, ladies and gentlemen. We have been speaking to you from the floor of the New York Curb Exchange, 86 Trinity Place, and this is Bob Martin returning you now to our studios. And now for a description of activities in Times Square, we take you to the marquee of the Hotel Astor. This is Bob Dixon speaking to you from the marquee of the Hotel Astor in Times Square in New York City. The marquee of the Hotel Astor, of course, faces directly east, approximately in the center of Times Square, and we have a clear vantage point in which we can see both left and right from the marquee. Excitement is rampant here in Times Square today, and no wonder. Many people, of course, are celebrating, but uh, we can't hardly blame them for that. To our right, in front of the Times Building, a large crowd is gathering. It seems to be growing larger by the minute. A lot of people are up there watching the various bulletins which are being posted upon the windows. And we can see people looking from windows of buildings, from the Times Building. They're sitting on the ledge immediately overhead of where the uh, news sign used to go around the building. To the left, way up as far as Duffy Square, the traffic is becoming just a bit congested due to the fact that so many people are walking across the street and walking on the sidewalks. Servicemen in uniform and service women in uniform immediately below us here on the marquee of the Hotel Astor are looking exceedingly joyful indeed, and yet facing the situation with rather a serious note. There aren't too many smiles on them, but they seem to be relieved that the first half is over. As we said before, the traffic is becoming a little bit congested. The taxi cabs are lining up. The police are keeping them moving rather well, we think, in view of the existing conditions. Trolley cars, of course, are hampering the movement of both the pedestrians and also the taxi cabs and private cars as they go by. This, this crowd, which uh, is gathering in front of the Times Building and on the sides of the Times Building, has now extended up to the replica of the Statue of Liberty, the 55-foot miniature which was erected in Times Square, the last Warlone Drive, the sixth, I believe. And uh, Path A newsmen and also uh, men from the Army Services, the newsmen from the Army Services, cameramen, are setting up their cameras in front of the Statue of Liberty at the moment and taking pictures of the crowd as it gathers in front of the Times Building. There are many people uh, on the sidewalks in, not in uniform, people apparently who have come out from their businesses at the moment and are watching the uh, progress of uh, the bulletins and the Times building and crowding closer and closer to get a clear view of what each bulletin says. Crosstown traffic is, is progressing rather well in face of the conditions which are at the moment uh, becoming a little bit excitable. 
police are doing rather a remarkable job in keeping both the people and the traffic moving in orderly directions. Ticker tape is floating down from windows, uh, the highest windows in the buildings that we can see, floating gradually down like snow on the people walking in the streets below. There has been a little bit construction work, uh, I think the fixing of electric mains here in the street just below us, and that's been held up temporarily because of the fact that the traffic must move and the workmen are also standing by and watching the proceedings as they go along. In front of the Hotel Claridge, which is immediately across the street and slightly to the right of us, long strips of paper are hanging from the various signs. And now the long strip of paper is falling down on the crowd and people are uh, frantically tearing it away from their shoulders. It's a little bit uh, unusual to have a, a large paper come floating down upon your head and not know exactly what it is. The crowd is, is rapidly getting larger in front of the Statue of Liberty and also in front of the Times building. People are coming from every direction to join the crowd and we can hear outbursts uh, uh, of cheers as they view the various bulletins which are put up. The ticker tape is becoming a little bit thicker now. We can see down Broadway approximately as far as 41st to 40th Street and the uh, ticker tape floating in the air, some of it pink, other white, and some yellow, makes rather a pretty spectacle as the sun shines through it coming down into Times Square. It's slightly hazy today, but uh, the, the uh, view that we have from our vantage point here is excellent. As we said before, the first half of this particular campaign is over. There's a great job to be done yet, and people are not uh, celebrating quite as, as much as you might expect. We have just a minute more, and I'd like to explain now that the traffic is really tying up down here. However, the police are uh, apparently gathering. I imagine they've been alerted for this particular occasion, and they are gathering in larger numbers and are able to keep most of the traffic moving. Of course, the pedestrians are walking all around the streets and apparently paying no attention to, uh, no attention to the traffic as it goes by at all, uh, taking very good care of themselves, however, not to be struck by any traffic which is moving in their particular direction. The crowd down around the Times building is very large now. Of course, that includes uh, uh, 42nd and 43rd Streets, and I imagine it's just a little bit difficult to get through. The uh, crowd in front of the Statue of Liberty is very large now, and I think that's about all we can tell you from Times Square at the moment. And this uh, will send you back now to our studios. This is Dave Driscoll speaking from the Mutual Newsroom overlooking 7th Avenue and Broadway a few blocks below the Hotel Astor, from which point you've heard a description of the scene there. Down on the streets, which are covered with uh, white paper, uh, almost like we'd had a heavy snowfall, people are all moving slowly up toward uh, Times Square, which will be a uh, mecca, no doubt, for later in the afternoon. Down to our left, the great paper snowstorm that uh, began within a few seconds after the announcement was made on the air uh, has subsided somewhat, but people are still throwing paper out uh, across the way from us in small streams. Over in the river, I don't think you can hear it in the background because of the din of noise in the newsroom. Uh, you can, we can hear a din of whistles from every craft in the harbor, in the Hudson River and down in the lower bay. Up to our right, the paper snowstorm starts again. And one thing should be remembered, uh, paper is necessary to the war effort. So when a little fun has been had, let's stop throwing the paper. And that's a word of admonition for our New York listeners. I don't know whether if I hold this microphone out, you can hear the sound of the whistles or not. Uh, at any rate, there's a rumble of whistles as we can hear them here. 
And still the paper comes down. Should be remembered, as we said, that uh, paper is very necessary and thousands of pages of newspaper will never be read because it is being tossed into the streets. We've brought you a description of uh, the spontaneous outburst in New York from the curb exchange in lower Manhattan in the financial district from Times Square, the uh, hub of New York and the crossroads of the world, and from this point overlooking Broadway and 7th Avenue just below Times Square. Undoubtedly all over the nation similar demonstrations are uh, being made by uh, other communities. Word has come through unofficially that uh, the formal announcement of the surrender will not be made until later, as we've told you earlier, and there's some word that it may not be heard until uh, afternoon Eastern wartime. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Keep tuned to WOR for all late news developments, as well as special broadcasts descriptive of activities throughout the city. The time is now... The Bamberger Broadcasting Service, WOR, New York. 10.30, and here's Bill Soder to say... Good morning. And I can say good morning in a way in which I've never been able to say it before. Because I suppose this is the most tremendous moment in history. And I hope that good morning will continue and continue so that we can have a series of good mornings. The news is so immediate and coming in so rapidly from all quarters that we have decided not to have my wife's record, Bessie Beatty's, coming in from San Francisco because that would, of course, be a day or two late. So we will probably be interrupted and we have as guests this morning Martha Graham and Sidney Mosley. And I think between us, we will probably be able to discuss the things of the moment. And I am sorry about Betty, but tomorrow, of course, I hope she will come in as usual. Uh, Mr. Mosley, we'll speak to Mr. Mosley first, shall we? Martha Graham? Yes, please do. Um, tell us what, if it's possible, I mean, to express your feelings. I know one cannot do it. You know, I feel, if I may just digress for, for a moment, I feel like the soldier who was asked on Saturday, last Saturday week what his feelings were when, he, when the false report came in. And he said, how can I say anything to a man? I mean, there's only one being who understands me, and that's God. And I think he was quite right. I, I think he was. Uh, today... Uh, one feels rather somber, I do. Of course, you've heard over the air just now the rejoicings which are taking place in New York and other parts of the country. That's very natural. We've been under a strain for a time. I think today is a day of rejoicing and a day of prayer and a day in which we must not forget that there's a war still to be fought in Japan, but it's also a day for retrospection. From now on, we've got to do a lot of thinking about what happened if we're to learn anything from the great sacrifice in blood, sweat and tears which we've made. We've got to go back and ask ourselves why this war took place, what we've got to do to prevent it from recurring, what lessons we've learned. It's no good rejoicing and going crazy and then uh, getting back onto the old pattern. And therefore today I must say that 
I feel probably more grave than I've been for a long time. In the first place, the war in Europe is not over. The real war, the war to combat suffering, the war to prevent chaos, a chaos which might finally achieve the uh, designs of Hitler. He said he was going to bring down the world with him. He's failed. He as himself has been brought down. But the state of Europe is such today that we've got to concentrate on putting Europe back on its feet. And that is a point which we cannot afford to forget. Uh, the stories that I've been hearing from Europe are almost incredible. The stories of uh, Germany, the conditions inside Germany, are much worse than we've been led to believe. Now, the average man will say, well, let Germany go to perdition. But we're unable to do that. We are part of the pattern over there. We, the Allies, are to take possession of Germany. And uh, the responsibility of the reconstruction in Germany will be ours. Our own Allied headquarters will be set up there. And no doubt, they will try hard to show what democracy is capable of achieving in the rebuilding of Germany. And that is the un un amazing thing, that despite the punishment, the guilt of Germany, we may have to start on her first in putting her back on her feet. Well, even so, she will have suffered, and there's not the slightest doubt about it, that this generation of Germany, the next and the next, will remember, even as they look around, that war doesn't pay. But we've also got to do a lot of remembering. We've got to avoid the unpreparedness. We've got to avoid the Munich. We've got to avoid the lack of understanding between nations. I am very interested indeed in that one point, the fact that neither America nor Britain knew sufficiently of one another, that they were ill-informed, that neither Washington nor London made preparations for the peoples of either country to understand what their problems were. And it was only long after war started that America began to hear of the true problems which had faced Britain, and vice versa. What are we going to do about that? Are we going to shut down at once like an oysters after this is all over and rejoice? No, there's plenty of work to be done. And that is one of the thoughts that occurs to me this morning as some people rejoice, as some people sit tearful in memories of their lost ones. Those of us who still think of the war ahead in Japan and those of us who think of the greater tasks ahead to rebuild a better and happier world, a world which will be safe from future aggression. Sidney, how deeply do you feel that the seeds of Nazism have been sown in the youth of Germany? Well, I think very deeply, although uh, even there, I think that there were some youths who saw through it. There were some, uh, I, I'm one of those who believe that there is a nucleus, a very small nucleus inside Germany who have been compelled to go along with Nazism. It's not so easy when you get a, a, a government of uh, hooligans with the organization they had. It's very difficult to kick against them. No doubt that the entire German nation will have to suffer, and rightly so. One of the big jobs we've got to do, which we haven't started to do even now, is the punishment of the tremendous number of Nazi criminals. We've spoken a lot about it, but we have no plans. We have no plans for the immediate punishment of vast numbers. I spoke to a German a little while ago, and he said 
if you gave me the opportunity of trying those Nazi criminals, he said, I would dispose of a half a million. When he spoke about disposing of them, he meant that he would deal with them summarily. Those are the people who must, be, uh, must, be, must pay for the terrible deeds committed inside Germany. As for the rest, the youngsters, the youngsters, after all, and Germans are being born every day, and there are Germans, there are Germans who are prepared to teach them, to show them the light. I believe we can deal with that in time. It's going to take some time. But primarily, primarily the job is to let Germany know that at any rate the English-speaking nations are prepared for any tricks they may try to play again. You know, I read the other day, I mean, you were speaking just now about what we will have to do to rehabilitate even Germany itself. And as far as I can rem remember it, the Russians who have suffered were doing just that very thing already when they were coming into the German villages. It sounded so marvelous to me that these people should be doing that. Of course, they have to do it. Surely. There's no question about that. Yes, and, uh, and uh, the, the Russians, the Russians uh, deny that they're bloodthirsty about it. They certainly have uh, scores to uh, pay, and they will pay them. Uh, they have uh, undoubtedly treated their Nazi prisoners a little more realistically than we have over here. And it's time now, at any rate, that we've had the excuse that we've been pretty soft with these Nazi criminals because we were afraid of what they might do in turn to our prisoners over the other side. But now I think we ought to get very tough because among those Nazi criminals over here are men who are responsible for some of the bloody deeds we've been reading about. That is one form of education. In fact, uh, those are, I know uh, Germany fairly well, but those who know it even better uh, will tell you uh, that one of the ways to teach the German is to show that he who is master and to be tough and to make them realize that crime doesn't pay. That is a job that we've got to do in the setting up of this new League of Nations. And uh, primarily, again, I say that there must be a fundamental understanding, a, a, a clear understanding between Britain and America on this point. And uh, with such a combination, we can be certain that that can never happen again. Martha Graham, is it possible for me, or at least is it reasonable for me to ask you what you feel just at the present time? I mean, probably you may answer just like that soldier. Only God can understand you. But it'd be nice to get an expression of your opinion. Well, I agree with Mr. Mosley. It's a time for grave consideration and thought and a dedication of oneself to these tremendous things that are facing us. Of course, my thoughts turn, I suppose everyone's thoughts turn to some specific people, some specific person, he or she knows, in the midst of all of this. I, my thought turns to the men who are fighting in Europe, who have been in my company. The man, Lieutenant Z David Zelmer, who returned yesterday from his 50 missions over Japan. Uh, and I'm wondering what they think at this time. And the whole, I know that we all have to, to work harder with more dedication than we've ever done before. I know when the Russians, the story came through, that when the Russians moved in again into conquered places, places that the Germans had occupied in Russia, they started an educational program at once for the children in those, in those Russian towns. They picked the children up off the streets, and within 10 days, they had those children in a dance class 
so that they could be organized, could be disciplined, and could have, have some outlet for their emotional energies at that time. And I think that's quite an amazing thing, because in the midst of of devastation, of grief, and war, that this thing should touch. Now, I mustn't take time, because I know but there are much do, more immediate do, things. Because after so all, we have to... We, I'll we, turn we, you back, Mr. Mosley. Well, we'll well, there's a lot to be said. We yes. can go on talking for hours. There's too on much. The, on what is happening you. today, what is likely to happen tomorrow, and in the far future. Sidney Mosley, Martha Graham and I were having a talk the other day, and she was uh, speaking about some of the young men who had been in her company and who are now at the front. I think that story about the paratrooper, tell us that, Martha Graham, will you? Well, there's because one boy, there's one man who's jumped in every invasion. That is, he's, he's just out of the hospital. His name is David Stewart. And uh, he's a great big boy, but his one, of course, worry when he came out of the hospital was that he'd never dance again. I think he will. We hope he will. He's still mm -hmm. a little lame. Uh -huh. But I hope he will. But he has... But he has a courage, an iron, a discipline, which sometimes the arts do give one. Surely. And uh, the marvels of surgery today. I know. That's ought to be a consolation thing. to everybody who has had somebody wounded. Yes. They will be whole again. Yes, that's the, that's yes. the really encouraging thing. Yes. Well, as, as most of our listeners know, Mutual is doing its best, and WOR, to make a complete coverage of this... V.E. Day. Now, we've heard just before this program went on the air from Times Square and from the Curb Exchange and also Dave Driscoll from this particular building. But right now, uh, we're going to go to Washington for a report by Walter Compton. He is Mutual's reporter in Washington. And to hear from Walter, we're going to take our listeners to Washington. House this morning, ladies and gentlemen, about 100 to 150 news people over there waiting anxiously for some report from the White House on the surrender of the German nation to all of the Allies. At about 10.15 this morning, we were notified that uh, press, secret, press and Radio Secretary Jonathan Daniels would have a conference, and so everyone trooped into the, the office of Mr. Daniels. He was wearing a brown suit. He didn't look any more excited than he usually does. He's rather an imperturbable chap. He waited till we all got into the room, and then uh, very calmly he said, all I have for you this morning, gentlemen, is a proclamation from the President of the United States. Smiling broadly as everyone jumped, he said, uh, there will be National Rehabilitation Week on the 2nd of June. That was the strength of the proclamation. However, the newsman did question Mr. Daniels. He said that the White House, in concerning the surrender, had nothing to announce at this time regarding the situation in Europe. He said that President Truman has planned, as was announced a week ago, to make a radio broadcast to the nation in the event of the cessation of hostilities. He didn't go any further than that. Now, shortly before Daniel's talk with the reporters, he conferred with uh, Elmer Davis, who was the director of the Office of War Information. Mr. Davis said that he had come to the White House to get some documents that he would need in his business. He wouldn't uh, identify the documents. It seemed, however, that it was a fair assumption to make that they included some sort of textual matter to be broadcast to the world by OWI once VE Day is proclaimed officially. As to the new peace reports from abroad, Daniels confined himself to the statement that the fact is that there is no official announcement at the White House at this moment. And for your information, the people of Washington and the District of Columbia are accepting that as gospel. In contrast to many another spot in this nation, there is no excitement in Washington to speak of. F Street and 14th Street, our major corner in town, is reported to be completely quiet. 
There is no excitement in Washington, and doubtless there will be none. We've already had one VE day, a Saturday a week ago. Possibly we're a little cured here. At any rate, for the moment, there is no further news from the White House. There is no proclamation stated by the president or none is scheduled for the moment. We take you now to San Francisco. From the Mutual Newsroom in San Francisco, we bring you important late developments on the situation in Germany, and we have with us Mr. Royal Arch Gunnison of our reporting staff, who has prepared some special information taken from his observations as a reporter in the Pacific. We bring you now Royal Arch Gunnison. Yes, indeed, this is the day, and here we are in the middle of Monday, May 7, and what does that mean? The first thing that flashes into my mind as this historic moment hits the world is that it was May 7, 1942, that our men, our American troops, surrendered to the Japs on the island of Corregidor. And that carries me right on to what this surrender is going to mean to the war in the Far East, to the American troops, sailors, airmen, to the Chinese, and to the Japs. In the first place, I'm sure the boys in the Pacific and in China, Burma, won't react too violently, and that may seem strange for me to say. But if I know the boys with whom I've been making landings and fighting through the jungles and over the Jap beaches, the reaction is going to be something like this. Okay, they'll say, okay, leave us get on with the Japs. I just hope the folks at home don't think the war has ended now that Hitler's folded. And it's been the constant fear of the boys out there that come VE Day here at home, we will think the war is over and that the Japs are going to be easy one-handed to clean up. Therefore, they feel the war might drag on and on and they'll never get home. To be sure, this is a great day. To be sure, it means the end of the greatest slaughter of human life ever carried out in the world's history in Europe or anywhere else. But that slaughter is still going on in East Asia. Americans everywhere here at home have gone wild, and there's only one day that will find a greater celebration, that's, and that day, of course, is going to be on the day we hear the announcement that MacArthur and Nimitz have taken over the Japs. And now for one or two more points, remember the end of the fighting in Europe does not mean that everyone's husband and son and brother will be coming home. I know you've heard this before, but there's been much confusion over the point. Now the transfer of troops across America and down through the Suez Canal will begin to take place, and this takes time. And what's to be expected in the Far East from Japan as a result of this announcement? Well, let me tell you what we know of the Jap plans for this fold-up of the Germans. In the first place, it's been the Japanese feeling for at least two years that we Americans and the British are going to be so tired out that we'll be willing to accept a deal, some, some kind of conditional surrender from the Japs. They're hoping that we might be so tired of war that we'd be willing to leave certain territories still in Japan's just to have the war end now. And are they going to be surprised? Well, that's why it's likely that within a few weeks or even less, the Japs will make some kind of a peace offer to the United States, just as they've been making to the Chinese. But what the Japs are most worried about today, just as sure as you and I are celebrating the German surrender and VE Day, is that the Russians are now going to turn on the Japs. And, of course, that's the next big step that may be expected in the Far East. The Russians have constantly indicated to the Allied High Command as early as the Tehran Conference that come VE Day, they would then begin to give their full attention to what they have constantly and very reservedly called the crisis in the Far East. Well, here in San Francisco today, we have probably the largest array of top diplomats the world has ever had in one place when a world crisis has occurred. 
It's interesting to note that over the weekend, several of the foreign ministers have moved out either to return to their own countries or to Washington. The tip-off came to the diplomats on Saturday night. Some of them felt it was wise to stay here and finish up the plans for the World Security Organization. They felt the organization will be needed quickly, and it will, and that's why Eden and Statinius and Molotov have stuck close. It's possible now that the San Francisco Conference will speed up its work and the charter will be presented to the 49 governments just as fast as it's feasible for ratification. There's still a terrific amount of fighting to be done, and this point is stressed by every foreign minister and top official I've talked with since early morning when members of the mutual staff got on the phone and advised most of the leading delegates that the war was over. You'll be interested in the comments that we've had, and before long, we'll be able to bring you direct from this mutual booth right here in San Francisco, in the Veterans Building, many of these officials. Yes, indeed, this is the day, the day to begin the real blast against the final enemy, those bandy-legged little sons of the Son of Heaven. And this is Royal Arch Gunnison. Now for personal observations from Mr. Charles Hodges, whose many years of observation of international relations in Europe has made him one of the nation's foremost students, and he brings you some of these personal observations now. Charles Hodges. As statesmen see their handiwork, it's over in Europe. The Nazi foreign minister has told the German people that Hitler's new order is finished, that catastrophe has overtaken the Nazi dream of a thousand-year Reich over Europe, that the terms of surrender are harsh. This means that the Second World War is ending in the West, but it is only the military end. Now we come to the critical phase of the European battle, the securing of political victory. Everything depends on what's happened to the Germans under Hitlerism. I saw these Germans in 1932 divide into two armed camps of political fighters. The Berlin street corners ran blood as the Nazis and the communists slugged it out. The Social Democrats, on whom we counted for peace in our time, simply watched that fight for power. And that fight from street corner to chancellery devoured the Democratic Republic. Instead of Kaiserism, we had Hitlerism. I saw these Germans begin their Nazi march of death one year later, with Hitler in office and his Nazi gangsters burning the Reichstag, a bonfire of democracy for the new German Führer. I saw these Germans in 1936 come out in the open, Hitler pulled a drawer open in the imperial chancellery when the German generals protested his bold plan to seize the Rhineland. This went ahead because all Hitler offered then to shoot himself if the move failed. It did not fail, and rearmed Germany began its planned aggression on its neighbors. And I saw Nazified Germany defiant on the eve of Munich, that grim finale to our appeasement. Germany stood as an old Teutonic war host, reborn under Hitler in a new tribal loyalty. Here's the one thing that runs through Germany between World War I and World War II. It's the German acceptance of authority, the boss word that comes from above. Just remember this one thing. The German functions differently from us. That's why he's been all out for Hitler during six years of global war. It's not the ya-ya. It's the nine, the no, that makes Fritz tick. Eisenhower shows that he knows this. Montgomery and our own generals have barked the command that the Wehrmacht understands. It's up to us to put Allied authority across politically now. Give the German people the nine, the no, that makes them tick, tick our way. Our supreme command has hit its stride, and the Germans know it. This Second World War winds up far differently from World War I. 
the mighty Wehrmacht has collapsed on the soil of the German fatherland before the eyes of bomb-happy German civilians. They now know the full horror of the round-the-clock bombing that their own Luftwaffe started, but American and British air power have finished. There can be no myth of Allied trickery for another generation of Germans. There are no terms, just these two faithful words, unconditional surrender. These two words are the life insurance of civilization. Upon them, out here in San Francisco, depends the future of our own new world charter. This cleanup of the supreme aggressor clears the boards. For the defeat of Japan can be clinched within 12 months if the full force of the big three turns to the Pacific. We now can plan with European certainties and Pacific probabilities, but it also means something else. Every effort is going to be made in the next fortnight here at the United Nations Conference on International Organization to speed the framework for future world peace. This collapse of German resistance will resolve disputes at San Francisco. It's my opinion with dramatic rapidity. The world simply can't wait on diplomatic bickering here at San Francisco. There won't be a lost moment from this memorable day to the final signing of the Charter. There just isn't room for delay, as every foreign minister remaining here knows. From San Francisco, we've brought you comments by Royal Arch Benison and Charles Hodges. For continued developments in these important news hours, we take you now to New York. Mutual presents Cecil Brown, internationally known correspondent, reporter, and commentator. Mr. Brown. This is the day that so many people died to bring about. After almost six years of war, the German military machine is a beaten, destroyed thing. That fact has been evident for some time, but this is the official VE Day, Victory Day in Europe, after five years, eight months, and six days. The Germany that was to endure for a thousand years died after about 2,000 days of war. The joy of people all over the world is great, but it is somewhat restrained, too. People in Europe are tired, tired down to the very marrow of their bones. Many are hungry. Millions are without homes. In their eyes, you can see how many bombs came crashing down around them for so many years. In America, the joy is great, but it is not wild. It cannot be because almost all of us are very well aware that the war is not over. Too many Americans are in the Pacific Theater for Americans to have any idea that the war has ended. The Germans have done in Europe the kind of a job that they wanted to do. It's estimated that some 40 million people have been killed, wounded, or are missing in Europe. The United Nations have spent about $500 billion to fight and win this war. The Axis powers in Europe spent about half that amount. The money expenditure has been great but even greater has been the expenditure of manpower, not only of those who died, but the wreckage among the survivors. The fighting has stopped in Europe, but disease threatens so many of the people there. Their transition from war to peace will not be an easy job. Many are undernourished and subject to all kinds of diseases. The danger of epidemics is great, and the health services of the United Nations have a huge job before them. So have the organizations designed to get food to people all over Europe. This coming winter in Europe is expected to be the most severe, so far as food is concerned, that Europe has experienced since the war started in 1939. But the military problems are still tremendous. An estimated 10 million German soldiers are now prisoners. They are expected to remain in that status until a peace treaty is signed, 
but it may be many years before a formal peace treaty is signed. Those 10 million German soldiers become the charges of the United Nations. They have to be sorted out, distributed into various sections of Germany, or used for repair work in various countries of Europe. So did 60 million German civilians become the charges of the United Nations. For the problem of what to do with Germany now becomes an immediate task. It must be dealt with right away. Now that VE Day is here, the whole machinery for the occupation of Germany swings into operation. That occupation presents greater difficulties than have ever faced any occupying authorities. First off, it remains to be seen whether all German troops will obey the orders of Admiral Karl Dernitz to surrender. Of course, the German general and admiral who signed the papers for unconditional surrender said that all Germans and Germany would obey the terms of surrender. But the world is not going to be naive enough to take the word of the German nation or those who say they speak for it or of any German officers. The main job is the direct occupation of Germany. As you may know, Germany is going to be divided into four areas for occupation purposes. The Russians will have eastern Germany, the Americans will be in the south, the French in the Rhineland area, and the British in the north. Many understandings have to be reached among the big four on the occupation program. The machinery is not all ready. It has to be improvised from day to day. That is going to take great goodwill and understanding between the Americans, Russians, British, and French. Those problems are so great that it would be understandable if the joy over VE Day were somewhat restrained. For as tough as winning the war was, the task of winning the peace will be just as hard and quite as dangerous. Mutual has presented Cecil Brown, internationally known correspondent, reporter, and commentator. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. A transcription. Mighty fine homemade pie, it's fine, make a lemon pie this way. Folks will call for more, so just ask your store for mighty fine today. Mighty fine lemon pie filling makes real homemade lemon pies. W-O-R, New York, 11 a.m., B-U-L-O-V-A, Bulova Watch Time. Bulova, gift of a lifetime. It's 11 a.m., Monday, May 7th, and this is Prescott Robinson with 15 minutes of the latest news from the W-O-R newsroom, presented by the makers of Wilbert's famous no-rub floor wax. Well, it has been announced officially at Supreme Headquarters that Germany has surrendered unconditionally on all fronts and to all the allies, the United States, Great Britain, Soviet Russia, and France. We repeat, this was officially announced this morning at General Eisenhower's headquarters. The Germans signed the papers by which they laid down their arms at 19 minutes before 3 o'clock this morning French time in a little red schoolhouse at Reims, France. That's where General Ike has his headquarters. The document whereby Germany gave up the military fight it launched five years, eight months, and six days ago was signed by Colonel General Gustav Jodl, the German Army Chief of Staff. Lieutenant General Walter Bedell Smith, General Eisenhower's Chief of Staff, signed in behalf of the Allied High Command. General Ivan Susliparov signed for the Russians, and General Francois Severe for France. General Eisenhower was not present at the signing, but right after it was over, he received Jodl and the other German surrender delegate, General Admiral Hans Friedeborg. They were asked solemnly and sternly if they understood the terms that were being imposed on Germany and if they would be carried out by the Germans. They answered yes, and Jodl said, with this signature, the German people and armed forces 
are for better or worse delivered into the victor's hands. Here's how the news of Germany's unconditional surrender unfolded this morning. It began with the Danish broadcast that Norway had been surrendered unconditionally by the Nazis. Then the new German foreign minister, Ludwig Schwerin von Kresig, said in a broadcast to Germany that, quote, after almost six years' struggle, we have succumbed, end of quotation. Von Krosik said that Admiral Dönitz had ordered the unconditional surrender of all fighting German troops, including all Nazi U-boats. Then at 9.35 this morning, Eastern wartime, came the Associated Press flash from Reims, France, telling of the signature of the unconditional surrender at General Eisenhower's headquarters. Germany had given up to the Western Allies and to Russia. Although the fighting officially is over, the shooting apparently still is going on. It's the one sour note. For instance, the Nazi radio at Prague says the German commander in Czechoslovakia does not recognize the surrender by Admiral Dönitz and that he will fight on until his forces have obtained free passage out of the country. At last reports, the Americans were 15 miles from Prague, with the Russians about 65 miles away on the other side. It is entirely possible that the fighting there will continue for some days. German communications are so chaotic that the order from the high command to surrender may not be received immediately by many units in the field. Only last night, two German Alpine Army groups surrendered to the 6th Army in the south, two days after their high command ordered the ceasefire order on General Devers' front. The news of the German capitulation had not gotten to them before. The terms of the surrender imposed on Germany have not yet been announced, but the Nazis who began the war with a ruthless attack on Poland, followed by aggressions and brutalities which have dumbfounded the world, surrendered with pleas to the victors for mercy. In his broadcast to the Germans, the German surrender, Foreign Minister von Krisig said, nobody must deceive himself over the harshness of the conditions. We had to accept them. The Allied capitals have gone wild over the news and are awaiting the official announcement of VE Day. It is understood that President Truman, Prime Minister Churchill and Premier Stalin had been conferring by telephone. In London, the crowds are jamming Piccadilly Circus, and New York is staging one of its typical ticker tape celebrations. More about that in a moment. In Washington, President Truman was conferring with aides in his executive offices today when the Associated Press flashed that the Allies had officially announced the unconditional surrender of Germany. Newsmen rushed into the White House for a VE Day announcement. White House aides said they had nothing official to announce. OWI Director Elmer Davis said, when there is any official announcement, it will come from in there, pointing to the President's office. The British radio said telephone conversations are underway between Washington, London, and Moscow to arrange a simultaneous official proclamation of VE Day. Press Secretary Jonathan Daniels told a news conference that he had nothing to say about a VE Day proclamation. The White House, he said, has nothing official to announce now. We don't know when there will be an announcement. The announcement of complete victory over the Germans will come as an anticlimax to American doughboys who have seen the German army disintegrate. They are now asking themselves, where do we go from here? It is a strange ending to a strange war, an ending nobody could have quite visualized and without the dramatic conclusion most of us had pictured. Suddenly the war just melted away into nothingness and the guns were still. The war came to an end for the First Army some weeks ago. That is why VE Day will be little more than a symbol to troops who had seen victory in the making for days. It took no official announcement for them to realize it was all over. There is no enemy across no man's land to come forward with upraised hands in final surrender. Across the Mulder River are the Russians. There is no desolate battlefield and the doughboys are not in foxholes. They sat in the warm sun cleaning their battle-worn gear and weapons. There will be no wild celebrations among the troops. 
These men have seen too much death and suffering. They've seen this Nazi world come apart at the seams and its miserable people straggling along the roads of defeat, marked more plainly with signs of a fallen nation than any proclamation ever could. The Associated Press' detailed account of the formal signing of Germany's unconditional surrender to the Allies came directly from Edward Kennedy, chief of the AP staff on the Western Front. Kennedy's dispatch was transmitted via Paris from Reims, General Eisenhower's advance headquarters, to the London office of the AP and relayed from there to New York via AP's leased cable facilities. A reporter for 20 years, Kennedy now is chief of the AP staff on the Western Front. After two years with the British in Africa and Greece, he became head of the AP North African staff at Algiers in the spring of 1943 and directed the coverage of the Sicilian and Italian invasions. He has followed General Eisenhower's fortunes since the landings in North Africa. Kennedy, 39 and a native of Brooklyn, joined the Associated Press in 1932 and went abroad after three years on the Washington staff. He reported the Spanish Civil War, later worked in Rome, and covered Hitler's entry into the Sudetenland. Mischief is liable to be caused by a number of German radio stations claiming to broadcast from areas surrendered to the Allies who still continue to mix freely Nazi propaganda with instructions to obey the Allied authorities. Admiral Karl Dönitz's principal transmitters are describing themselves as Flensburg Radio, Flensburg being a town just south of the Danish-German border, and their communiques, like those from Wilhelmshaven and the German forces station, refer to the recent surrender to Field Marshal Sir Bernard Montgomery consistently as a truce implying that there is a cessation of hostilities by mutual agreement. The British Broadcasting Company has already attacked this distortion of the facts in its German transmission, yet it continues. The same transmitters, as well as some Austrian ones, try to give the impression that the Allies are leaving the maintenance of public order in the hands of the Nazi authorities. The Nazi Gauleiter of Salzburg, SS General Dr. Gustav Scheel, in a broadcast claiming to come from the Salzburg radio last night, after announcing the Allied occupation of Salzburg and the coming into effect of a truce in the whole Gau, instructed the Volkssturm and police to maintain order under the competent administrative authorities. Finally, the station's concern continue the familiar anti-Bolshevik propaganda of the Nazis' Flensburg radio, and Fortress Holland transmits German communiques about the fighting against the Russians. The American cops on the beat in Germany after the war not only will be GIs, but pilots and air crews as well. From the way things are shaping up at the 8th and 9th Air Force headquarters, it looks as though a great many airmen will be held over long after VE Day, perhaps as many as 100,000 ground crewmen alone. Presumably their first duty will be to patrol Germany from the air, and if everything continues quiet, it is likely that many of the big bombers will become cargo cruisers and transports. Incidentally, Mayor F.H. LaGuardia invites all New Yorkers to a special ceremony commemorating victory in Europe to be held in Central Park Mall today beginning at 5 p.m. with hourly programs until 10 o'clock. Religious leaders and choirs, the Philharmonic and City Symphony Orchestras, Army, Navy, and Coast Guard bands and chorals are taking part. Similar gatherings will be held at the borough halls. Attend the ceremony on the mall in Central Park or at your borough hall or at your neighborhood CDVO center to mark victory to honor the men who have fallen and to pledge new efforts to bring victory in the Pacific. Here's a story just in from London. The BBC Forces program said that the moment for Prime Minister Churchill's broadcast has now come very near. New York City didn't wait for the official confirmation of Germany's surrender today. The nation's biggest city started to celebrate immediately when unofficial reports circulated that Germany had signed articles of unconditional surrender. The celebration was one of those traditional super-duper clambakes done as only New York can do it. Tons upon tons of ticker paper, newspapers, and even torn telephone books cascaded down from the mammoth skyscrapers. 
Motorists blew their horns wildly and normally state civilians raced up and down madly. Thousands of persons jammed Times Square immediately, screaming with joy and waving their arms in the air as flashbulbs exploded and newsreel men took pictures of the wild scene. Despite the occasion, however, the crowd still was orderly. Grand Central Station, one of the key railroad hubs in the city, reacted in much the same way. In the subway tunnels underneath the terminal, one man ran up and down like a modern Paul Revere, shouting that it's all over, Germany has surrendered. The ticker tape and newspapers floating through the air resembled a Paul Bunyan edition of a blizzard, and everywhere over the city the air seemed filled with bits of papers swirling around in the bright sunlight and descending over the thousands of celebrants. Out in the Pacific, the greatest forces ever to battle for such a small area of land continues to hammer each other today in the fight for Okinawa. Once more, the super fortresses have come up from the Marianas to strike at the Japanese aerial nests on Kyushu Island, the enemy's takeoff point for damaging raids on American shipping off Okinawa. Another of what is officially described as one of our light units, meaning perhaps a destroyer, was hit over the weekend in the persistent Jap raids. But Japanese shipping also is getting it from American bombers now taking off from Okinawa. Twenty enemy craft were caught and battered at the entrance of the Sea of Japan. The spreading operations around Okinawa are heightened by the disclosure that the British fleet has been bombarding the southern Ryukyu Islands about 800 miles below Okinawa. The British destroyed 18 Jap planes in the attack, but the Japs got in a blow at one big British ship. She was damaged, but she is still operating. The Japs soon will feel the whiplash of a new swarm of allied planes in the southwest Pacific. Australian engineers are rushing work on the Tarakan airfield off Dutch Borneo, which the Japs, for some incredible reason, have abandoned without a fight. Before the Japs left for the mountains, however, they clogged the drainage system to turn the 4,500-foot airdrome into a bog. But the Aussies expect to have the airdrome operating before long, and when they do, the Japs all the way from British North Borneo down the coast to Sarawak will be brought under the constant bombing and strafing attack by RAAF fighter bombers. Here at home, the end of the war in Europe probably will mean the end of the 48-hour work week in many American war plants. Officials of the War Manpower Commission say that soon after VE Day, the 48-hour week will be suspended in plants and areas where the labor market has loosened up. At the same time, WMC probably will lift the controls on workers who are frozen to their present jobs. But commission officials point out that the task now is to funnel workers into jobs in war industries, which will carry the production load for the Pacific War. It's expected that within the next six months, more than one million and a half war workers will be forced out of war jobs because of cutbacks in war production programs. To meet this, the United States Employment Service is expanding its offices to help place workers. Military observers also believe that the end of the war in Europe will mean that many soldiers who went overseas before or during early 1943 will stand a good chance of being discharged. Stock prices were down this morning. Trading was moderate. 11 a.m. prices included U.S. Steel 67 and 3 quarters down 5 eighths. Bethlehem Steel 79 and a half down 7 eighths. General Motors 69 and 3 quarters down 3 eighths. Chrysler 114 and 3 quarters down 5 eighths. Anaconda 33 and 3 quarters down 1 eighth, nickel 33 and 3 eighths unchanged. United Air 29 and a half down 3 eighths, Standard Oil of New Jersey 64 and 7 eighths down 1 eighth. New York Central 25 and 5 eighths down 5 eighths, Pennsylvania Railroad 38 and 5 eighths down a quarter. Santa Fe 94 and a half down 1 and a half, Edison 30 unchanged, Telephone 165 and 3 eighths down 1 eighth. Here's the weather forecast for New York City and vicinity. The temperature is 64 degrees, humidity 56%. Today will be partly cloudy with the highest temperature about 65 degrees. Tonight clear, 
Tomorrow clear, becoming partly cloudy. Now streamlined summary of the news. A thoroughly defeated Germany has surrendered unconditionally to the Western allies in Soviet Russia. The surrender was signed at General Dwight Eisenhower's headquarters at Reims, France. Forty million men, women, and children were casualties from the global war fired by Hitler's armored plunge into Poland September 1st, 1941. London and New York have gone wild over the news. The German-controlled radio at Prague says it does not recognize the German surrender. President Truman is at the White House, but he has made no comment on the German surrender as yet. This program has been brought to you by the makers of Wilbert's Floor Wax. This is Prescott Robinson speaking. Keep tuned to WOR for all late news developments. Our next complete news broadcast will be at 12 o'clock noon with William Lang. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. No more smeared manicures. Dry your fingernail polish immediately with Nail Dry, the new miracle liquid. Just apply, your polish is dry. Buy Nail Dry at drug department stores and beauty shops. Buy Nail Dry. W-O-R, New York. The following program is transcribed. Arid presents Jimmy Fiddler with news about Robert Walker, George Montgomery, Harry Von Zell, Dinah Shore, and other stars. And the criticism of two grim close-ups in war films. From Hollywood, we bring you Jimmy Fiddler, the Motion Picture Authority. Fiddler's weekly broadcasts are sponsored by Arid, the snow-white antiseptic deodorant cream that protects clothes and safeguards friendships. More men and women use Arid than any other deodorant. Go ahead, Jimmy. This is Jimmy Fiddler in Hollywood, where it's bad manners to stick out your tongue and bad judgment to stick out your neck. Exclusive, Bud Abbott and Luke Costello yesterday signed contracts for a tour of ten or more theaters to be made on completion of their present picture. All proceeds, which will total at least $150,000, will go to the Abbott and Costello Youth Foundation. This foundation, as I previously reported, will provide a boys' club in downtown Los Angeles in the city's worst juvenile delinquency area. Exclusive. The Harry Von Zells, he's the radio comedian and announcer, expect to stalk in November. The Von Zells are already the parents of one son. Hollywood, Bob Hope and Paramount Studio, who have been quarreling since the first of the year, settled their differences yesterday. Hope, who has been under suspension, has signed a new contract, giving him all of the things he had asked for. Bulletin, Robert Walker today asked MGM for an indefinite leave of absence. He gave ill health as his reason. Washington, D.C., the War Department has canceled Harold Lloyd's overseas trip in the stage play Harvey, on grounds that the play's subject matter is not conducive to soldier morale. Las Vegas, Nevada. Mayo Matho, who is now in Las Vegas to divorce Humphrey Bogart, may take a new husband even before Bogart marries Lauren Bacall. The man in Myth Matho's case is John Lehman of the Army Air Force. He visits her at Las Vegas every weekend, and they may marry there the moment she gets her divorce. Bulletin. Mary Martin, the stage and screen star, will become a mother in November. She's married to Richard Holliday, the writer. New York City. Myrna Loy was dismissed this week from the Leroy Sanitarium in New York. Miss Loy, who is now en route to, to Hollywood, kept her illness a secret by registering under an assumed name. With the Army Air Force in Germany, Captain Robert Preston, former screen star, has received his second presidential citation as a member of a marauder group. Hollywood, Irene Manning and her husband, who were rumored on verge of divorce, have ironed out their differences and there will be no separation. Hollywood, Doctors yesterday told MGM that it'll be two months before Keenan Wynn, who was injured in a motorcycle crash five weeks ago, can return to work. Wynn's jaw is wired together, and his only nourishment is liquids taken through a glass tube. Hollywood. Attorneys for Ann Dvorak will file her suit for divorce from Leslie Fenton next week.
Mr. Vorick and Fenton separated six months ago. Speaking of Anne, last week I suggested that since she is now a blonde, she should give her brunette wardrobe to the United Nations clothing drive. This she has done, but without benefit of photographers, because she didn't want her donation to look like a publicity stunt. Hollywood, despite studio denials, I've learned that Spencer Tracy will desert Hollywood for one year, starting about June 1st. Tracy will first make an overseas tour, after which he will star in a stage play. New York City, Eileen Barton, the radio singer, will marry Lester Lee, a music publisher, in July. Miss Barton sang on the Frank Sinatra and Milton Berle programs. Hollywood, Bobby Sox fans struggling wildly to get close to Van Johnson at a preview on Friday night, got out of hand despite 12 policemen and did considerable damage. A showcase was broken, scattering glass and candy all over the lobby. In addition, a table and two heavy cigarette stands were smashed. Paris, France. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Ross, husband of Glenda Farrell, the actress, will be decorated by the French government for his work in halting an epidemic. He is a doctor. Hollywood. George Brent, shopping for a seagoing yacht, told boat brokers that he will take time off after the war and make a cruise around the world. Every week, this program presents an award to an actor or an actress for patriotic war service. The citation is a custom-built Gruen Precision Watch, which bears the inscription, the Jimmy Fiddler Award for Meritorious War Effort. The actor chosen to be honored this week is Bob Hope. No other star has given as much time and effort to the entertainment of our fighting men and to the raising of funds for war needs. Hope, who is now making a quiet tour of hospitals, will, on completion of his present radio series, embark on his fourth trip overseas. For a brilliant war record that has endeared him to millions of men in uniform, I take pleasure in presenting to Bob Hope the Jimmy Fiddler Award for Meritorious War Service. Ken, I see that we have a note from Eleanor Holm, wife of Billy Rose, owner of the famous Diamond Horseshoe. That's right, Jimmy. Stars in every field use and recommend arid cream deodorant. Eleanor Holm, the famous swimming champion, writes this about arid. I like to pick winners, don't you? Arid is a winner. From the day I first started using arid, I knew it would be the most popular deodorant in America because arid is nice to use and because arid does its job. I apply a dab of Arid every day, and from that moment on, I never give perspiration a thought. Thank you for your message, Eleanor Holm. Friends, Arid is a snowy white stainless antiseptic cream deodorant that safely helps stop underarm perspiration and deodorizes. And Arid does not irritate the skin nor harm fabric. It protects you and your clothes. So play safe. Do as so many stars do. Use Arid cream deodorant every day. Ask for Arid at any drug or cosmetic counter. Intimate notes from my little black book. Open letter to Rita Hayworth. My dear Rita, I hear that you're insisting upon playing in your next picture a dramatic role in which you neither sing nor dance. It seems you want to get away from screen musicals before you become typed in such parts. Ordinarily, I would find no fault with such a decision. I believe you have dramatic ability, and certainly your desire to prove it is understandable. But just now, Miss Hayworth, I think your decision is ill-timed. In every recent poll conducted among the armed services, the Gobs and the G.I. Joes have expressed overwhelming preference for musical films. They want pictures filled with melody, rhythm, and glamour, three commodities which you can deliver as well or better than any other star. Not long ago, Miss Hayworth, you protested to your studio because you were being kept so busy in front of cameras that you had no time for war work. You said you wanted to give shows in army camps and navy bases. Well, if your desire to entertain the boys has not changed, let me suggest that your greatest contribution can be made right here in Hollywood, starring in the kind of movies they want. Think this over, Rita. Count the very many actresses who are capable of playing dramatic roles, then count the very few who are qualified to star in musicals. I promise you'll be surprised. Yours for remembering that the best job anyone can do today is that which brings pleasure and comfort to men who are fighting for our nation's honor, Jimmy Fiddler. 
Here's a story that will delight you. There's a theater here in Hollywood that... We interrupt uh, this program to bring you an announcement from Supreme Allied Headquarters in Paris. We quote it. It is as follows. Shafe, that is Supreme Allied Headquarters, authorizes correspondence at, at 4.45 Paris time, which was 10.45 a.m. this morning, to state that Shafe has made nowhere any official statement for publication up to that hour concerning complete surrender of all German armed forces in Europe, and no story to that effect is authorized. We'll repeat that. Schaeff, the Supreme Allied Headquarters in Paris, has authorized correspondence at 10.45 a.m. New York time, 37 minutes ago, to state that Schaeff has nowhere any official statement, has made nowhere any official statement for publication up to that hour concerning complete surrender of all German armed forces in Europe. And no story to that effect is authorized. Perhaps it would be well to go back and uh, summarize for just a moment what has taken place this morning. The only story saying that fighting had ceased and a surrender had been arrived at and signed by the Allies was a story by the Associated Press which has continued to file material concerning that story. How the story has come out of France from General Eisenhower's advanced headquarters at Rennes, we do not know, although the Associated Press stated flatly in an explanation to its subscribers the story was transmitted from the advanced headquarters to Paris and transmitted from that point to its New York offices. Thus, the AP is the only news service which has come out flatly with the story. There's every reason, of course, to believe that it's true, but it's another one of those strange news breaks or scoops, if uh, that's what it turns out to be. There does seem to be little doubt that the story is true, but it does look as if the story managed to get through censorship before uh, a time had uh, been agreed upon for its release. Anyway, we'll once more repeat that statement that Schaefer has authorized correspondence at 10.45 a.m. Eastern Wartime to state that it has made nowhere any official statement for publication up to that hour concerning complete surrender of all German armed forces in Europe. And no story to that effect is authorized. As soon as further news is received, we'll flash it to you immediately. Keep tuned to WOR for the latest news. We return you to Jimmy Fiddler. That's why men and women in all professions and occupations prefer arid cream deodorant. And why so many stars recommend arid, too. Here's what one of the lovely new Hollywood stars, Gail Storm, writes about it. It's easy to understand why more men and women use Arid than any other deodorant. Arid is tops in effectiveness, and its clean, pleasant scent makes it a joy to use. I'm happy to recommend Arid to all my friends. Gail Storm, thank you for your letter. Friends, ask for a 39-cent jar of Arid, spelled A-R-R-I-D, at your nearest drug or cosmetic counter. Use Arid daily. One Man's Opinion a department featuring this reporter's views on happenings in Hollywood. What has happened to the edict of the Office of Defense Transportation against unnecessary travel? For two years, the ODT has frowned so darkly on needless trips that a fellow actually hung his head in shame if he dared venture 100 miles to see a dying member of his family. But have you noticed the guest list in San Francisco? Out of curiosity, I kept tab for two days and read the names of more than 250 persons who are now in the Bay City just to see the peace conference. What kind of Americanism is this that the little fellow is discouraged from traveling while the big shots come and go at will? 
Eddie Lamar, who expects her baby soon, is sending gifts she has received at baby showers to needy infants in Europe. In connection with this, I overheard a prominent actress say that had she known Hetty intended to give away her present, she wouldn't have spent so much money for it. I'm just as ashamed of this actress who is American-born as I am proud of Miss Lamar who came here from Europe. Many stars have failed to make camp or hospital tours because, they say, they can neither dance nor sing and would have nothing to offer as entertainment. They would take a look at Alan Ladd's record. On his most recent hospital tour, which lasted for seven weeks, Ladd sat and talked man-to-man with thousands of wounded soldiers. I've read a score of letters from officers in charge of hospitals praising Alan's fine work. Some even said that he was the most successful of all the touring stars. It seems to me that Alan's record leaves the hangback stars without a single decent excuse. With Warner Brothers about to film the life of the late Marilyn Miller, MGM will also cast Judy Garland to portray the same Miss Miller in still another picture. In other words, it looks as though we'll be seeing two Miss Millers on the screen simultaneously. How ironic, when we remember that the one, original Marilyn Miller, died partially of a broken heart because Hollywood failed to find a place for her. A man I don't envy but whose courage I admire is Frank Sinatra, who will soon embark on an overseas tour. It's my guess that Frankie Boy will come in for some pretty rough handling from men in uniform, so many of whom don't like Sinatra because of his effect on the girls back home. But Frank has proved that he can handle the most trying situations. It'll be hard sledding for a while, but it's my bet that he'll captivate the G.I. Joes and will come back a much better understood and better liked young man. Pick of the pictures. The best picture of the week is Blood on the Sun. A three-bell picture starring Jimmy Cagney and Sylvia Sidney. Hard-boiled, two-fisted Cagney is back with a knockout punch and a melodrama so full of intrigue and suspense you'll forget to breathe. Take along an extra pair of fingernails when you go to see Blood on the Sun. <laughs> News highlights of the week in review. Merle Oberon arrived in Mexico to divorce Sir Alexander Carter. Cameraman Lucia Ballard is also in Mexico and may marry Miss Oberon the moment she is free. Ida Lupino filed suit for divorce from Louis Hayward, charging extreme cruelty. Gail Patrick revealed that she expects a baby in October. Director Gregory LaCava sued Mary Pickford for $1,653,750, charging breach of contract. George Sidney, veteran stage and screen actor, died after a long illness. George Tobias was fined $5,000 for building a $40,000 ranch house on an $1,800 priority permit. That's all for now. I'll be back with you at the same time next week. Until then, this is Jimmy Fiddler saying good luck to you, and I do mean you. Do you feel headachy and irritable due to poorly digested food? Then remember this. Each day, nature must produce about two pints of a vital digestive juice to help digest your food. If nature fails, your food may remain undigested. To feel cheerful and happy again, take Carter's Little Liver Pills as directed. They increase the flow of this vital digestive juice quickly. Soon you're on the road to feeling better. Get Carter's Little Liver Pills today. Only 25 cents. Listen to Jimmy Fiddler's Hollywood News every week. Play safe. Use Arid every day. Ilona Massey and other famous stars recommend Arid. More men and women use Arid than any other deodorant. Arid does not formulate Jimmy Fiddler's opinions. He reports the news as he sees it. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. A transcription. Get Sparkausendrail for Vastinofil and Toast. You said what? I said get Sparkausendrail for Vastinofil and Toast. Oh, get Tasty Bread for Tasty Toast. That's right. Get Tasty Bread for Tasty Toast. Bamberger Broadcasting Service, WOR, New York.
In place of take it easy time today, Van Camps joins America and her brave allies in giving thanks for the great victory. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Van Camp Song Chefs and Frank Novak's Dinette Ensemble have prepared a special musical program in celebration of the electrifying news. And now, give out with the Victory Polka. There's gonna be a hallelujah day When the boys have all come home to stay And a million bands begin to play We'll be dancing the Victory Polka And when we lit the torch of liberty in his blacked-out land across the sea When a man can proudly say, I'm free We'll be dancing the big green polka And we will give a mighty cheer When a ration book is just a souvenir And we'll heave a mighty sigh When each gal can kiss the boys and kiss goodbye And they'll come marching down Fifth Avenue The United Nations in review when this lovely dream has all come true, we'll be dancing the victory polka. Dance, dance, dance the victory polka. Join, join, join the merry throng. Sing, sing, sing the victory polka. Raise your voices loud and strong. And they'll come marching down Fifth Avenue, the United Nations in review. When this lovely dream has all come true, we'll be dancing the big green polka. When we say take it easy, we don't mean go off the deep end in believing the entire war is over. This victory in Europe should serve as a spur to still greater efforts so that the war in the Pacific will be more quickly won. So let us join our brave fighting men in spirit and go marching along together. Marching along together, sharing every smile and tear. Marching along together, whistling till the skies are clear. Swinging along the highway, over the road that's wide. Without a bugle, without a drum, we mean to chase the jinx. Oh, rumpty dilly, here we come, we're happy hinky dinks. Marching along together, life is wonderful side by side. When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah, we'll give him a hearty welcome then, hurrah, hurrah. The men will cheer, the boys will shout, the ladies, they will all turn out, and we'll all be gay when Johnny comes marching home.
every smile and tear, marching along together, whistling till the skies are clear, swinging along the highway, over the road that's wide, without a bugle, without a drum, we meet to chase the jinx, oh rumty tiddly, here we come, we're happy hinky dinks, marching along together. Life is wonderful side by side. Today is a great day in the lives of all of us, but there is still a great day coming when all fighting ceases. Yes, that will indeed be a great day. from him to you, and I'd like to read it. To all friends of Van Camp's Take It Easy time, I'd like to suggest that on this great day of victory, of partial victory, rather, that instead of spending the entire day in the street celebrating, you devote a small part of it in prayerful thanks to God that America has been spared the great devastation, the years of sacrifice and torture that has swept Europe. This is a moment to be glad and gay, yes, but it's also a moment to be humble. Remember, there is still a war to be won. So as you go to your churches to pray, remember to say a prayer for the boys over there. Once again, we're speaking to you from the WOR newsroom in New York. Here's a bulletin just received. The American broadcasting station in Europe, that's familiarly known as ABSI, says the war in Europe is over officially. Uh, that news may sound anticlimactic, but you will recall a bulletin which was broadcast just a few minutes ago over this station to the effect that Supreme Allied headquarters in Paris had said that they had not authorized any statement to be made concerning the end of the war up to 10.45 a.m. Eastern wartime. 
uh, the American Broadcasting Station in Europe, or AFSI, however, has said that it is over officially, and uh, it should be recalled that AFSI is operated by the American government and the Psychological Warfare Division of the United States Army. So that would further implement the original story, which has been carried by the Associated Press, but by none of the other American news services. More news coming as soon as we receive it, so keep tuned to WOR. Now back to Take It Easy Time. come, and a jubilant thrill has run through every city and village, but still there's a job to be done, to be done with a will, for we can't leave a task that's half done, we can't quit a war that's half won. Though part of the world may exclaim, peace is here, and once more reunite with the ones they hold dear, still for us comes a message that's ringing and clear. We can't leave a task half completed. Only one of our foes is defeated. We are thankful to know that the ravishing Hun has been stripped of his bombs and his knife and his gun, that his savage and murderous course has been run. But we can't leave a job that's half finished. Our zeal must remain undiminished. We can't stop for breath in the midst of a scrap. We've a fight to the death with a murderous Jap. When the smug Nipponese have been wiped off the map, that's the time for a full celebration that will echo from nation to nation. Lift your eyes as you silently rise when they play the storm. Makers of Van Camp's ready-to-eat products earnestly urge you not to relax your efforts, to do all you can to aid the war effort. Save fats, save paper, save waste, buy bonds. Let us all take a day out to cheer and give thanks. Then let us get back into high gear for an overwhelming victory over Japan. My country tis of thee. Sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. And when my fathers died, land of the pilgrims' pride, from 
get back home again to the USA. the story of Van Camp's Take It Easy time for today. Frank Novak's Dinette Ensemble and I have enjoyed being with you on this VE Day, and we're looking forward to our next meeting. On behalf of Van Camps, thanks for having us in your homes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. There'll be another Take It Easy time over many of these same stations tomorrow. Dick Willard speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting. This is the Mutual. W O R, New York. Mott's Products present a special program for VE Day. This morning, and probably for the entire week, Imogene will not be with us. I know it'll disappoint her a lot not to be here on such a day, but I'm afraid it can't be helped. However, we have a very charming and capable substitute whom, you'll all remember, has already been a guest on What's Your Idea? She is Jessie DeBooth. Well, following our usual custom of reading ideas from our listeners, first, today, I'd like to read you a poem sent to us by Mrs. John DeYoung of South Holland, Illinois. It says, On V.E. Day, as the title. Celebrate V.E. Day. Celebrate violence, destruction, and death. Celebrate American blood blotting foreign soil. Celebrate. Ask the mother whose son died on the sands of North Africa, or on the rocky beach at Salerno, or lying in the lapping tides of Normandy, or buried in the Belgian bulge. Celebrate. Ask the young wife whose husband died without seeing Jimmy, age two, died without a murmur on the death march of Bataan, a victim of viciousness and cruelty hard for the American mind to grasp, let alone endure. Celebrate. Ask the Marines on Guadalcanal, on Guam, on Wake, in the steaming jungles of New Guinea, on the volcanic beaches of Iwo Jima. Celebrate. Is the Navy celebrating Pearl Harbor or the Battle of the Coral Sea? Celebrate any battle, even a great victory. When a laughing boy in a flashing second becomes a mutilated corpse and stains the sea red. Celebrate V.E. Day? No. Rather, give our thanks to God for the ceasing of hostilities in Europe. And for the triumph of good over evil. And offer our entreaties and our prayers for a similar end and soon to the war in the Pacific. And pray and work unceasingly that this carnage may never come again. But celebrate V.E. Day? Not until every marine and sailor and sea bee and merchant seaman and nurse in the Pacific 
can celebrate, too. That's wonderful, Jack. Surely this is a day of great thanksgiving. Yes, Jesse, we're getting our first glimpse today of a world where there'll be no war and where we can resume the kind of lives that we once knew. When we can look forward to loved ones coming back because with the defeat of Germany, half our great war is won. Well, at the risk of dampening our joy, I wonder if we shouldn't temper our joy today with a sober question as to what lies ahead. Those are just my sentiments, Jack. So let's talk about what victory in Europe means to those of us who are homemakers. Yes, for instance, everybody who has a relative in the service in Europe is probably wondering today when he'll be back, and of course he's hoping it'll be soon. But now I doubt if it'll be soon, although plans for demobilization have been formulated for some time. But here's why. If the pledges of the United Nations to punish war criminals and to police the enemy countries are going to be kept, it will mean that members of the armed forces must be kept overseas and under arms while others are being released and resettled in civilian life. Perhaps your boy will be one of the men who must remain abroad, or perhaps he'll be sent to the Pacific to finish the other half of the war which still must be fought until Japan's defeated. And then, of course, another thing we women think of right away is what effect victory in Europe will have on rationing. We're secretly hoping that in no time at all we'll be able to go out to our butchers and get a great big fat steak. But of course, deep in our hearts, we know that it's going to be some time before our food supply will be back to pre-war conditions. A report from the OPA, which I read recently, said that here at home, sugar and butter would continue to be rationed. And so will the better cuts of meat, fats and oils and cheese. However, after six months, that's about next winter, these foods should be reasonably plentiful, I think, don't you? Mm. Well, many people may wonder if it isn't all right to discontinue salvaging paper and fats. And by the way, apropos of paper, I blush to see how much paper is being thrown out of our windows here in New York. I really blush. Paper must still be salvaged because it'll be several months before there'll be enough available wood pulp. And, of course, fats must be salvaged until the import situation can be improved. Well, rationing of shoes will continue, too. And it'll be some time before that will be changed. And it'll be some time, too, before there'll be an adequate supply of radios and phonographs, washing machines and appliances, also refrigerators. And uh, some time before we can build homes. Patience is going to be a great virtue in the days ahead of us. It certainly is. Another thing that may be in the minds of many of us, is now that victory in Germany has been won, whether we should have more gas, whether we're going to have plenty of more tires, and that shiny new cars will soon be for sale again. But let's look at the facts. We may get a little more gas, but rationing will not be lifted at once, of course, due to the demands for the Pacific War and of the liberated nations. During the first six months of reconversion, the automobile industry won't be able to produce more than two and a half million cars and one million trucks. And while, of course, that seems like a lot of cars and trucks, it's only a fraction of the estimated demand. Here's something else. I wonder if many people don't feel that now that V-Day has arrived, that it's no longer necessary to curb, curless, uh, to, uh, curb careless talk. But wait a minute. Here are the facts. Now that the European war has ended, there are many more countries, some of them neutral, some of them non-belligerent or reoccupied, through which the Japanese can get and transmit information. Control of all the channels of information in these countries will be extremely difficult. And then our servicemen, when they come home, they'll be eager to talk. And they may unthinkingly divulge details about certain weapons or battle techniques or general strategy. And all this is information which really would aid the Japanese. 
So we must still be careful not to repeat anything of a military nature that we haven't heard on the radio or we haven't read in the newspapers. Check. And here's something interesting I read the other day. Did you know, Jesse, that 40% of the rise in prices of the last war occurred after the armistice? No, I didn't know that, Jack. 40% after the armistice? Right. Well, think of it. Well, that's one reason why it's important to all of us to keep down prices. And even after the end of the war with Japan, I think we women can help by not buying too many things that we don't need, by saving money and keeping up payments on Dad's insurance and investing in war bonds. Yes, war bonds. The seventh war loan drive begins on the 14th of this month with a national quota of $14 billion. Mm-mm. The uh, Pacific War will keep expenditures at a very high level for some time to come. And then, of course, we'll have to put off traveling a while longer, too. I mean, that trip to see our sister or our parents that we promised to make as soon as VE Day came will have to be postponed. Yes, there'll be servicemen returning home who will use the trains, and there'll be war workers who will be migrating from one place to another so that civilian travel will still be difficult, and trains will be crowded and uncomfortable for some months to come. Some of our listeners may have daughters who are wax or waves or nurses, and perhaps they think that these girls won't be needed. I'd like to talk about that. The Army says that the wax will be needed to help in demobilization work and other important jobs. The Navy reports that with naval activities against Japan enormously increased, the waves will be needed to help in organization and supply work. The need both for regular Army nurses and cadet nurses will continue too, both due to war casualties and to greatly expanded public health activities. These young women will be needed. Well, these are just some of the whys and wherefores that we as homemakers should know. Meanwhile, let us give thanks for the defeat of Germany. Let's give us quiet thanksgiving over the accomplishment of half of a tremendous task. And let us now put all of our effort to defeat Japan and bring peace to the world. And now, Jack, will you read us that prayer for peace that you read on this program some time ago? I thought it was so appropriate for V-Day. Yes, the prayer for peace by St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sickness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Well, thank you, Jesse DeBooth, for being with us today. Mott's Products will be back again tomorrow over many of these same stations with What's Your Idea? Now, this is Jack Stanley speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. WOR will bring you all late news and developments, so be sure to stay tuned. W.O.R. New York. It's Grove's B-Complex Vitamins presenting... Hello, Ginger. Hello, Lanny. And all you folks listening in. Howdy-do. We've got a song to sing. We've got some blues to chase away. Ladies and gents, our sponsor presents... Lanny and Ginger Gray. Yes, it's time for the twinkling twosome Lanny and Ginger Gray, who will sing two down and one to go in just a moment. But first, friends, here's a special tip for all who wish to prevent loss of appetite during spring and summer. Lack of sufficient B vitamins in the system may be responsible for loss of normal appetite. And when you skimp on foods, you rob your body of the fuel it needs to produce energy and vitality. 
Your need may be actually greater in spring and summer for these two reasons. One, increased activity may use up B vitamins faster. Two, lighter spring and summertime diets may fail even more seriously to provide sufficient B vitamins. Why take chances? Play safe by supplementing your daily diet with Grove's B-complex vitamins. Distributed by makers of famous Grove's cold tablets. Quality and potency guaranteed. Large size only a dollar. Big family size only three dollars. Get Grove's G-R-O-V-E-S. Grove's B-complex vitamins today. And now, Lanny and Ginger Gray. Hot, two, three, four. Hot, two, three. When El Duce and Der Fuhrer lost their powers, came a message from our General Eisenhower. Said congenial General Ike. I like, I like, I like. Two of those Axis guys are six feet under flowers. Meaning? Two down and one more to go, boys. One more to go, boys. One more to go, boys. Two down and one more to go. And we'll all go marching home. One, two, three, four. Two down, now there's only one boy. Won't there be fun, boys? When, when there, there are, are none, boys. boys. Two down and when we are done. We can all go marching home. Oh, we've got the rooster, his head is in a noose. We've got the gander, we're gonna get the goose. Two down and one more to go, boys. One more to go, boys. Come on, you dough boys. Two down and one more to go, and we'll all go marching. Hut, two, three, four. Hut, two, three, four. Halt, one, two. All go marching home. Oh, that was grand, Lightning Ginger, and what's next? It's request time again, George, and we're going to sing something very special today. And it's for the staff of radio station WJMC of Rice Lake, Wisconsin, and all the United States. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Here's a special spring and summer message to the woman who wants to safeguard and maintain her complexion. Remember, a clear, lovely, healthy skin may be lost if you lack full daily protective requirements of B-complex vitamins. B vitamin deficiency can cause skin disorders of many kinds. Your need for extra protection may be actually greater in spring and summer for two reasons. One, increased activity may demand increased B vitamins. Two, lighter spring and summertime diets may fail to provide sufficient B-complex vitamins. Play safe, be beauty wise. Supplement your daily diet with Grove's B-complex vitamins for your skin. Distributed by makers of famous Grove's cold tablets. Quality and potency guaranteed. Large size only a dollar. Big family size only three dollars. Get Groves, G-R-O-V-E-S, Groves B-Complex Vitamins today. So long, see you soon. The same time Monday with another tune. This is George Gunn saying, keep listening to Lanny and Ginger Gray, brought to you by B-Complex Vitamins, product of the Grove Laboratories. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. A transcription. Dentine, chewing gum, it's keen chewing gum, helps keep teeth white. Dentine is delicious.
And we're part of Monday, May 7, 1945. We're going to still stay on mutual. We're going to go into the evening to play the Sherlock Holmes. Alt tab 30 to 33. Sherlock, enter. This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell about another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective Sherlock Holmes. I suppose your dinner is well over by now, so now's the perfect time to get out a bottle of that swell Petri California port. You know, Petri port was just made for a time like this, after dinner when you're just taking things easy. If you've ever tasted Petri port, you know what I mean. It's a hearty, full-bodied wine with a deep red color and a flavor that's just about out of this world. I think that if you had only one wine to choose and the whole world to choose from, chances are you'd pick port. Petri port. That's how good I think it is. That's saying plenty, I know, but I think Petri port will easily live up to all I say about it. Try it and see. And share it with your friends. You can serve Petri port proudly because the name Petri is the proudest name in the history of American wines. And now, let's visit our old friend, Dr. Watson. Here is. I look here on the patio, Mr. Foreman. Come on out and join me. Admiring the sunset, eh, Doctor? Yes, my boy. It's a particularly beautiful one. Where are the puppies this evening? Uh, asleep on a, a favorite treat coat of mine that's just come back from the cleaner. <laughs> and you hadn't the heart to move them, I suppose. No, no, I hadn't. The little fellows looked so comfortable. In fact, I sometimes wonder if these... Uh, but you haven't come here to listen to a dissertation on the behavior of dogs? Well, it is getting near story time, Doctor. Yes, of course it is. Well, just let me... Uh, Get my pipe properly lighted. Ah, that's it. The story I'm going to tell you tonight began in 1909. I received a telegram from my old friend telling me that he was leaving his Sussex bee farm and coming to London for a few days. I hadn't seen the great man for several months, so naturally I went to Victoria Station to meet him. As the train drew to a stop, the door of a first-class carriage swung open and Sherlock Holmes, hand outstretched, jumped down onto the platform to greet me. Watson, my dear fellow, how are you? Oh, Holmes, my dear fellow, it's good to see you again. I've missed you. And are you, old chap? Harry Bates, sir? Uh, yes, Porter, and get us a handsome cab, will you? Right, Sherlock, Governor. I wish I'd got a spare room for you. Don't worry, Watson, I shall be very comfortable at the Diogenes Club. By the way, I trust you're free this evening. Yes, naturally. What are your plans? I thought we'd go to the theatre. Theatre? Oh, what play do you want to see? Well, I thought we'd go to the Savoy Theatre and see the Sherlock Holmes play. I hear it's enormously successful. Yes, I know it is, but I've avoided it. I'm told that Sir Claude Horton takes great liberties with your character, and as for the actor portraying me, my friends tell me it's a, it's a travesty. He makes me nothing but a uh, bumbling old fool. 
Therefore, a visit to the play might be a salutary experience for both of us. In any case, my trip to London is a response to an urgent telegram from Sir Claude himself. Seems to need my help rather badly. Oh, what's his trouble? <clears throat> well, he wasn't specific in his telegram. He suggested, however, that we attend tonight's performance and discuss the matter with him afterwards. I see. Well, I, I suppose if you can sit through it, I can. Of course you can, old fellow. In any case, you yourself are partly responsible for the play's existence. How do you mean, huh? <laughs> Those sensational stories you wrote of my modest problems, I... I should have seen where they would eventually lead to. In time, no doubt, we shall uh, be portrayed on the cinematograph as well. Nonsense, Holmes. That newfangled thing's only a toy. I think not, Watson. We're on the edge of a strange new mechanical world. In fact, I begin to feel a certain concern about the rumored developments in wireless telegraphy. But enough of these predictions. Here comes our porter with a cab. We'll tell the driver to take us straight to the Savoy Theatre. <laughs> Just look at that line of people at the box at the uh, box office, Holmes. Very flattering, old chap. Well, possibly, but I hope it doesn't mean that we've got to wait our turn. And... Oh. Excuse me, gentlemen. You're Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, aren't you? Yes, yes. I yes. thought I couldn't be mistaken. My name is Frank Ferris. I do, do, Mr. Ferris. I'm glad to meet you, sir. Sir Claude has a box reserved for you. He asked me to see that you are quite comfortable. Consider it of him. Will you follow me, please? Thank you. Um, neither of you have seen the play before, I understand. Uh, no, Mr. Ferris, we haven't. <laughs> I imagine it'll be a strange experience seeing yourselves portrayed on the stage. By the way, uh, I'm playing the part of an old friend of yours, Professor Moriarty. Oh, indeed. I'm <laughs> looking forward to a very entertaining evening. I presume that you escape our clutches, as usual? <laughs> yes, I do, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> and I've done it nightly now for 137 performances. Oh, a record that I'm sure Professor, uh, Professor Moriarty himself would envy. Had it not been for his memorable demise at the Reichenbach Falls? Ah, here we are, gentlemen. This is the box reserved for you. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'll go back to my dressing room. Oh, oh, I nearly forgot, Mr. Holmes. Sir Claude asked me to give you this note. Thank you. No, not at all. Well, I'll see you later. Huh. Very nice fellow for an actor. Don't be a snob, Watson. Well, what does the Claude note say? I'll read it to you. Dear Holmes, since I telegraphed you yesterday, there have been strange developments. In fact, I've been doing some detective work off stage as well as on. Watch the performance tonight and watch the audience too, particularly the occupant of the box opposite yours. Please come to my dressing room as soon as the last curtain has fallen. He's being very mysterious and the box opposite ours is empty. No, no, no. Look, Watson, look. Someone has just entered. Confound it, the house lights are going out. The first act's beginning, Holmes. The first act, yes. Well, sit back and relax, old fellow. Let's see what they've done to us. Well, what did you think of the first act, Holmes? Huh? Oh, the first act, yes, yes. I was um, examining the occupant of the box opposite ours. An attractive young lady. Alone and unusually preoccupied in her program. In fact, one might assume that she was trying to hide her face. Yes, but the play, don't you think it's ridiculous? Just imagine a crown jewel being stolen from the Tower of London. Why not? It's been attempted many times. Anyhow, you must admit that the actor who's portraying me behaves like a, like a blithering idiot. <laughs> and Sir Claude's interpretation of you is uh, 
Pretty far-fetched. Far-fetched, but flattering, Watson. What poise, what suavity, and what a voice. I find myself thoroughly entertained. You're a strange chap, Holmes. No accounting for your tastes. Look, Watson, look. <laughs> the back of the box over there. Good Lord, I could have sworn a man dodged behind the curtain. I don't think the girl saw him, though. Looked like a foreigner. Huh. I think as the young ladies alone, we'll take the liberty of joining her. Oh, dash it, there go the lights again. The second act starting now. And sit down, old fellow. We don't want to attract attention. We'll join her during the next intermission. you want with me? Uh, my name is Sherlock Holmes, and this is my colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do, young lady? I hope you'll forgive this intrusion, but Sir Claude requested that I keep an eye on you during the play tonight. Please come in and sit down, won't you? Thank you. Oh, this is very kind of you. You must forgive my abruptness just now. When I've just been watching Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson being impersonated on the stage, it's, it's rather startling to have the real couple walk into my box. <laughs> yes, I quite understand. By the way, just before the curtain went up on the second act, I thought I noticed a man come into the back of this box and then disappear again. Were you aware of his presence? No. No, I didn't see him. But I know who it is. He's been following me for weeks now. Perhaps you'd like to tell us about it, Miss... Uh... Henshaw. Alicia Henshaw. Yes, I would. As a matter of fact, that's why I'm here tonight. Sir Claude Horton's an old friend of my father's. I went to ask his advice. He did some investigating himself for a few days, and then he found himself a little out of his depth, so he decided to telegraph for you, Mr. Holmes. We were going to meet in his dressing room after the performance tonight. Splendid. And now, Miss Henshaw, what is your story? It's a strange one, Mr. Holmes, though I didn't realize just how strange until I first saw this play a few nights ago. You see, my story concerns a stolen ruby. Good Lord, and tonight's play revolves around the same thing. Exactly. I might as well tell you how it all started. My brother's an officer in the British Army stationed in Egypt. Early this year, he saved the life of a very important native personage in some uprising in Cairo and was rewarded with a magnificent ruby. This jewel he sent to my Uncle Timothy and me. We're the last of the Henshaws, you see. Did your brother tell you the name of this personage? Well, he didn't know it, Mr. Holmes. Apparently, the whole affair was hushed up. I see. Please continue. Well, the trouble began shortly after Uncle Timothy and I received the ruby. A description of it was published in the papers, and a few days later, a message came to us from an Egyptian, Muhammad Ali, laying claim to the stone as one stolen from his family years ago. He sent an expert to our house who examined the ruby under a lens, Mr. Holmes, and then tapped it with a hammer. It fell to pieces. It was a fraud. Gracious me, an amazing thing. I'm sure that's not the end of the story, Miss Henshaw. Oh, no, Mr. Holmes. I wrote and told my brother what had happened. He became very suspicious and suggested that I investigate the credentials of the expert that examined the stone. I think I can finish the story for you. The supposed expert was a jewel thief who substituted a paste ruby for the real one. Destroyed the imitation and walked off with the treasure. It's an old trick. Of course, you haven't been able to find any trace of the supposed expert. Well, that's the funny part of it, Mr. Holmes. Uncle Timothy and I gave a description to the police, but oh, it was a very vague one, I'm afraid. All the time, Uncle said the man reminded him of a colleague of his many years ago at the university, a professor of mathematics. He couldn't think of his name, but when we first saw the play a few nights ago, he was reminded of it. The name was Moriarty. Moriarty? But Moriarty's dead. Miss Henshaw, you say you uh, have been shadowed for some weeks. Yes, by an Egyptian. 
They've stolen the ruby, Mr. Holmes. Why don't they leave me alone? That, Miss Hanshaw, represents a, a very fascinating problem and one that I should be most happy to help you solve. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Holmes. Oh, there go the lights again. The last act. Yes, the last act of this little play, but not, I fear, of Miss Hanshaw's problems. Uh, let's meet after the act in Sir Claude's dressing room, shall we? <laughs> Holmes, how did you enjoy the play? Very much, Sir Claude. May I introduce my old friend, Dr. Watson? How do you do, Sir Claude? How are you, Doctor? I see you've already made the acquaintance of Miss Hanshaw, and she, no doubt, has told you her troubles, eh? Yes, Sir Claude. And Mr. Holmes has promised to help me. Splendid. Uh, tell me, Watson, how did you like the play? It was very interesting, Sir Claude. Not quite accurate, of course. Well, you, you have to allow us a little dramatic license, you know. What did you think of Rodney, the man who was portraying you, Doctor? Well, since you mention it, I think the fellow needs to study diction. He, he mumbles so much, I couldn't understand a word he said. <laughs> oh, come now, old fellow. I, I think there are times when you're a little hard to understand yourself. Oh, rubbish. Sir Claude, I oh, hope you'll uh, meet us at the Diogenes Club, and then we can go out and have some supper. Excellent idea. I'll join you there after I've taken off my makeup. Splendid. I think I should be going home now, Sir Claude. I gave my address to Mr. Holmes so he knows where to get in touch with me. Very well, Miss Hanshaw, and don't worry. I shall give your problem my undivided attention. I'll take you to your cab, my dear. Oh, there's no need to, Sir Claude. Nonsense, I insist. Goodbye. I'll be back in a moment, gentlemen. Right, Miss Hanshaw. Well, good night, good night. Strange business, Holmes. What, what do you make of it all? Very little as yet, but it's a fascinating problem. Sir Claude really seems to uh, have identified himself with the character of Sherlock Holmes. He gave me the impression that he feels quite capable of, of solving the case by himself. Oh, hello. Claude hasn't left, has he? Oh, no, Mr. Fellows. He's coming back in a moment. Oh. <clears throat> How'd you like to play, gentlemen? Very much. Your own performance as Moriarty was most convincing. Yes, yes, indeed, sir. Congratulations, congratulations. A couple of times there, I had a strange feeling that you, you really were Moriarty. Well, that's very flattering, Doctor. Oh, Hello. Well, it sounds as if there's some trouble at the stage door. Hey, excuse me. Come on, Watson, let's follow him. Right. Hello, it's Claude. He seems upset about something. Yes. What's happened, Sir Claude? Oh, there you are, Holmes. I, I just seen Miss Hanshaw off in her cab when a foreign-looking fellow came out of a doorway and got into another cab. I heard him tell the driver to follow her. I, I tried to stop him, but... He got away. Must be the same man that we saw in our box during the play. Mr. Claude, we have our address. I think we'll drive there at once and see that she's arrived safely. We'll join you later at the Diogenes Club. Well, Holmes, here we go. Off on another adventure? Yes, and one that may give us an opportunity of crossing swords with Moriarty once more. Oh, Moriarty's dead. He was killed when you and he fell over the precipice in 91. He was supposed to have been killed, just as I was, but his body was never found. It's impossible, or rather possible, that he returned to pour into the ears of Colonel Moran a story as unlikely and as true as the one I related to you on that April evening in 1894. One can never... Be sure of death, old chap, until one has touched the cold skin of a corpse. Dr. Watson's story will continue in just a few seconds. Hardly time for me to tell you about a really great Petri wine. 
Petre, California, Muscatel. Did you ever walk through a vineyard early in the morning and pick a big, juicy muscat grape right off the vine? Mm -mm. If you've ever done that, then you know what to expect when you taste Petri Muscatel. Petri Muscatel is the color of golden sunshine with a flavor to match. Serve Petri Muscatel after dinner some evening or serve it any time friends drop in. It's a wonderful way to express your hospitality with a wonderful wine, a Petri wine. And now back to tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure. The famous pair have become involved in a strange mystery concerning a stolen ruby, a frightened girl, and an Egyptian who appears to be shadowing her. As we rejoin our story, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are standing in a darkened alleyway adjoining the girl's house. Holmes, Holmes, look, look, look. That Egyptian fellow. He's pacing up and down in front of our house. Yes, therefore we may assume she's safely inside. Uh-huh. Seems to be giving up. He's, he's coming this way. Flatten yourself against the wall. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Who are you, please? We are friends of Miss Hanshaw, and we're very curious to know why you've been following her. I'm sorry that I cannot answer your question, sir. Now, look here, my man. You're talking to Mr. Sherlock Holmes. You are a Mr. Sherlock Holmes? I'm greatly honored to meet you, sir. All my life I have known of you. All my life I have admired you. Then in that case, perhaps you'll answer my questions. Uh, why have you been following Miss Hanshaw? Because it is my duty. What do you mean, your duty? Perhaps I should have said my destiny, Mr. Holmes. For two generations now, the family of Arabi, of which I am a humble member, have dedicated their lives to finding the stolen treasure of Ashut. What on earth all that got to do with Miss Hanshaw? Hmm? The treasure of Ashut is a giant ruby. It was stolen many years ago from the family of Muhammad Ali. A few months ago, Miss Hanshaw received a mysterious ruby. I have found out many things, Mr. Holmes. I have many sources of information. Then I must regard you in the light of a, a rival detective in this case. I heartily call myself a detective, Mr. Holmes. My life is dedicated to only one problem. Miss Hanshaw now says the jewel was stolen from her. I do not believe it. That is why I watch her. If I am wrong this time, and I do not think I am wrong, then my quest must go on. Always it will go on. Permit me to wish you the best of luck, sir. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Good night, gentlemen. Oh, we're not gonna... Sure, we shall meet again. Oh, why did you let him go, Holmes? Why not? He's frightening Miss Hanshaw. But not molesting her, old chap. In fact, it might be a good thing if someone is keeping an eye on her. In the meanwhile, Watson, let's see if we can find a cab and get back to the Diogenes Club. I don't want to keep Claude waiting. Laura, has Claude Horton arrived yet? Yes, Mr. Holmes. He and another gentleman came in about five minutes ago. They went up to the library. The other gentleman has just left. I see. Thank you. This way, Watson. I'm sorry, Sir Claude, to have kept you waiting. We took a little longer, but... Sir Claude! Great heavens! What's the matter with him? Holmes! I... I... I found the answer. Too late. It's... It's... No, 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 sir. Don't try and stand up. You're, you're ill. What are you trying to tell me? The ruby. The ruby. Moriarty. The answer. The answer's in the book. In the book. Sir Claude. Holmes. He's been stabbed. 
He's dead. Just as he was trying to give me a message. He was muttering something about the ruby and Moriarty. And twice he said, it's in the book. Yes, there's a book still in his hand. It's a copy of the tales of Edgar Allan Poe. His thumb's marking a page. It's the story of the purloined letter. Thank you, Sir Claude. You delivered your message. Come on, Watson. We want to catch a murderer and a thief. We must go back to the Savoy Theatre as quickly as we can. Why do you suppose Sir Claude was murdered? Because I was too curious. Been investigating the problem of the stolen ruby and had found out something. Something that he promised to tell me at supper, you remember? Until he was killed by a man who came with him to the club tonight. Fortunately, he gave me a clue by indicating Poe's story of a purloined letter. But I still don't see that how that helps you. Well, it leads us to the ruby. The premise of Poe's story is that the most obvious hiding place is the safest. Now, what uh, physical object was most prominent on the stage in tonight's play? By Jove, uh, a ruby. Exactly. How better can you hide a stolen ruby than by exhibiting it night after night as a stolen ruby before the eyes of thousands? Well, you mean you expect to find it in the... In the property room backstage? Precisely. That and a murderer. Wait for us, cabby. Come on, Watson. You have your revolver, old chap? Yes, I do. Well, keep it handy. Our visit may not be unexpected. Unlocked. That's good. Come on. Look, Holmes. Look. The doorkeeper. He's slumped over his desk. Hmm. He's been given chloroform. We'll take the liberty of borrowing his lantern. An eerie atmosphere, about a dark and empty theater in the home. Now, where will the stage properties be kept, I wonder? Hold the lantern a little higher, will you, old fellow? That's it. Aha, look over there. A large cabinet. It's marked property department. And it's unlocked. Oh, this is frighteningly easy. Let's look out for a trap. Now, let's see. Look, look. There's a ruby lying on that press. Hold it up under the lantern, Watson. Exactly. It's as I thought. This is no paste stage property. It's a genuine ruby. In the light of this lantern, it's very hard to... Down, Watson, quick. He nearly got us. Smashed our lantern. Yes, he's got an air rifle. A powerful one, too, confound it. There's no flash to indicate where he's firing from. Of course, he's baited his trap so neatly that he knows exactly where we are. I'm going to take a shot at him. I can't see anything, but at least it'll let him know we're armed. Now move your position quickly, Watson. Just missed me, Holmes. This is hopeless shooting in the dark. Yes. I've got to switch the stage lights on. Keep him occupied, old fellow, will you? While I try to find the light switches. I've got him. But he can still shoot, confound it. Yes, well, I found the light switch. Keep your eyes skinned, Watson. I'm turning it off. There he is, Holmes. Up in that box. He's getting away. After him, Watson. We can jump over the footlights into the box. Ah! I'm afraid the bird has flown, Watson. I should have remembered the theater exit doors always open from the inside. No, no, he didn't get away, Holmes. Look on the floor there. It's that Egyptian fellow. I hope you haven't wounded him too badly, no, old I don't chap. care if I have. He was trying to kill us. No, it's... Only a shoulder wound. He's fainted, infernal scoundrel. No, he's a very gallant man. Undoubtedly, he was trying to save us as you shot him just now. Holmes, what on earth are you talking about? 
Obviously, he's Moriarty. No, Watson. Moriarty just escaped through the door you heard clang a few moments ago. Then what's this man doing here? As a fellow detective, undoubtedly he followed us. Perhaps he preceded us. When Moriarty started shooting, this man tried to capture him and got wounded by you for his pains. Then who is Moriarty? He must be someone connected with this theater. It's obvious. Moriarty is Moriarty. What? You mean Frank Ferrers, the fellow that played the part on the stage? Again, remember Poe's story of a purloined letter. But why didn't, didn't you recognize him? Oh, remember, I haven't seen him for 20 years, and you haven't forgotten his genius for disguise, have you? What incredible audacity. How better could Moriarty conceal himself than by announcing nightly to the theater-going public that he was Professor Moriarty? Then he killed Sir Claude. Of course he did. Sir Claude must have persuaded Moriarty to go to the club with him. Probably he hoped to expose him in front of me, but Moriarty found out that uh, Sir Claude knew too much. Yes. So he stabbed him. Rushed back here to bait his trap for us. Yes, 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 yes. But, but how did he know that we'd, uh, we'd walk into it? Well, he knew that if Sir Claude had guessed his secret, then I certainly would. And so he was waiting for us. Oh. Hello? He's coming too. How are you feeling, my man? The... The ruby. The ruby. Did you find the ruby? Yes. Here it is, sir. Tell me, is it the ruby of Muhammad Ali? No. No. It is a fine stone, but it is not the one for which I have searched all my life. And so my endless quest must go on and on and on. He's fainted again. Ah, poor devil. Fine mess I made of this case, Watson. Well, I don't know. You've recovered the ruby? Yes, look at it, old fellow. Before I turn it over to Miss Hanshaw, look at it well. Probably its every facet stands for a bloody deed. It's a beautiful stone. And yet this lovely bauble has cost Sir Claude his life. And that devil Moriarty still goes free. But one day, Watson, and may the day come soon, I shall meet Moriarty again. And when that happens, and I finally bring him to justice, then and only then, can you write Finney to the character of Sherlock Holmes. Well, Doctor, that was kind of an exciting story. Tell me, did the Egyptian recover from his bullet wound? Yes, indeed he did, and rather quickly, too, Mr. Foreman. I felt very badly about shooting him, but of course, uh, I couldn't help it. Of course not. Uh, but you know, if I had to shoot someone accidentally, I, I wish it could have been the, the actor who portrayed me on the stage. Wretched fellow mumbled all over the place. <laughs> oh, don't worry about that. After all, you did recover the ruby. Yes, and a beautiful stone it was. The color of, uh, well, uh, the color of a fine glass of port when the light shines through it. By a fine port, I take it you're talking about a Petri port? Is there any other kind? <laughs> well, all kidding aside, Doctor, Petri port, like all Petri wines, is good wine. And I can tell you why very simply. Petri took time to bring you good wine. You see, the Petri family has been making wine for a good many generations, since way back in the 1800s. And because the Petri business has always been family-owned, everything the family has ever learned about the art of making wine, they've been able to hand down from father to son. From father to son. That adds up to a lot of skill and a lot of experience when it comes to turning 
plump, juice-filled California grapes into clear, fragrant, delicious wine. So when you want a wine for any occasion, obviously you can't go wrong with a Petri wine because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Dr. Watson, what story do you have lined up for us next week? Oh, now let me see. Next week, Mr. Foreman, I'm going to tell you a most unusual adventure that occurred to Sherlock Holmes and me early in the last World War. It took place in Flanders and concerned a famous British general, uh, an actress, and a German firing squad. Boy, that sounds like a real thriller. Well, see you here next week. No, no, no. Uh, Not here, Mr. Foreman, remember? Oh, of course. Next week, we're going to be at the Paramount Theater in Hollywood for the seventh war loan drive. That's quite right. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't invite you all to my home for one of our broadcasts, but we can get together next week at the Paramount Theater in Hollywood. You can get a free ticket for our broadcast by buying a war bond. And I sincerely hope that you will do this so that we can see you next week at this time. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of the Second Stain. Mr. Rathbone appears to the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce to the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Oh, the Petri family took the time to bring you such good wine. So when you eat and when you cook, remember Petri wine. To make good food taste better, remember... Pet, Pet, Petri. Foreman saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Okay, let's move over to NBC. We're on Monday, May 7, 1945. Cavalcade of America. The DuPont Cavalcade of America. Starring Geraldine Fitzgerald, an artist to the wounded. On the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. Springtime is home decoration time. The time to use DuPont Speed Easy to brighten up those dreary, winter-weary rooms. Speed Easy is an oil-type paint you thin with water and apply with a large brush or roller. It dries in less than an hour to a beautiful, rich finish. Then you're ready to use your room again. No long wait for walls to dry. Use Speed Easy for your redecorating this spring. It costs you less than $3 for the average room. It's Speed Easy, made by DuPont. DuPont Cavalcade presents Artist to the Wounded, 
starring Geraldine Fitzgerald as Anne Jordan. The day the bottom fell out of my world, I fell too, a long, long way. And I thought I'd never stand on my feet again. But I did, and that's my story. It happened early one afternoon in January. Miss Ann Jordan? Yes? Telegram for you. Sign here. Thank you. Thank you, Miss. War Department. Sergeant David W. Anderson. Missing in action. Missing. Dave missing. Gone. I realized only then how I'd clung to the thought of Dave all those 15 months he'd been overseas. My belief that he'd come back to me had made it possible for me to go right on working. You see, I'm an artist, a commercial artist, and I loved my work. Without Dave, suddenly my work was without meaning. Nothing had meaning. And I needed desperately to talk to someone. So that night, I went to see Helen. But you have to keep busy, Anne. What do you think other women do? I don't know. I only know I can't go on drawing senseless pictures of clothes and perfumes and... Well, there's still plenty of war work. For an artist? Elton Clark's been doing war work in the hospitals. Drawing portraits of the wounded? Drawing portraits? Yes. He says it does wonders for their morale. They get the portraits to send home to their families. Of course, Elton says it isn't an easy thing to see these boys. Crippled. Some of them psychoneurotics. Oh, I couldn't do that, Helen. But you've always wanted to do portraits. I could do the drawing all right, but... But you know how I am about talking to people. I never know what to say. Oh, you won't feel so shy, Anne, if you're doing something useful. Do you think so? Well, I think so. But why don't you try, Anne? Then if it's too difficult for you, well, give it up. Yes. I might try. Oh, but how do I start? You apply at the USO camp shows. And if you qualify, you could be on your way in a few days. In a week, I reached my first hospital. A special service officer took me to the traction ward. I went in nervously, clutching my pencils and sketch pad. And I suppose it was just bad luck that the first soldier I talked to was the cynic. Hello, soldier. Well, that's all. Would you, would you like me to draw your portrait? You want to draw my mug? What for, the funny papers? No, you can have the picture when I finish. How much? Oh, nothing. It's free. I get it. The government pays you. No, I'm a volunteer. Yeah, sure, sure. That's right. The USO camp shows a range that I'm an artist, and, and well, I get a kick out of it. Uh, you're one of these lazy, no-good dames with nothing useful to do, so it gives you a cheap thrill to come around to hospitals and see us guys all smashed up. Oh, Oh, but you're wrong. Because you're real blind to go home and tell about how this guy's got one leg, another oh, no. guy's got no hands, no. another one can't see anymore. Oh, please stop. You know I don't feel that way. Sure, that's your racket. I ain't buying any, sister. 
Just go print your papers somewhere else. Well, don't you understand English? Miss Jordan, what's the matter? What happened? It's that soldier in there. The big corporal? Has he been barking at you? Yes. I just asked him if he, if he wanted me to draw his portrait. I know. He gets pretty rough sometimes. But with these boys, we have to overlook a lot. You'll have better luck than some of the others. But I can't. I can't go back in there. It's up to you, Miss Jordan. But you'll feel better if you do go back. I know. Once you break the ice with these boys, well, you wouldn't trade the satisfaction for anything. I guess it's, I guess it's because I've always been shy. Well, I used to be shy, too. But in wartime, I think shyness is a luxury we have to do without. There's just too much work to be done. You're right. There's so much to do. Thank you, nurse. I'll try again. You looking for someone, ma'am? Hmm? No, I, uh... No one special. Ah, don't be bashful. What do you do? You're not one of the nurses. No, I'm, uh, I'm an artist. An artist? Really? Yes. Would you like me to draw your portrait to send home? Oh, ma'am, I'd surely appreciate it. Uh, no, I guess maybe you better not at that. Why? What's the matter? I guess you better draw some of the other fellows. I'm sorry. I thought you wanted it. Oh, I do. I, but I, I wouldn't want... What? Ma'am, you wouldn't put my leg in, would you? I, I mean, where there isn't any leg. I saw then. His right pajama leg was pinned back, empty. Hit me hard, that sight but I tried not to think about it as I began sketching. And then I became aware that an audience was forming at my back. A quiet, skeptical audience, mostly on crutches, a few in wheelchairs. I was so tense I could scarcely breathe. Then one of the onlookers spoke, and the ice was broken. Hey, the gal's good. Yeah, you said it. But ma'am, he's not that good. <laughs> well, what are you going to do with the picture, Johnny? Frame it? Ah, never mind. How's it going, ma'am? Am I still sitting right? Oh, you're doing fine. Let me know when you're tired. Who are you going to draw when you finish with him? Yeah. Well, you, you have to figure that out yourselves. Draw straws or something. But I'll get around to all of you if you give me time. Time, ma'am? Well, we got all the time in the world. <laughs> it was a long, hard day. And while I was finishing my last portrait... I realized it had been hours since I'd thought about Dave. Deep down, there was still pain. But it wasn't so sharp, so unbearable. And I was wonderfully tired. I knew I'd sleep that night. I felt suddenly grateful to the boys who were still crowding around me. Don't tell me you're quitting after this one. What about me? I'll get around to you tomorrow. I think eight in one day is my limit. Are you finished with mine yet? I think it's finished. And can I get copies of it? Oh, yes. The USO will make a photostatic negative. Then you can get as many copies as you want. Um, would you do something else for me, miss? Would you sure. write across the bottom of it? Sure. What do you want me to write? Write to the only girl in the world. <laughs> I see. To the only girl in the world. There you are, soldier. And now would you have 15 copies made for me? <laughs> <laughs> That's all, soldier. Good night, fellas. Good night. I'll be back early. Good night. Good night. Well, that riding horse, you had a busy day? <laughs> busy enough. 
Yeah, I've seen. You had a great time with the Romeos in this war, didn't you? Romeos? Yeah, them eager beavers. You haven't tackled a real tough customer yet. And who are the tough customers? The Sykes. The guys who got what they call uh, battle fatigue. I think they'd like the drawings, too. And I think it would help. Yeah. It'd take more than your doodling to help those boys. I just lay you plenty of odds, sister. You couldn't come within ten miles of a guy like Harry. Who's Harry? He's my buddy. Fellow who really needs help, too. He's in the cycle ward. If you can get him to like anything about you or your drawings or the world, for that matter, I'll eat your little sketch pad without salt or pepper. That night, I thought about the cynic, his bitter voice and his hatred of me. And I decided to take up his challenge. The next morning, I went to the head nurse. Yes, I know who he was talking about, Miss Jordan. The corporal's very bitter about his friend. They were buddies overseas. Then, uh, can I see Harry? It wouldn't be any use, Miss Jordan. There's simply nothing he responds to. But could I possibly do him harm? No. No, but failure may depress you again. It's difficult for a layman to accept or understand a neuropsychiatric case. I think I can stand it. Please, let me try. Well, all right, Miss Jordan. I'll arrange with the doctor. You can see Harry right after lunch. Just step in, Miss Jordan. There's a chair beside his bed. Thank you. Harry. Harry. Here's someone to see you, Harry. I don't think he'll answer, Miss Jordan. It's all right, nurse. If you'd leave me alone with him for a little while. All right. I think you'll be disappointed, but if you want anything, ring the bell. Thank you. Harry. Harry, the nurse told me you were from Minnesota. I started a picture this morning that's a little bit like Minnesota. A lake and a meadow and a hill. Would you mind if I finished it sitting here? You know, I think there's nothing more beautiful than the big pine trees growing down to a lake shore. Like this. Or the green farms cleared out of the woods. Did you live on a farm, Harry? sketched and I talked and once in a while I looked at Harry lying still as death with his eyes closed he was a big raw-boned blonde boy very thin and pale and he lay so quiet it was difficult to know if he was even breathing but I felt I believed he heard my voice and I kept on talking about the flowers and the hills and the waters of the north country and about the farms Harry, I saw a place just like this. A little white house, and then a cornfield, and then a patch of woods. See, I'm drawing it as if I were standing in the cornfield looking toward the lake. Let me... What did you say, Harry? I said, let me see. Of course. I'm drawing it for you. It's... It's wrong. Wrong? I never saw corn like that. 
But anyway, we got all wheat back home. Of course, you're right. You see, you can help me, Harry. You can tell me what it's really like back home. You are listening to Geraldine Fitzgerald as Anne Jordan in Artist to the Wounded on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. As we come to the second act of our play, Anne continues with the story of her work as an artist, drawing pictures for and of the wounded GIs in military hospitals. again when I went back to the traction ward. The cynic was propped up in bed, his left leg in a cast held rigidly at a 30-degree angle. He watched me all the way to his bed, but he didn't speak. I, uh, I saw Harry this afternoon. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well? I heard all about it. Well? It... Oh, I know you think I've been a first-rate punk. No. I think I understand you, Corporal. Yeah, but I've been calling you all sorts of things and been mad and sore, and... That was you that got through to Harry. Oh, you must think I've been a punk. No, I don't. Look, tell me all about your outfit, the one that you and Harry were in together. Well, well, it was the uh, 36th Division. The 36th? Yeah, the good old 36th Infantry. Best outfit in the whole army, too. That's the one that... that he... Oh, did you know somebody in the 36th? Yes. He's... He's missing in action. Oh, now, now, wait a minute. Uh, maybe the Jerry's talking about prisoner. Uh, maybe he was wounded. No. They let me know if he were in a hospital. Uh, what did you say your man's name was? Sergeant David Anderson. He was in Germany and... David Anderson? Tall, dark guy, sort of thin. Yes. Do you know him? Do you? Hey, wait up now. Don't blow your top. Uh, was, he a, was he a tech sergeant? Yes. Yes, he was. Well, sure. He used to call me old pickle puss. Yeah, that guy's not missing an action. I saw the medics carry him back from the lines. It was something to go on. It gave me hope. And with the cynic's help, I began my search. He made all sorts of suggestions to whom I should write and what hospitals I should visit. But it was several weeks and many hospitals later before I knew. I'm sorry, Miss Jordan. Sergeant Anderson doesn't want anyone to see him. But, but why? Is he crippled? Doctor, is it his eyes? No, he's one of our neuropsychiatric cases, Miss Jordan. Oh. He's deeply depressed. Believes he's mutilated. That his face is badly scarred. Is it? There's a scar, yes. Looks like a pencil line. But his fears have made him believe that people will find him repulsive. Especially you, his fiancée. Oh, oh, can't you make him see that... No, he won't listen. And he refuses to look in a mirror. His fears are deep-seated. Especially a fear of pity. If, if I could only tell him, maybe from me... No, you see, Miss Jordan, our only hope is that he completely trusts us. If we take you to see him, he'll think we betrayed him. He won't believe you either. 
Doctor, I have an idea. I want you to let me try just one thing. Yes? What's your idea? Is there any place where I could see Dave without his knowing that I'm there? Oh, no, really, Miss Jordan. It's not morbid curiosity, Doctor. I want to draw his portrait. Draw his portrait? Yes, every line of his face, the scar and all. And then? I want you or the nurse to show it to him. That's all. Well, you think he'll accept a drawing? I don't know. I only hope, since he won't look in a mirror. I wonder. I don't see how it could do harm. I'm sure it wouldn't. Very well, Miss Jordan. You come along. If Sergeant Anderson is on the sun porch, you can begin right now. At the end of a corridor on the third floor, there were wide glass doors. And beyond them was the sun porch where the wounded sat dozing in their wheelchairs. The doctor and I went through the doors, and then he motioned for me to stop behind a screen. I don't think we can go closer than this, Miss Jordan. But, but where is he? I don't see him. The fourth man down. Looks as though he's sleeping. Oh. Oh, no. Dave. Is he so changed? He's so thin, so terribly thin. Doctor. Yes? Why can't I speak to him? I must speak to it him. It was your own idea, Miss Jordan, to draw his portrait. Yes, but now... Do you want to injure him? Retard his recovery? Oh, no, no, of course not. Well, unless he's first convinced about his scar, seeing you will do nothing but harm. Now, you must understand that. Yes. Yes, you're right. You're right. I'll try. cheekbones stood out in his gaunt face and his eyes were deep in his head and I could see the scar a thin but livid line across his right cheek his hair was uncombed he hadn't shaved for days and he was slumped in that lethargy I'd seen so often the lethargy of a man who has accepted death in life more than anything I wanted to go to him but instead I sat down, trembling, and began to sketch. I knew it was the most important portrait I had ever done. I worked carefully, and I didn't notice when the doctor went away. It was more than an hour later when he returned. About through, Miss Jordan? I think I've finished, doctor. It's hard to know. Ah, let me see. Why, say, that's a photographic likeness. It was difficult. It's hard for me to see him objectively. I tried to get it all. The scar. Certainly not flattering. Well, now we'll see. Hmm? Yes, we'll see. But, Doctor, let me take it to him. I must show it to him. But you said... I that have you... to. He'll know it's my drawing anyway. He knows my work. Yes, I suppose that's true. So that if he sees me... Yes, I suppose he'll... He'll have to know you're here. We'll have to tell him. Very well, Miss Jordan, go ahead. But for his sake... Keep cool. Oh, I will, Doctor. Thank you. Hello, Dave. Annie. Hello. Annie, how did you get here? How did you know? I looked for you, and, and I found you. But I... I don't want you here. I don't want to see you. I had to see you, Dave. You know that. No one wants to see me, no one. So go away. 
Please. Go away and leave me alone. Well, did you hear me? All right, Dave. I'll go if you want me to. But first, I want to give you something. I don't want anything. It's only a drawing. Please, look. Well, well, Dave. I've seen it. So what? Don't, don't you know who it is? Who? It looks like, like someone. It's a drawing of you, Dave. You're lying. It isn't me. Look at it. You're lying. Where's the scar? It's there. See? The line across the cheek. But my scar's bigger. This isn't me. I have a big scar. My face is worse than this. A lot worse. Dave, put your fingers on your scar. That's right. Feel it. Now, look at the picture. It was bigger, I tell you. Doesn't it feel the same as it looks in the picture? Doesn't it? Is that all there is? Just, just a line? Mm-hmm. That's all. Just a line, a thin line like that. What color is it? It's a little red, but it'll turn white. That's all? Look at the rest of my face. Look at me. What's wrong with you? Nothing but... Any... Tell somebody to bring me a razor. Can't you see I need a shave? <laughs> I'll get you a razor. But, but even with the beard, Sergeant, would you give me a kiss? Thanks to you, Geraldine Fitzgerald, and to all members of tonight's DuPont Cavalcade cast. <laughs> now, here is Gain Whitman. The P-80, shooting star, the new jet plane developed at Lockheed for the Army Air Forces, is said to fly 700 miles an hour. 700 miles an hour is almost 12 miles a minute, very nearly the speed of sound. At that speed, the air doesn't feel soft, as it does when a summer breeze gently touches your cheek. It feels, pilots say, like ramming at full speed into a pile of cordwood. The pilot is bounced and banged around inside the ship. The plane itself takes punishment, inside and out. This problem of moving objects through air at high speed is one our forefathers never anticipated. When the steam locomotive was invented, you may recall, it was gravely predicted that no human being would be able to live at the terrific speed of 30 miles an hour because speed that great would draw the air right out of his lungs. Today, man is traveling at more than 20 times the speed of the early locomotives through the air. You can prove for yourself that air resists an object moving through it, Make a ball out of rags, the weight of a baseball, throw it as far as you can, and then throw a baseball. The ball made of rags slows down and falls to the earth long before the baseball. Because its rough surface, you might say, tears a rough hole through the air. To make its way through the air at high speed, a projectile must be smooth. An arrow is smooth. A bullet is smooth. For the same reason, the shooting star, jet plane, 
is smooth. As smooth as the finish on your piano. A special airfoil lacquer developed by DuPont Research is used on the P-80. Buffed and polished until it's so lustrous you can actually see your face in it. This new finish for the P-80 shooting star is only the latest of many special finishes perfected for wartime tasks by DuPont chemists and engineers and made with scientific accuracy by the men and women in DuPont plants, the team whose year-in, year-out effort to create new materials and improve old ones brings you the DuPont Company's better things for better living through chemistry. Let us not forget in this hour of victory in Europe that our battle is but half won. There is much more to be done, both abroad and at home, before America can return to the ways of peace. Let us rededicate ourselves to the things we must do at home, things that may have become commonplace in our thinking, but which are vital to our continued military success. Continue to be careful in the use of your car to save it from the scrap heap. Continue to save all the waste paper and fats. And most important, stick to your job. On this momentous occasion, we of DuPont pledge that we will not slow our effort one minute until the last gun is fired and peace has once more returned to all the world. That is the pledge and promise of the men and women who work for DuPont. Mark Twain said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, that was many years ago, and Mark Twain can be forgiven for knowing nothing about the United States Army Forces Weather Service. Next week, the DuPont Cavalcade will bring you an exciting new play about the AAF Weather Service and the vital part it played in the Battle of the Bulge. Next week's play is called Weather is a Weapon, and our star will be Dana Andrews. Music for tonight's DuPont Cavalcade was composed and conducted by Robert Armbruster. Our Cavalcade play was written by Bernard Rines and was based on materials supplied by USO Camp Shows, one of the vital agencies you helped to support by contributing to your local United War Fund campaign. This is Frank Graham inviting you to listen next week to Weather is a Weapon, an exciting play about the AAF Weather Service starring Dana Andrews on the Cavalcade of America... Brought to you by the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware.
This is the National Broadcasting Company. Now let's move to CBS. Monday, May 7, 1945, Lux Radio Theater. Enter. Lux presents Hollywood. The Lux Radio Theater brings you Bing Crosby, Joan Caulfield, James Dunn and Elizabeth Patterson in Sing You Sinners. Ladies and gentlemen, your guest producer, Mr. Mitchell Lyson. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Our hearts tonight are on the other side of the Atlantic. And so, quite properly, if any news of importance should develop, this performance of the Lux Radio Theater will be interrupted. Here on our stage tonight, we have a rather unusual combination. First and foremost, the winner of this year's Academy Award as the outstanding motion picture actor. Second, a man who combines his thespian talents with such business projects as a cattle ranch, an airplane factory, and a Hollywood producing unit. Finally, we have a genial performer who plays Hollywood's best golf and wears the most outrageous shirts in screendom. These are not three men, of course, but one, Bing Crosby. He appears tonight in his original screen role in Sing You Sinners from my home studio, Paramount, where Bing has just finished his forthcoming picture, Road to Utopia. Co-starred with Bing on our stage tonight is another veteran, an ever-popular performer, James Dunn. While in behalf of romance, we present the fresh and glamorous Joan Caulfield, who will soon be seen in her first starring role in Paramount's Miss Susie Slagles. Also in tonight's cast, as the lovable Mrs. Beebe is Elizabeth Patterson, who played the same role on the screen. Sing You Sinners is the story of a happy-go-lucky family before the war, their trials and laughter, fortunes and misfortunes. A family perhaps not quite like yours and mine, but typically American in their loyalty, romanticism, and good humor. I don't know whether they use Lux flakes or not, but if they're typically American, it's certainly a safe guess that they do. Maybe that's what keeps them singing. And maybe that formula will have the same effect on you. For a song in your heart as you wash those dishes and wash those precious fabrics clean, try Lux Flakes. And now the curtain rises on Act One of Sing You Sinners, starring Bing Crosby as Joe, James Dunn as David, Joan Caulfield as Martha, and Elizabeth Patterson as Mrs. Beebe. When a good mother has stood for hours over a hot stove so that her three sons may have a healthful and appetizing dinner, and when those three sons are late as usual, and the dinner is slowly being cooked away to nothingness, the good mother has a perfect right and privilege to bang the pots around. Uh-oh. Mrs. Beebe is banging her pots around right now. Won't even be fit for the dog. I ought to know better by now. Try and fix something decent for... Is that you, Dave? That's me. Hello, Mother. Hello, Mother, my eye. I suppose it'll never mean a thing to you that when you say you want supper at 6 o'clock, I expect you'd be here to eat it. I'm sorry, Mom, but a fellow came in late with a brake relining job. 
What's for dinner, Mom? Don't touch that pot. <coughs> oh, it's hot. Told you not to touch it. Oh, pot roast. Why can't we, we have macaroni sometime? Because as long as I'm cooking, we'll eat for our health around here. You know macaroni makes Joe fat. Yeah. But it's not macaroni, it's lack of work. There's Michael. Every time he comes in, the pictures fall off the wall. Oh, Mom. We hear you. Hiya, Dave. Hello, Mike. Hello, Mom. What are you doing lately? Going to night school? Hey, what's for supper, Mom? Don't touch that pot. Ouch, ouch. Pot roast, huh? Joe's favorite. Why don't we ever have hot dogs? I love hot dogs like my own life. Take off your hat. Go wash your face. Okay, okay. What were you doing, Michael? Why were you so late? Oh, I was studying at the library. Studying? Studying what? Oh, about the world and stuff like that. You know. Yeah, we know. Here I am, Mom. About time, too. Hiya, man. Hiya, Joe. Hello, Joe. Hello, Mom. How are you? Well, where were you? Looking for a job? Yeah, at the pool room. Dave, that is not kind. <laughs> Mom, what uh, what goes on the menu tonight? Don't touch that pot. No. Don't you boys ever learn. Well, fill my mouth. It's pot roast. <laughs> yes. Sit down before it dries up and blows away. If we don't get a little more order around here, I'll never cook another bite, so help me. Someday, you night owls will come home and find me lying on a chaise lounge eating chocolate bonbons. Michael, where are you going? I want to get the ketchup. Grab some chili sauce. Bring the mustard, too, Mike. I already got it. Here. What's the use of cooking a decent meal, watching a bunch of idiots splatter it with junk? Take some of that cauliflower, Michael. Oh, Ma, it smells like old laundry. <laughs> I said take some cauliflower. Okay, okay. Gee, I hate Well, Dave, I, I was walking down the street today, seeing what would turn up. Happened to catch sight of you and Martha driving along. Nobody talking. Looked pretty dull. Two of you stiff as a poker there. Uh, pass the rolls, will you, Joe? You know, if I had a little number like that dog in my tracks for three years, I'd, I'd turn in my suit. Joe. Be quiet. Yeah, you keep your yap shut about Martha. What's the matter with you? All I keep saying is, why don't you marry the gal? You know darn well why I don't marry her. Because you haven't got enough vinegar to pitch in and help keep this family going. Listen, can I help it if there's nothing in this burg for a guy with ideas? What ideas? Outsmarting some chump at the pool hall for a couple of bucks? Swapping the shirt off your back for a brass doorknob? All right, all right, go ahead. Put me on all you want about swapping. But you can't show me a big man in this country today who didn't get where he is by swapping something for... For something. Or something. Dave, you shouldn't lay into Joe that way. Why don't you go ahead and do what he tells you? Sure, get married and then find out you can't take care of yourselves after I'm set. No, thanks. Well, now, listen. Let's quit talking about it. Well, I'm only trying to tell you what I did this afternoon. What? Well, I, uh, I got us a job at a dance in Pleasanton. You got, oh! Listen, Joe, how many times do I have to tell you I don't want any more of that trio stuff? Well, it's a job, ain't it? Is that the only kind of a job you can get? One way you have to drag Mike and me in on it? All right, all right. I don't like it any more than you do. But what am I going to say when a man offers us 15 bucks? Yes, what should he say to that? Yeah. Now, look, Joe. I work in a garage, see? I've got a decent job and I like it. And if you expect me to spend my nights blowing my brains into a clarinet while you sing to a lot of screwballs bouncing around a dance floor, well... I'm a man, doggone it, and I want to stay one. Me too. I built up a tough reputation working out horses at the fairgrounds all summer, and then bang, you shove an accordion into my hands and turn me into a Buster Brown. You keep quiet. Now listen, Dave, I know how you feel. You feel the same way as I do about singing, Oh, but... is that so? After I've spent every last cent your father left us to teach you music, you all go around blabbing you won't play or sing because you're men. What's the matter with you, men sing? I don't care, Mom, I won't do it. All right, the whole thing's off. 
It is not all. As long as you can earn a nickel by opening your trap or squeezing the music box, you're going to do it. When's that dance? Tonight. Now, listen, Mom. I got a date with Martha tonight. Take Martha to the dance. No, I won't do it. We'll see about that. Joe didn't have any right to book no a dance use. without telling well, me anyway. Martha, and that right. settles it. I don't want to do it any more than you I do. say you're going, all of you. So you might as well shut up about it and start getting ready. I'm no millionaire. But I'm not the type to care I've got a pocket full of dreams It's my universe Even with an empty purse I've got a pocket full of dreams I wouldn't take all the wealth on Wall Street For a road where nature trots And I calculate I'm worth my weight in golden rod Lucky, lucky me I can live in luxury I've got a pocket full of dreams Oh, I'm no millionaire But I'm not the type to care I've got a pocket full of dreams It's my universe Even when an empty purse I've got a pocket full of dreams I wouldn't take all the wealth on Wall Street for a road where nature trod and I calculate that I'm worth my weight in golden rods lucky lucky me I can live in luxury I've got a pocket full of I thought you were grand, Dave, all of you. Oh, thanks, Martha. I hated to drag you out this way. Oh, don't be silly, Dave. I liked it. Yeah, but look, you may not like what's coming next. Why, what's the matter, darling? Well, a fellow called from town, and there's a truck stall out on Highway Number 9. You mean you've got to go out there? Well, I could pick up $10 pretty easy, Martha. And every nickel counts on that house we're going to build. Someday. (laughs) We'll build that house all right. You wait and see. Go ahead, darling. I'll need that $10 for drapes. Oh, gee, darling. It's like sort of a dream, isn't it? Oh, yes. But that truck isn't. Hurry up and get it unstalled. Okay. I'll get Joe to take you home. Hey, Joe, Joe. Here you are, Dave. Here's the loot. Oh, boy, you know, that's that's pretty happy scratch for two songs, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, Joe, do me a favor, will you? Take Martha home for me. What's the deal? Well, I got a job to do. I'll take Mike along to help, and you can have the car. And here, here's a buck. You can buy her sandwich and coffee on the way. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Say, you're getting kind of liberal with your little girlfriend, aren't you? Well, if you can't trust your own brother, what do you say? Sure, if you're willing to let her go out with me, I'm not going to knock it. Now, give me the keys to the car, will you? Here, and take it easy. I want to back all in one piece. Kind of a rough roll, ain't it? Having the boyfriend walk out on you? Oh, I don't mind. It's all for a good cause. Dave and I will make up for it someday when we're married. Whenever that may be. (laughs) Don't tell me. I know. As soon as I get a job and hold it. Why don't you, Joe? You could easily. I could, but it breaks up my whole day, really. (laughs) When money comes my way, it's going to come fast and plenty. You wait. I am waiting. I don't seem to be exactly on your side at that, do I? It's too bad you aren't my girl. What? What? 
I'd worry about the family until after the wedding. Then you'd be mine. Nothing else would matter anyway. I wish Dave felt that way. I mean, sometimes I do. But unfortunately, you're not my lily, except for tonight. Well, here we are. Here we are where? Well, Dave told me to hit you with some groceries, didn't he? You mean we're going to that that joint over there? What do you mean, joint? That's the finest roadhouse in these parts, the old Straggle Inn. Mm, Straggle Inn and stagger out. (laughs) Listen, I don't even come here with Dave. All the more reason why you should see it. Touch of nightlife. You've got a mix, gal. Mix. Good for you. Do you think Dave would mind? What mind? It's only his girl and his money. (laughs) Come on, let's go. What do you think of it? Where do all these people come from? They come from some of our finest families, <laughs> practically. Well, I still say we shouldn't be here. Now, listen, what's wrong with this place? It's quiet, restful. Oh, brother. Well, don't you think so? All right, you good people, all right. Now, I really think that with a little bit of applause, we might be able to bring about a little bit of extra added attraction here this evening. Now, sitting right over there is that Stokesbury Flash himself, Master Joe Beebe. Come on, Joe, what do you say? How about it? What kind of a hustle is this here, huh? Oh, go on, Joe. Well, I guess you mean it, but I'm going to hold it against you. <laughs> Step right up, Joe. Thanks, Mouse. Well, uh, what'll it be, fella? Why don't we take a little uh, whack at uh, that song, Don't Let That Moon Get Away, and wait for me on the curves, I'll huh? I'll be with you. A one, a two... It's one of those nights for adventure We ought to be recklessly gay Who knows what we'll find So if you're inclined Don't let that moon get away Your eyes have a way of revealing The thoughts that you really should say It may be romance So while there's a chance, don't let that moon get away. And don't let this meeting adjourn. And don't be so ready to go. For now is the right time to learn. For every young heart should know. These moments don't happen so often. Doesn't seem right to delay If you feel it too Whatever you do Don't let that moon get away And don't let this meeting adjourn And don't be so ready to go For now is the right time to learn What every young heart should know These moments don't happen so often It doesn't seem right to delay If you feel it too, whatever you do Don't let that moon get away Thanks a lot, Joe. Lovely, lovely. Miss. Who ordered the drinks? Compliments to the bartender. Thanks, partner. I can't drink this stuff. Oh, you have to drink it. 
compliments of the bartender. Hey, I miss. Hey, I Joe. Whose birthday is it? That's the compliments of the band leader. And there's another round coming up from one of the customers. Oh, my. Well, I'm beginning to see where music has its good points. What are you what are you breaking up about? What's so funny? Oh, here? you. For a fellow who hates music, do you know how many times you sang at that place? Those were for you. Oh. As a matter of fact, if you weren't Dave's girl, I'd make a big play for you. I'd tell I'd tell you I love you. Oh, you don't love me. You're just feeling good. The same thing, isn't it? <laughs> how you feel? Fine. A little excited. That's love. Oh, it is not. Compliments of the house. You know what I bet? I bet we'd get along like a million bucks, you and I. What do you like that Dave for, anyway? Oh, I don't know. Lots of reasons, I guess. You better give me a little tumble. I'm a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> you. you see there? I haven't even opened my trap, and I'm a riot. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! Yippee! Ollie, ollie, out in free! Woo-hoo! Run, sheep, run! One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, and beefsteak. Yippee! Joe, you're passing the house. Woohoo! Yippee! There you are, Martha. Joe Beebe delivers them safe and sound. And a little bit late. Dave! Hiya, Pappy. You been waiting up for us there? Where were you? We've been on the town, old boy, taking in the sights. I was showing the little woman what she's going to miss by marrying you. You're drunk. He didn't buy the drinks, Dave. They, they just kept giving them to him and asking him to sing. All right, Pappy, so I'm lit. I'm fractured, fractured, fractured. I took your girl out. I showed her the first good time she's had since she started going with you. So what? If you weren't my brother, I... Yeah, you're America's big brother. Honest, hardworking, and you're stupid as a duck. Why don't you get wise to yourself, you big chump? Why, you... Dave! Oh, Dave. I... Oh, I didn't mean to do that. All of a sudden, I... Go inside, Martha, will you? And I'll see you tomorrow. He didn't realize what he was saying. I, I know, I know. But go, go in, will you? And I'll take him home. Good night. Good night. Oh. Oh, oh come on, Joe. Come on, get up. I, I didn't mean it, Joe. Come on, kid, stand up. Take it easy now. We don't want to wake Mom. Oh, you should have hit me harder, Dave. Why didn't you really tag me? You should have nailed me. You know what I'd do to a guy like me, Dave? I'd shove my fist right through his chops. Why didn't you hit me harder, Dave? Why? Now, now be quiet. I tell you, you really should have now. Shut up, will you? Go inside and I'll get you to bed. I can't see anything. Well, the bed's over here. <laughs> I found it. <laughs> quiet. Dave, Joe, what's the matter? Mike, get out of here. Gosh. What happened to you, Joe? I got what was coming to me, that's all. Did somebody slug you? Are you okay, Joe? Oh, boy. Mike, get out of here, will you, before you wake up, Mom? But he's in trouble, ain't he? I gotta help. We don't need you now, Mike. Get out of here. Go on, get. Okay, okay. Gee. Come on, get your clothes off. Dave, sometimes I turn into such a heel that I surprise even myself. You know what I was trying to do tonight? Move in on your gal. Ah, give me a foot. I'm glad you clunked me, Dave. And you don't have to worry about Martha. Boy, she's all for you. And I'm all for both of you. Give me your other foot. You think I'm no good, but I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to fix it so you can marry Martha. You watch me, Dave. 
When I think of what you've done for me and this family, never squawking unless somebody gets away out of line. Gee, you're the kind of fellow I want to be, Dave. Yeah, I know, I know. Now, come on, get under the covers. Did I tell you about my surprise, Dave? Did I tell you? Yes, you told me. Good night. Oh. Good night, Dave. Good night, Pappy. Good night, Joe. I heard him opening and closing the drawers. Why, he can't be going. Where would he go? All right, Mom. I'll speak to him. Hello, folks. Joe, you packed the grip. Yeah, I'm leaving, Mom. Why, Joe? Well, you don't have to ask me that, Mom. I'm going to go to Los Angeles. I'm going to prove that I can amount to something. I'll fend for you and Mike the minute I get set. But we want you here. Please, now, don't ask me to stay. Joe, not not even for dinner. It's pot roast left over. Sorry, Mom. Give us a kiss, huh? Oh, Joe. Well, Dave, I'm going to ask you not to leave, Joe. Me too. Well, thanks, but this is what I want to do. Whatever you say. Dave, you know I, I don't fit into this town. I'm, I'm going to go where I can do the family some good. You're going to be surprised one of these days when I send for the folks and... I give you that okay on marrying Martha? Well, if that's why you're leaving, Joe, you don't have to. Oh, I, I know what I'm doing. Well, you'll need some money. No, thanks. This is on me. So long, Dave. So long, Joe. Be seeing you soon, Mom. Oh, Joe, I, I wish you wouldn't. Well, I got to. Goodbye. So long, Mike. Dave. Gee. Well, he finally made his break. I'm sorry he did, but I'm glad, too, because it'll bring out the fight I know he's got in him. His paw was the same way, just drifted along without a worry in the world till you boys started coming. Then he dug in and worked without stopping till the day he died. God bless I'm going upstairs. Good night, Mom. You know, Mike... You don't realize until he's gone just how you feel about him. Good night, Mike. Good night. Gee, this is the darnest family. In just a moment, our stars will bring you the second act of Sing Your Sinners. Why, Sally, come out from behind that magnifying glass and hunting cap. I hardly recognized you. Shh, Mr. Kennedy, I'm a detective. Oh, and what kind of a mystery are you detecting? A murder. Ooh, give us the gory details. The pale, lifeless body was found in a trash can in an alley. One shoulder was broken and the sides were torn and mutilated. How horrible. Did Sally Sherlock find any clues as to the perpetrator of this foul deed? Mm-hmm. One Monday morning, I saw a girl hanging out her wash. The colors were faded and the print dress she had on looked drab. She was drying nice slips and nighties that should have been hung indoors right out in the bright sunlight. So that made her a suspect? A very good one. I followed her to market and what do you suppose she was buying? Poison? It was a box of strong wash day soap. Although there was a package of Lux Flakes staring her right in the face. That clinched it. 
I knew I had to act quickly then to prevent another murder. I hope you caught her in time. Yes, I burst into her kitchen just as she was about to torture her latest victim. She was putting a lovely satin slip into hot water and strong suds. Did she plead guilty? Of course, all the evidence was against her. The hot water and strong soap, rough handling, and the faded clothes on the wash line and poor discarded slip in the alley. Oh, so the body was a slip. Yes, its color was lifeless, its shoulder straps frayed, and its side seams pulled out from careless washing. That girl was guilty, all right. Guilty of murdering her nice undies and robbing them of the long life that they could have led. What was the sentence? Life. I sentenced her to give her undies long life with gentle Lux care. But that's no punishment, Sally. With Lux care, her nice underthings would stay lovely three times as long as they did with hot water, strong soap, and rough handling. Tests prove it. Well, I figured she'd had enough punishment already, Mr. Kennedy. Always having to buy new lingerie, only to have it fade and wear out too soon. So from now on, she'll use nothing but gentle Lux flakes and lukewarm water. And her undies will stay color bright and new looking throughout a long and useful life. Back now to Mitchell Lyson and our stars. As I said in the beginning of the program, we will interrupt this broadcast in the event of any important news bulletins. And now act two of Sing You Sinners, starring Bing Crosby as Joe, James Dunn as David, Joan Caulfield as Martha, and Elizabeth Patterson as Mrs. Beebe. Long months have passed, and nothing has been heard from Joe since he left home. At last comes a telegram for Mrs. Daisy Beebe. Dear Mom, pack Mike's other shirt and hurry to Los Angeles. I'm in the swap shop business and cleaning up. Tell Dave to get married before Martha realizes her mistake. Love, Joe. Mike! Mike Joe's got a swap shop. He wants us with him. We're going to Los Angeles. There he is, Mom. There's Joe. Oh, hey, Joe. Well, 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 yeah, I thought you'd never get here. Hiya, Mom. Oh, Joe, I'm so glad to see you. Hello, Joe. Hiya, Mike. Well, you sure did it, didn't you? Look at that suit, Mom. Oh, you look good, oh, Joe. Oh, you betcha. We're in the chips now. Hey, Red Cap. Hey, get a hold of those bags, will you? Yes, sir. Want a cab? Well, certainly. Why not? A cab? Oh, boy. Come on, come on. Say, Mom, why didn't Dave get married before you left? Well, he just wanted to be sure that everything was all right here first. All right. Are you kidding? Oh, oh, Joe, I'm so happy. Where do you live, Joe? You got a swimming pool? Well, no, not yet, kid. Give me a couple of weeks. I'm I'm so anxious to see the house, Joe. Well, we're not going home right away, Mom. I got to make a stop first. You better get ready for the biggest surprise of your life. Oh, Joe. Just take a little turn right over there, driver. Pull Pull up in front of that barn, huh? Okay. Joe, what is this place? It's a racetrack, ain't it, Joe? Hold your hats, folks. Okay, driver. You can wait, huh? Yes, sir. Come on, Mom. What in the world? Come along now. Right over here, Mom. Howdy, Mr. Joe. Morning, Felder. How's the big boy today? Oh, he's just fine, Mr. Joe. (laughs) Hear that? He's getting to know you already. Hi, Gus, old boy. Joe, will you please tell us? Folks, I want you to meet Uncle Gus, the grandest racehorse that ever peeked through a bridle. Racehorse? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Mom, if you ever looked your fortune in the face, there it is. There's the horse that's going to carry the three of us right into that field of clover. You mean it's ours? Really ours? Front and back. Oh, boy. Why, Joe, you mean to tell me that you can afford to keep a racehorse out of what you take in at the swap shop? Swap shop? Oh, I have some news for you, Mom. I, I swapped it. You swapped it? Mm-hmm. 
For what? Uncle Gus. But where are you working? Right here, training Uncle Gus. You get paid for it? No, no. Well, where do you make your money? Well, uh, not making any right now, but as soon as Uncle Gus starts racing, it'll only be a couple of months. Joe, we'll do you realize that you coast. sent for us, told Dave to get married, told us to sell There's the house? nothing to worry about, Mom. Things might be a little tight for a while, but we're loaded. I got a nice little house, two months' rent paid, credit at the market, credit for Uncle Gus's feed bill. Sure, he don't need a job. No. We got a racehorse. Sure. Can I ride Uncle Gus, Joe? Can I be a jockey? You shut your trap. <laughs> Joe, are you crazy? What are you going to do when your credit runs out? Are we all supposed to move in on Dave and Martha? Never happened. Never happened. Now, believe me, Mom, you've got to take a chance if you're going to amount to something. And my chance came. Yes. Your chance came and you traded yourself right out of it. Just the same as you've done ever since you were old enough to have a thought in your head. Now, don't worry. Whatever you do, Mom, don't worry. Say, uh, you got a dollar for filter? I got to keep him eating, you know. Oh, dear. Just a, a buck will be enough. Uh -huh. Thanks, Mom. Here you are, Felder. Pork chops tonight, boy. Thank you, sir. Keep Uncle Gus in good shape. Stay right under them hind feet. Yes, sir. Come All on. the time. Come on, Mom. Don't you want me to stay here, Joe? Don't you think I ought to stay with Uncle Gus? Oh, no. We're going home. That is if Mom's got the cab fare. Now, listen here, Joe. Oh, now, stop worrying, Mom. Come on home. We'll talk it over. Here's the living room, Mom. That's the dining room over there behind that screen. I know it isn't much of a place, but... Will you stay, Mom? Please. There's nothing else we can do. And remember this. I'll say we'll stay. Look at me on Uncle Gus. Not I'm coming fast. around the turn. Pull I'm coming like a house of fire. I'm out. way ahead. Stop it, Michael. I say remember this. As far as Dave and Martha are concerned, you still have the swap shop and you're earning money. They mustn't find out the truth. You understand? Yes, Mom. Because no matter what happens to us, you're not going to ruin things again for them. Can you imagine that? All upset when we got us a racehorse. Mom, if I didn't know you yeah, so well... Yeah, Yes, I'm afraid we all know each other too well. Hello, Mom. We're back. Hiya, Mom. What's for supper, Mom? Ouch! There's a stew for supper, as usual. Did you get that fool horse entered in a race yet? Fool horse, that's fine talk. Only today he breathes three quarters and one fourteen flat hard breathes hell that wouldn't have blown 14. out a match. I asked you a simple question. When is Uncle Gus going to run? In a couple of weeks he shall parade postward. We've got to wait for our spot. Yes, it's been a couple of weeks for the last two months. Michael, I told you not to clean those jockey boots in the kitchen. We're going to leave this house like we found it. Oh, my. Hey. Hey, that's right, isn't it? We get kicked out of here in three days, don't we? Mm. Yes, in three days. Mm -hmm. And you sit there like a king reading that crazy horse paper. Do you realize we won't even have a roof over our heads? Yes, maybe so, but in a couple of weeks, we'll be right back on top again. Yes, on top of the bread line. Oh, answer that, Michael. Uh, t tell him we'll pay him next week. Okay, I'm getting good with that yarn. There's just one thing I can be thankful for. That Dave and Martha don't know what's happening here. Dave ever found oh, out. Mom, now wait a minute. Nobody's going to find out about anything. Hiya, son. Hello, Mike. Well, looky here. Oh. Hey, Mom, it's oh, Dave. Oh, all right, Mom. Going? All right. All right. Oh, oh, yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, act just like those letters you wrote. Everything's oh. fine. Get it? Now oh, stick yes, to yes, it. Yes, Stay yes, in there. Fine. Don't weaken, Mom. Oh, don't hiya, don't there. weaken. Oh, Hiya, Joe. Oh, Dave. Hiya, Dave. Hello, Mother Beavy. 
Oh, well, are you married? Are you on your honeymoon? Better yet, we're going to be married right here. Oh, that's so sweet of you. I did so want to see the wedding. Well, that's what we thought. The whole family, you know. Say, Dave, have you heard the news? Joe's got himself a ra- Up them down. Ouch! What's the matter? Uh, Michael, go, go straighten up your room. Oh, he's so darn fidgety. <laughs> go on, go on. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you like the house? Oh, it's quite a place. Nice, but, isn't it? Yeah. We're going to build a house ourselves pretty soon. But, uh, when do you have to go back? Oh, in four or five days. Oh. What's wrong? Oh, uh, nothing. Only, uh, we are moving in three days. Well, what's the matter with this? Well, it's kind of small. Say, <laughs> you must be a one-man riot around this town. Doing what? <laughs> Say, how about getting married right here, huh? Throw a little feed somewhere so nobody will have to cook. Wine with the grub, maybe, huh? <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, it'll kind of be kind of nice being all together again. Mm-hmm. Oh, say, Joe, I uh, got a laugh for you. What's that, dude? I brought all our old instruments along so you can dump them in the swap shop. Oh, you did? The accordion, the clarinet, and your guitar. <laughs> sure feel good to know they're gone, huh? Yes, won't it? Dave, look at me. Our own color. Hey. Michael. What's the idea of the jockey suit? Look, Dave, I'm coming into the stretch. It's Uncle Gus by a head, Uncle Gus by a length, Uncle Gus pulling away. Look at me go. Hey, what is this? What's the idea? Well, that's what I wanted to tell you. I'm a real apprentice jockey now, and I'm going to ride Uncle Gus that Joe traded for his swap shop. And I'm going to win on him, too, because we got to win on him on account of getting kicked out of this place. Can you stay and see me ride, Dave? Can you... Shut up! Well, Joe, what's this all about? Well, there's nothing much to tell except that We've got this Uncle Gus instead of the swap shop. We've got a chance to make a lot of money, though. And you're going to get kicked out of here. David, I I don't think we ought to burden Martha with any family trouble. This is a great thing to walk into after planning like we did. Martha, you step outside for a few minutes, will you? Well, certainly, but Dave, no matter what happens... Please, Martha. All right, darling. Now, David, I think... It was nice reading your letters how well Joe was well, doing. Well, I thought it was better. Yeah, better, better to lie instead of telling me the facts that Joe's no better than he ever was, that he can no more take care of a family than he can fly. Well, what are you using for money? Well, there's a fellow down the pool hall We have credit. Me. Yeah, sure, we got... Well, and who's going to pay off? I am, as soon as my horse starts to running. Joe, if I thought it'd do any good, I'd sock you right in the kisser. All right. Now, where do you stand, and how long can you hold out? Well, it's like this. We've got a... Well, Dave, what's the bad news? Can you imagine a guy like that sending for his family? They're broke, aren't they? They're $400 in debt and not a chance to pay off. And mother and the kid living on beans. What are you going to do about it? Well, there's only one thing to do. Stay here and get them straightened out. And me? Oh, well, maybe it won't take long, Martha. If you'll only wait. Oh, but why? Let's be married tomorrow, just as we planned, and, and I can stay here and help. Drag you into this mess? Marry you into a family that won't even have a place to hang its hats? I'll get a job here. That'll help some. Can't you understand, Martha? That the one thing I want to do is to give you that house and everything we've talked about. But marrying you now, moving you into a lot of trouble, I'm not going to do it. Oh, Dave, you don't think the way I do and never will. Because if you did, you wouldn't care what was happening. You'd only know that you loved me and nothing on earth could stop you from marrying me. Martha. Oh, they'll never change this family. And I love them for it. I'm going home now, Dave, and I don't want to hear from you until you've realized that they're going to be just as much a part of our future as we are, trouble and all. You'd better find that out in a hurry, Dave. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
Where's Martha? She's gone. And I don't blame her. Why? After what you've done, you pull that. Joe, if I did half what I wanted to do, I'd kick you all the way back to Stokesbury. I've lost Martha. I'm losing my job on account of you. And now I'm almost losing my mind. Now grab that guitar and stand up. What for? Go on. You too, Mike. Get your accordion. What did I do? It's not what you did. It's what you're going to do. Now play. Play what, Dave? Play anything. Okay, Joe, okay. you sing. Now listen, Dave. Sing before I ram this clarinet down your throat. I'm now we're going to rehearse, care. see? And we're going to get a job. I'll put this family back on its feet if I have to break everybody's leg doing it. Oh, now louder. by the pool Small fry Should be in the school My, my Put down that cigarette You ain't a grown-up High and mighty yet Small fry Dancing for a penny Small fry Counting up how many My, my You just listen here to me Ain't the biggest catfish in the sea You practice packing all day long To some old radio song Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes You'd better listen to your part Someday practice the law And then you'll be a real success Small fry, you kiss the neighbor's daughter Small fry, get on back in the shallow water. Seems that I should take you across my knee. You ain't the biggest catfish in the sea. You've got your feet all soaking wet. Land, you'll be the death of me yet. Oh, me, oh, my small fry. Huh, Dave? Well, I don't think so. Every night I work on this joint, I feel more like cutting my throat. Oh, yeah, but when Uncle Gus wins tomorrow, oh, boy, will we be loaded. Wins? Why, it's a sure thing, um, I hope. What do you say, Mike? Well, Joe, I've been excited so long thinking about riding Uncle Gus that now I, I'm kind of shaky, but but I'll be all right tomorrow. Where are you going? Well, that manager guy said he wanted to see me. I'll be right back. Now, what would the manager want to see Mike for? Come in. Oh, come in, Mike. Yes, sir. I want you to meet a friend of mine, Harry Ringmer. How are you, son? Glad to know you, sir. Mike's the kid I was telling you about, Harry. He works for me here, and he has his jockey papers to ride his brother's horse. Sit down, kid. What's the matter? You nervous? No, sir. Just, you know, riding my first race tomorrow. Mr. Ringmer's got a horse in that race, too. Mr. Bank. Oh, Mr. Bank's a good horse, but ours is better. <laughs> Think you'll win, huh? I got to. Why? Well, we already caused my brother David a lot of trouble and his girl and uh, just just family reasons. No, that's too bad. How do you mean? Well, you're plenty green, kid. Lots of things can happen out there to spoil your cake. For instance, uh, the rail. Well, what about the rail? Well, when the other boys start crowding, it's tough going. I've seen a tear a kid's leg right out of the socket, throw him under the horses. Well, I ain't afraid. We really need that dough, don't you? We sure do. Well, there's a way of turning a race into a sure thing sometimes. You know what I mean? And that's what my brother Joe likes, a sure thing. You got a smart brother, kid. He knows what he's talking about. He's smart, all right. Sure he is. 
We can help your family out by taking your brother's tip. No worry about losing the race. No risk. No nothing. Just play the sure thing. Huh? Now, look. You've got $400 coming to you, if you win. But suppose another horse crowds you. What if you get pocketed and shoved up against the rail? What have you got? Nothing. Now, look. Ever see one of these before? No, sir. A hundred-dollar bill. Well, that's yours. And three more like it tomorrow. If you don't win. If I don't win? Hey. Yeah. Like your brother says. The sure thing. You want to help your family, don't you? Yeah, sure I do. Okay. Al, uh, would you mind stepping outside for a minute? Not at all, Harry. Not at all. Thanks. Now, look, son. Hey, Al. Al, you see Mike any place? Mike? Oh, yeah. He just went back to the dressing room. Thanks. Uh, Joe, wait. Huh? How do you think Uncle Gus will do tomorrow? Oh, he'll win. He'll gallop, of course. If you were a gambling man, I'd take you up on that. <laughs> I'm sorry, Al. I don't bet. What kind of odds? Two to one. It's as good as you get at the track tomorrow, maybe better. Oh, yeah. Al, Al, boy, you ought to be a little more careful with your dough. This Uncle Gus is a sure thing. Well, if that's the way you feel. You go on, put your hay in the bank. Anyway, I wouldn't bet him. Couldn't bet no chance. I haven't got a dime. What difference does that make? You're working, aren't you? You could pay it every week. Al, you serious about this? Sure. I want to bet against your Uncle Gus. I'll put up plenty, too. Al, I wouldn't do this, only... You see, I'm sort of on my good behavior, if you know what I mean. And... Well, the sure thing's a sure thing. Okay. You got a bet. We pause now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. We'll be back in just a moment with Act Three of Sing You Sinners. Meanwhile, listen to this. Butter, 24 points a pound. Loin of pork, 12 points. And a porterhouse steak, when I can get it, is 10. Oh, even margarine's up to 12 points. Why, well, I remember when that's all butter cost. I just don't see where I'm going to get enough points for it all. Cheer up, ladies. There are extra red points waiting for you at your butcher's. Two points for every pound of used fat you turn in. I know it's hard to save more fat when you're getting less meat, but it can be done. Here's how. First, keep your salvage can handy, near the stove where it'll be ready to receive every drop. Then, after you've poured fat into the can, scrape the roaster, broiler, or frying pan with a spoon to get what's left in the corners. And don't forget to melt down those scraps of fat left on plates at the table. If you like boiled ham or frankfurters, set aside the water you've cooked them in and let it cool. Pretty soon you can skim quite a bit of soft white fat off the top. Poultry, too, yields a lot of fat, a point-free source of extra tokens if you don't use it in baking. All these things mount up, help you get more red points, and at the same time, help supply the government and industry with thousands of necessities for the war and home fronts. But do they still need so much fat? The war seems to be going so well with victory in Europe so close. But don't forget the Japs still hold many of the oil-producing Pacific Islands. And even on the ones we've just liberated, it'll be quite a while before they get into production again. So this year, it's up to us at home to turn in 100 million more pounds of fat than we did last year. Surveys show that six out of seven women aren't salvaging all the used fat they could. And only if everyone does a 100% job will there be enough to meet the demand. The government especially urges housewives in small communities or rural sections 
to ask their county or home demonstration agent where to turn in the fat they've collected. Remember, our country needs every drop from everyone. We return you to Mitchell Lyson. As I mentioned before, we will interrupt this broadcast for any important news bulletins. Be sure to join us after the play tonight when we'll take you backstage for a brief talk with Bing Crosby and his co-stars. And now, here's Act Three of Sing You Sinners, with Bing Crosby in the role of Joe, James Dunn as David, Joan Caulfield as Martha, and Elizabeth Patterson as Mrs. Beebe. It's the afternoon of the big race, three minutes before the horses go to the post. Just outside the jockey's dressing room, the gambler Ringmer waits for Mike. As the boy comes through the door, Ringmer grabs him quickly. Mr. Saget. Oh, hello, Mr. Ringmer. How do you feel, kid? Fine. Another 300 bucks is waiting for you. Yes, sir. You know what else is waiting for you if you try to get funny. What do you mean? It'll be the last trick you ever try on or off a track. Now remember that. Yes, sir. All right. I'll beat it. Yes, sir. Hey, boss. Did you get the bet down? Oh, sure. I got the whole three grand covered at two to one. Nobody got wise. It was my money, huh? Ah, we got six grand in sucker money the minute Mr. Bank wins. Hey, you sure that jockey on Uncle Gus won't cross you? Yeah, he's scared to death. Even if he does try to pull anything smart, my jockey will take care of it. Come on, let's go. Hey, this is the only way to bet on the day. Riders ready, two minutes. Everything okay, Mike? I... I guess so, Joe. Listen, don't get excited. You just pretend it's a regular workout, see? Of course, don't go forgetting it's a race now, but sort of, well, you know, just relax. Yeah, Joe, sure. What's the matter with you? You feeling funny? No. The only reason we want to win is the money, ain't it, Joe? We sure need the money, don't we? (laughs) We need the money, all right, more ways than one. How else do you mean? Well, I wasn't going to tell you because... I didn't want to get you upset, but I bet our next ten weeks pay against $2,000 that we'd win it. Joe, this is awful. Why? I know it's wrong, but I was only trying to do like you always said. The sure thing, Joe, you know, the sure thing. What did you do? The man that owns Mr. Bank has given me $400 to lose the race. What are you talking about? It's terrible, ain't it, Joe? But we needed the money, and like you said... telling me what I said. But lots of times you... Riders up! Come on. Get up there. Look, Mike, I've done some wrong things myself, plenty of them. But what you've done is, that's cheating. You can see that, can't you? I got mixed up, Joe. Oh, Mike, but whatever we do, we can't do anything crooked. We mean too much to each other, this family and everything. That if one of us gets in the jam, why, it's going to hurt all of us. What if Mom found out, Mike? I see what you mean. I just didn't have it straight, what you meant about the sure yeah, thing. No, it's all my fault. Here I am trying to tell you what's wrong, and I'm out betting yours and Dave's share ten weeks' pay. We, you were just trying to make money for all of well, us. Well, I wish you wouldn't feel that way, Mike. Mike, about me, because I'm wrong lots of times, but I gave you this bad steer without meaning to. Now, maybe it'll be better if you figure these things out for yourself in the future, huh? Whatever you say is okay with me, Joe. All right, then. Now, let's go on out there and win this race, huh? But I already got that hundred dollars. Here, I didn't know where to hide it. I'll take care of it. You just go out there and win the race. You'll stick with me, won't you? You'll stick with me if anything happens? (laughs) You're darn tootin'. That's swell. You just watch me. We'll show you, me and Uncle Gus. How's everything, Joe? Oh, everything's great. Fine. Oh, don't Mike look cute sitting up there all alone? Yes, I hope you don't finish that way. Hey, Dave. What? Dave, uh, come here a minute. There's, there's liable to be trouble if our horse wins. We're, 
You coming out the barn after the race? Why? Well, Ringmer's paying Mike $400 to lose the race to Mr. Bank, and I just told Mike to go on up and win it. But why in the world... All my fault. Now, he thought he was doing what I'd do. He's trying to get some money for us. Now, look, what's so important about this race? The purse money doesn't amount to a hill of beans, and we haven't got any bets. Or have we? Well, yes, Dave, we have. <laughs> How much? Look, Dave, I hate to tell you this. How much? Well, ten weeks' salary. Ten weeks' salary? don't get sore. Don't get sore. I ought to I break know, your neck. I, I know, Dave. Dave, what are you two talking about? Oh, oh nothing, Mom. Nothing at all. We just, uh... We just... Oh. Well, they're in the starting game. It looks like a start. And there they go! Running into the back stretch, it's Mr. Bank in front by half a length on the inside. Sandy Man on the outside is second by a length and a half. Uncle got this Hold it, Mike. Step, Jack. Get right. Right. Come on. Come on. At the half, it's Mr. Bank in front of the rail by two lengths. Sandy Man on the outside is second by a length and a half. Uncle Gus is third between horses. Tantori is fourth and... And Uncle Gus is moving up on the inside. It's Mr. Bank in front of the Uncle Gus is second by a length, and Sandy Man is third. That's a three quarters. Hey, boss, look at that kid. He's out to win. He's crossing you, boss. He better not. I tell you, he's trying to win. Uncle Gus is second. Shut up. He won't cross us. If he does, I'll break it. They're coming into the stretch. It's Mr. Bank in front by a length and a half. Uncle Gus is second by a length. And Fancy is third. It's Mr. Bank and Uncle Gus. And they're fighting hard. They're head and head. It's Mr. Bank and Uncle Gus. They're coming down to the finish now with... Uncle Gus, come here! Don't, don't! Who won? Who won? It's all over, Mom. We win it! Oh, boy, Mike! Oh, gee, that was swell, Mike. You, you sure rode a great race. I was scared, Joe. They shoved me into the rail, so I shut my eyes. But I won, Joe, didn't I, huh? Oh, it was great work, Mike. Great. Hey, look. There he is, Joe Ringmer. He's got a guy with him. Come on. Now you got nothing to worry about, see? Just, just keep going. Hello, kid. Nice race. My brother's going to give you back your hundred. I'll take care of this, Mike. Here, Mr. Ringmer. This belongs to you, doesn't it? The next time you get some extra money, you'll have to find a better way to spend it. We don't go for that. Yeah? That's right. Glad you liked the race. Come on, Mike. Come back here, you. Leave that kid alone. Grab this guy, Pete. No, you Listen, don't. You. Look out, Joe. Why are you... Now, kid, I'm going to teach Let you what go. it means. Let me Come go. Come on, run, Mike. Run. Dave, Dave, help. Shut up. Hey, Mike, where are you? Over here, Dave. Come on, take him. Get in there. Take your hands off that kid. All right, sucker, you ask for it. Keep after him, Dave. Work on him, boy. Right. Tend to your own cooking. Get out of here. I got this guy. I got to help. Let go of my... Oh, fight me, will you? Oh, oh I'll break your... Dave, no. Mike, what's the matter? What's the matter? It's a fight, Mom. It's a fight, can't you see? Oh, Dave, go. Are you winning? We ain't losing. <laughs> and here's another one for luck, you bum. Yeah, how do you like this... Mr. Oh, 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 all right. All right. All right. There you are. All right. Let me quit. Oh, quit. Quit. I can't. Okay. Go on. Get out of here. Come Take on. it on the arm. Come on. Get out of here. Run. Yeah. Look at him. Oh, boy. Well, Dave. Dave, I guess we took them all. Yeah. We sure did. Yeah. We sure. Go. Dave. Dave. He fainted. He fainted. Oh. Dave. Get up. What's the matter with you? What do you want to go and do? Oh. 
We gotta figure this out. Uh, we won two thousand dollars on the bet. Uh-huh. That's right. Four hundred and twenty-five on the win. Uh-huh. And thirty-seven dollars that we had saved up before. Uh-huh. That's uh, seven and five is twelve and six. Uh, two thousand four hundred and sixty-two dollars. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow, we're millionaires. And you're still earning a hundred dollars a week with your music. Oh, that's out. We're quitting tonight. But why? Well, Dave's pulling out to see if he can get set somewhere, and I figured we'd take Uncle Gus east for the big races. We don't need music anymore. <laughs> I see. Keep moving. That's the ticket. New faces, new places, mix. Maybe buy another horse, huh, Joe? And start a big time stable? It's not a bad idea. We'll be in that winter circle in Kentucky one of these days, boy. Well, suit yourself. You're on your own oh, now. Oh, it's a cinch. We're really going to town, huh? Yep, old quick money Joe. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't asked me what I'm going to do yet. What do you mean? Well... You're quitting your music, even though it pays you the best steady money you'll ever earn in your lives, just because you've had one lucky day. Dave's going one way, and you're going another. Oh, but with you and Mike. Not with me. Huh? I'm telling you. I've raised the three of you, and I know you'll never amount to anything unless you stick together. Now what happened? David's trying to run away from himself just on account of a little trouble with Martha. And you're going hog-wild in a silly business that'll break you flatter than a pancake. What if Uncle Gus gets a stomachache? Got a sick What horse. have you got then? Even Michael can't talk about anything but racehorses and tracks and sure things. What's he going to grow up to be? Now, I mean it. If you boys walk out on your job, I'm walking out on this family. Oh, Mom, you're crazy. Thank you. Well, I don't mean you're crazy, Mom. Of course I don't mean that, but we... We know what we should do, Mom. All right, I'm leaving. Oh, but Mom... Mom, you shouldn't act like that. You need someone to take care of oh, you. I'll take care of myself. Don't worry. Oh, but listen. Well, maybe we can figure this thing out, Mom. Not the way you're figuring now. I'm going upstairs and pack. Well? Gee, I wonder what's come over her. She sure acts like she means business. Well, I guess there's only one thing to do. Telegram, miss. Sign here. Oh, thank you. Dear Martha, we and our music are going to stay in Los Angeles. Please come back and marry the four of us. Love, Dave. I wouldn't take all the wealth on Wall Street For a road where nature trusts And I calculate I'm worth my weight in golden rugs Lucky me I can live in luxury Cause I've got a pocket full of Our stars return for their curtain calls in just a moment. Whose picture is that, Libby? A new bull? Uh-huh. He's all of three months old. A little too young for the army yet, isn't he? Yes, but the war's affecting his life, too. Uh, just the other day, his mother said... Oh, honestly, Libby, you've no idea the time I'm having getting diapers for my offspring. Why, I've combed every store in town, and I still can't get enough. What did you tell her, Libby? Why, that the Army needs 136 yards of cotton material per year to equip every soldier from his overseas cap to his socks. 
Now, that's enough to keep three babies well-dressed. So wartime infants just have to get along with less. Hasn't the government done anything about it? Oh, they're even investigating the situation in Congress. But there just doesn't seem to be enough cotton to go around. What's the poor girl going to do? Well, I gave her one tip that'll help her stretch the supply she has. I told her to lux them so they'll stay soft and comfortable longer. That way she can use the same ones over and over again. Get along with two dozen instead of three. Sound advice, Libby. These days when so many things babies wear are hard to get, it's extra important to take care of what you have. Use safe, gentle Lux suds for everything that touches his tender skin. Never use harsh soaps that may leave a film of irritating alkali. Lukewarm Lux suds keep babies' pretty colored dresses and sweaters new-looking longer, too. Use gentle Lux flakes for all babies' things. Here's Mitchell Lyson, our guest producer. As a producer, I'm going to venture a prediction. That in the future, you'll hear a lot about one of the young stars in our cast. Supported by Elizabeth Patterson, Joan Caulfield, and James Dunn. You know, he's shown real promise on our stage tonight. Bing Crosby. <laughs> Miss, you think this might open up something for me in the Dr. Gillespie series? <laughs> <laughs> well, Lux has a way of making stars and flakes. You mean, Mitch, that for Crosby there is hope. And for hope there's Kelowna, always. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bing, I can give you some encouragement so far as pictures go. Last time I left this stage, I got a call from Fox to take the part of Johnny Nolan in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And Jimmy, when you leave this stage tonight, I hope you get another phone call for as big a part. You speak for me, too, won't you, pal? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Mitch Bing doesn't have to worry whether he clicks in radio or pictures. He has, he has other interests. You mean horses, Elizabeth? <laughs> oh, Bing's horses aren't an interest. They're a liability. Elizabeth, Elizabeth means Bing owns part interest in a fighter. Oh, I get it. You mean his company made the great John L. Tell us about the picture, Bing. Well, I'm afraid, Mitch, people might misunderstand. I wouldn't want to stoop to crass commercialism on this. Well, if that's the way you feel about it. Of course, if you're going to press me, I might... Oh, no, 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 no. You have a right to your high principles, but I bet you have a winner in that picture, Bing. If he hasn't, he's back in that same old betting group. James, you know I never bet. No? Of course, I occasionally see a chance of parlaying a handful of greenbacks into an acre of lettuce or two. I take the bite, I plunge, (laughs) I sail, I go. That's not betting? No, that's double talk, Mitch. But tell me, what do you have in the way of a winner on Lux next Monday night, Mitch? Next week, we bring you from 20th Century Fox the story of a great man and a great dream. Alexander Graham Bell, June Dupre, and Don Amici. Among the many colorful sagas for America, few have as much suspense and romance as the life of the great inventor who enabled man to speak to his fellow men in every corner of the globe. I wouldn't miss it, Mitch. Thanks and good night. Good night. Good night night. night and all our thanks. Our sponsors, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me inviting you to be with us again next Monday night when the Lux Radio Theater presents Alexander Graham Bell with Don Amici and June Dupre. This is Mitchell Lyson saying goodnight from Hollywood. Sing You Sinners was presented through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, whose current production is Salty O'Rourke, starring Alan Ladd and Gail Russell. Mitchell Lyson's next picture to be released for Paramount is Kitty. James Dunn appeared through the courtesy of 20th Century Fox. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers. Bing Crosby appeared through the courtesy of the Kraft Cheese Company. Tune in again next Monday night to hear Alexander Graham Bell with Don Amici and June Dupre. It's strawberry time. Now treat your family to luscious strawberry chiffon pie, tender, delicate shortcake made the spry way. 
clip sugar-saving recipes from Spry's ad in leading women's magazines for May. And remember that big word for baking and frying success, Spry. That's right, pure, all-vegetable shortening at its creamy best, S-P-R-Y. Be sure to listen in next Monday night to the Lux Radio Theater presentation of Alexander Graham Bell with Don Amici and June Dupre. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
36. Victory in Europe 4505 Alt Tab 1. 35. VE Day Run Alt Tab. Sound Forge Pro 11 Point Escape. Escape. Enter. Enter. Menu. File menu. A. Leaving menus. Sound 1 star. Save as dialog. File name. Sound 1. Edit. S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y-N-I-G-H-T-S-E-C-O-N-D-P-C 5-5-1-8-D-I-T-A-P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-G-U-E-S-T-I-R-A-B-R-A-D M-A-T-E-T-S-K-Y Save as Save button Enter Edit JAWS Professional Apple Software Update Dialog List Alt F4 Alt Tab Skype Trademark 34 Walden Alt Page Down Alt Tab Replayer Alt Tab Sound Forge Pro 11.0